This is Audible. Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien Edited by Christopher Tolkien Read by Martin Shaw Ainulindala, the music of the Ainul. There was Eru, the One, who in Ardor is called Iluvatar. And he made first the Ainur, the Holy Ones, that were the offspring of his thought. And they were with him before aught else was made. And he spoke to them, propounding to them themes of music. And they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while they sang only each alone, or but few together, while the rest hearkened, for each comprehended only that part of the mind of Viluvata from which he came, and in the understanding of their brethren they grew but slowly. Yet ever as they listened, they came to deeper understanding and increased in unison and harmony. And it came to pass that Ilavatar called together all the Ainur and declared to them a mighty theme, unfolding to them things greater and more wonderful than he had yet revealed. And the glory of its beginning and the splendor of its end amazed the Ainur, so that they bowed before Ilavatar and were silent. Then Ilavatar said to them, Of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now that ye make in harmony together a great music. And since I have kindled you with a flame imperishable, ye shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme, each with his own thoughts and devices, if he will. But I will sit and hearken, and be glad that through you great beauty has been wakened into song. Then the voices of the Ainur, like unto harps and lutes and pipes and trumpets and viols and organs, 
and like unto countless choirs singing with words, began to fashion the theme of Ilovata to a great music. And the sound arose of endless, interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights, and the places of the dwelling of Ilovata were filled to overflowing, and the music and the echo of the music went out into the void, and it was not void. Never since have the Ainur made any music like to this music, though it has been said that a greater still shall be made before Ilovata by the choirs of the Ainur and the children of Ilovata after the end of days. Then the themes of Ilovata shall be played aright and take being in the moment of their utterance, for all shall then understand fully his intent in their part, and each shall know the comprehension of each. And Ilovata shall give to their thoughts the secret fire, being well pleased. But now Ilovata sat and hearkened, and for a great while it seemed good to him, for in the music there were no flaws. But as the theme progressed, it came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Vilavata. For he sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. To Melkor among the Ainur had been given the greatest gifts of power and knowledge, and he had a share in all the gifts of his brethren. He had gone often alone into the void places seeking the imperishable flame, for desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own, and it seemed to him that Ilovata took no thought for the void, and he was impatient of its emptiness. Yet he found not the fire, for it is with Ilovata. But being alone, he had begun to conceive thoughts of his own unlike those of his brethren. Some of these thoughts he now wove into his music, and straightway discord arose about him, and many that sang nigh him grew despondent, and their thought was disturbed and their music faltered. But some began to attune their music to his rather than to the thought which they had at first. Then the discord of Melkor spread ever wider, and the melodies which had been heard before foundered in a sea of turbulent sound. But Ilovata sat and hearkened until it seemed that about his throne there was a raging storm, as of dark waters that made war one upon another in an endless wrath that would not be assuaged. Then Ilovata arose, and the Ainur perceived that he smiled and he lifted up his left hand, and a new theme began amid the storm, like and yet unlike to the former theme, and it gathered power and had new beauty. But the discord of Melkor rose in uproar and contended with it, and again there was a war of sound more violent than before, until many of the Ainur were dismayed and sang no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. Then again Ilovata arose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern, and he lifted up his right hand, and behold, a third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others. For it seemed at first soft and sweet, 
a mere rippling of gentle sounds in delicate melodies. But it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity, and it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Ilovata, and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow, and blended with an immeasurable sorrow, from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. And it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. In the midst of this strife, whereat the halls of Ulovata shook and a tremor ran out into the silences yet unmoved, Ilovata arose a third time, and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both his hands, and in one cord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Ilovata, the music ceased. Then Ilovata spoke, and he said, Mighty are the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know, and all the Ainur, that I am Ilovata, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. Then the Ainur were afraid, and they did not yet comprehend the words that were said to them, and Melkor was filled with shame, of which came secret anger. That Ilovata arose in splendor, and he went forth from the fair regions that he had made for the Ainur and the Ainur followed him. But when they were come into the void, Ilovata said to them, Behold your music! And he showed to them a vision, giving to them sight where before was only hearing, and they saw a new world made visible before them, and it was globed amid the void, and it was sustained therein, but was not of it. And as they looked and wondered, this world began to unfold its history, and it seemed to them that it lived and grew. And when the Ainur had gazed for a while and was silent, Ilovata said again, Behold your music, this is your minstrelsy, and each of you shall find contained herein, amid the design that I set before you, all those things which it may seem that he himself devised or added. And thou, Melkor, wilt discover all the secret thoughts of thy mind, and wilt perceive that they are but a part of the whole and tributary to its glory. And many other things Ilovata spoke to the Ainur at that time, 
and because of their memory of his words and the knowledge that each has of the music that he himself made, the Ainoa know much of what was and is and is to come, and few things are unseen by them. Yet some things there are that they cannot see, neither alone nor taking counsel together, for to none but himself has Ilovata revealed all that he has in store, and in every age there come forth things that are new and have no foretelling, for they do not proceed from the past. And so it was, that as this vision of the world was played before them, the Ainur saw that it contained things which they had not thought. And they saw with amazement the coming of the children of Ilovata, and the habitation that was prepared for them, and they perceived that they themselves and the labor of their music had been busy with the preparation of this dwelling, and yet knew not that it had any purpose beyond its own beauty. For the children of Ilovata were conceived by him alone, and they came with the third theme, and were not in the theme which Ilovata propounded at the beginning, and none of the Ainur had part in their making. Therefore, when they beheld them, the more did they love them, being things other than themselves, strange and free, wherein they saw the mind of Ilovata reflected anew, and learned yet a little more of his wisdom, which otherwise had been hidden, even from the Ainur. Now the children of Ilovata are elves and men, the firstborn and the followers. And amid all the splendors of the world, its vast halls and spaces and its wheeling fires, Ilovata chose a place for their habitation in the deeps of time, and in the midst of the innumerable stars. And this habitation might seem a little thing to those who consider only the majesty of the Ainur, and not their terrible sharpness, as who should take the whole field of ardor for the foundation of a pillar, and so raise it until the cone of its summit were more bitter than a needle. Or who consider only the immeasurable vastness of the world, which still the Ainur are shaping, and not the minute precision to which they shape all things therein. But when the Ainur had beheld this habitation in a vision, and had seen the children of Ilavata arise therein, then many of the most mighty among them bent all their thought and their desire towards that place. And of these, Melkor was the chief, even as he was in the beginning the greatest of the Ainur who took part in the music. And he feigned, even to himself at first, that he desired to go thither and order all things for the good of the children of Ilovata, controlling the turmoils of the heat and the cold that had come to pass through him. But he desired rather to subdue to his will both elves and men, envying the gifts with which Ilovata promised to endow them. And he wished himself to have subjects and servants, and to be called Lord, and to be a master over other wills. But the other Ainur looked upon this habitation set within the vast spaces of the world, which the elves call Arda, the earth, and their hearts rejoiced in light, and their eyes beholding many colors were filled with gladness. 
but because of the roaring of the sea they felt a great unquiet, and they observed the winds in the air and the matters of which Arda was made, of iron and stone and silver and gold and many substances. But of all these, water they most greatly praised, and it is said by the Eldar that in water there lives yet the echo of the music of the Ainur, more than in any substance else that is in this earth. And many of the children of Ilavatar hearken still, unsated, to the voices of the sea, and yet know not for what they listen. Now to water had that Ainu whom the elves call Ulmo turned his thought, and of all most deeply was he instructed by Ilavatar in music. But of the airs and winds, Manwe most had pondered, who is the noblest of the Ainur. Of the fabric of earth had Aule thought, to whom Ilovata had given skill and knowledge scarce less than to Melkor. But the delight and pride of Aule is in the deed of making, and in the thing made, and neither in possession nor in his own mastery. Wherefore he gives and hoards not, and is free from care, passing ever on to some new work. And Ilovata spoke to Ulmo, and said, Seest thou not how, here in this little realm in the deeps of time, Melkor hath made war upon thy province? He hath bethought him of bitter cold immoderate, and yet hath not destroyed the beauty of thy fountains, nor of thy clear pools. Behold the snow, and the cunning work of frost. Melkor hath devised heats and fire without restraint, and hath not dried up thy desire, nor utterly quelled the music of the sea. Behold, rather, the height and glory of the clouds and the ever-changing mists, and listen to the fall of rain upon the earth. And in these clouds thou art drawn nearer to Manwe, thy friend, whom thou lovest. Then Ulmo answered, Truly water is become now fairer than my heart imagined. Neither had my secret thought conceived the snowflake, nor in all my music was contained the falling of the rain. I will seek Manwe, that he and I may make melodies forever to thy delight. And Manwe and Ulmo have from the beginning been allied, and in all things have served most faithfully the purpose of Iluvata. But even as Ulmo spoke, and while the Ainur were yet gazing upon this vision, it was taken away and hidden from their sight. And it seemed to them that in that moment they perceived a new thing, darkness, which they had not known before except in thoughts. But they had become enamored of the beauty of the vision, and engrossed in the unfolding of the world, which came there to being and their minds were filled with it, for the history was incomplete, and the circles of time not full wrought when the vision was taken away. And some have said that the vision ceased ere the fulfillment of the dominion of men and the fading of the firstborn. Wherefore, though the music is over all, the valor have not seen as with sight the later ages or the ending of the world.
Then there was unrest among the Ainur. But Ilovata called to them and said, I know the desire of your minds that what ye have seen should verily be, not only in your thought, but even as ye yourselves are, and yet other. Therefore I say, Ea, let these things be, and I will send forth into the void the flame imperishable, and it shall be at the heart of the world, and the world shall be. And those of you that will may go down into it. And suddenly the Ainur saw afar off a light, as it were a cloud with a living heart of flame, and they knew that this was no vision only, but that Ilovata had made a new thing, Ea, the world that is. Thus it came to pass that of the Ainur some abode still with Ilovata beyond the confines of the world. But others, and among them many of the greatest and most fair, took the leave of Ilovata and descended into it. But this condition Ilovata made, or it is the necessity of their love, that their power should thenceforward be contained and bounded in the world, to be within it for ever, until it is complete, so that they are its life, and it is theirs. And therefore they are named the Valar, the powers of the world. But when the Valar entered into Ea, they were at first astounded, and at a loss, for it was as if naught was yet made which they had seen in vision, and all was but on point to begin, and yet unshaped, and it was dark, for the great music had been but the growth and flowering of thought in the timeless halls, and the vision only a foreshowing. But now they had entered in at the beginning of time, and the Valar perceived that the world had been but foreshadowed and foresung, and they must achieve it. So began their great labours in wastes unmeasured and unexplored, and in ages uncounted and forgotten, until in the deeps of time and in the midst of the vast halls of Ea they came to be that hour and that place where was made the habitation of the children of Ilovata. And in this work the chief part was taken by Manwe and Aule, and Ulmo. But Melkor too was there from the first, and he meddled in all that was done, turning it, if he might, to his own desires and purposes, and he kindled great fires. When therefore earth was yet young and full of flame, Melkor coveted it, and he said to the other Valar, This shall be my own kingdom, and I name it unto myself. But Manwe was the brother of Melkor in the mind of Ilovata, and he was the chief instrument of the second theme that Ilovata had raised up against the discord of Melkor. And he called unto himself many spirits, both greater and less, and they came down into the fields of Arda and aided Manwe, lest Melkor should hinder the fulfilment of their labor forever, and earth should wither ere it flowered. And Manwe said unto Melkor, This kingdom thou shalt not take for thine own wrongfully, for many others have labored here no less than thou, 
and there was strife between Melkor and the other Valar, and for that time Melkor withdrew and departed to other regions, and did there what he would. But he did not put the desire of the kingdom of Arda from his heart. Now the Valar took to themselves shape and hue, and because they were drawn into the world by love of the children of Ilovata, for whom they hoped, they took shape after that manner which they had beheld in the vision of Ilovata, save only in majesty and splendor. Moreover, their shape comes of the knowledge of the visible world, rather than of the world itself. And they need it not, save only as we use raiment, and yet we may be naked and suffer no loss of our being. Therefore the Valar may walk, if they will, unclad, and then even the Eldar cannot clearly perceive them, though they be present. But when they desire to clothe themselves, the Valar take upon them forms, some as of male and some as of female. For that difference of temper they had even from their beginning, and it is but bodied forth in the choice of each, not made by the choice, even as with us male and female may be shown by the raiment that is not made thereby. But the shapes wherein the great ones array themselves are not at all times like to the shapes of the kings and queens of the children of Ilovata, for at times they may clothe themselves in their own thought, made visible in forms of majesty, and dread. And the Valar drew unto them many companions, some less, some well nigh as great as themselves, and they labored together in the ordering of the earth and the curbing of its tumults. Then Melkor saw what was done, and that the Valar walked on earth as powers visible, clad in the raiment of the world, and were lovely and glorious to see, and blissful and that the earth was becoming as a garden for their delight, for its turmoils were subdued. His envy grew then the greater within him, and he also took visible form. But because of his mood and the malice that burned in him, that form was dark and terrible, and he descended upon Arda in power and majesty greater than any other of the Valar, as a mountain that wades in the sea, and has its head above the clouds, and is clad in ice and crowned with smoke and fire. And the light of the eyes of Melkor was like a flame that withers with heat and pierces with a deadly cold. Thus began the first battle of the Valar with Melkor for the dominion of Arda. And of those tumults the elves know but little. For what has here been declared is come from the Valar themselves with whom the Eldalir spoke in the land of Valinor, and by whom they were instructed. But little would the Valar ever tell of the wars before the coming of the elves. Yet it is told among the Eldar that the Valar endeavoured ever, in despite of Melkor, to rule the earth and to prepare it for the coming of the firstborn. And they built lands and Melkor destroyed them, Valleys they delved, and Melkor raised them up. Mountains they carved, and Melkor threw them down. Seas they hollowed, and Melkor spilled them. 
naught might have peace or come to lasting growth, for as surely as the Valar began a labor, so would Melkor undo it or corrupt it. And yet their labor was not all in vain. And though nowhere and in no work was their will and purpose wholly fulfilled, and all things were in hue and shape other than the Valar had at first intended, slowly nonetheless the earth was fashioned and made firm. And thus was the habitation of the children of Ilovata established at last in the deeps of time and amidst the innumerable stars. Valaquenta, account of the Valar and Maya according to the law of the Eldar. In the beginning, Eru, the One, who in the elvish tongue is named Iluvata, made the Ainur of his thought, and they made a great music before him. In this music, the world was begun. For Iluvata made visible the song of the Ainur, and they beheld it as a light in the darkness. And many among them became enamored of its beauty and of its history which they saw beginning and unfolding as in a vision. Therefore Ilovata gave to their vision being and set it amid the void, and the secret fire was sent to burn at the heart of the world, and it was called Ea. Then those of the Ainur who desired it arose and entered into the world at the beginning of time, and it was their task to achieve it, and by their labors to fulfill the vision which they had seen. Long they labored in the regions of Ea, which are vast beyond the thought of elves and men, until in the time appointed was made Arda, the kingdom of earth. Then they put on the raiment of earth, and descended into it, and dwelt therein. Of the Valar The great among these spirits the elves name the Valar, the powers of Arda, and men have often called them gods. The lords of the Valar are seven, and the Valia, the queens of the Valar, are seven also. These were the names in the elvish tongue as it was spoken in Valinor, though they have other names in the speech of the elves in Middle-earth, and their names among men are manifold. The names of the lords in due order are Manwe, Ulmo, Aule, Orome, Mandos, Lorian, and Tulkas and the names of the queens are Varda, Yavana, Niena, Este, Vaire, Vana, and Nessa. Melkor is counted no longer among the Valar, and his name is not spoken upon earth. Manwe and Melkor were brethren in the thought of Iluvata. 
The mightiest of those Ainur who came into the world was in his beginning Melkor. But Manwe is dearest to Ilovata and understands most clearly his purposes. He was appointed to be, in the fullness of time, the first of all kings, lord of the realm of Arda and ruler of all that dwell therein. In Arda his delight is in the winds and the clouds and in all the regions of the air, from the heights to the depths, from the utmost borders of the Vale of Arda, to the breezes that blow in the grass. Sulimo he is surnamed, Lord of the Breath of Arda. All swift birds, strong of wing, he loves, and they come and go at his bidding. With Manwe dwells Varda, Lady of the Stars, who knows all the regions of Ea. Too great is her beauty to be declared in the words of men or of elves. For the light of Ilovata lives still in her face. In light is her power and her joy. Out of the deeps of Ea she came to the aid of Manwe. For Melkor she knew from before the making of the music, and rejected him. And he hated her, and feared her more than all others whom Eru made. Manwe and Varda are seldom parted, and they remain in Valinor. Their halls are above the everlasting snow, upon Oyulasa, the uttermost tower of Taniquetil, tallest of all the mountains upon earth. When Manwe there ascends his throne and looks forth, if Varda is beside him, he sees further than all other eyes, through mist and through darkness, and over the leagues of the sea. And if Manwe is with her, Varda hears more clearly than all other ears the sound of voices that cry from east to west, from the hills and the valleys, and from the dark places that Melkor has made upon earth. Of all the great ones who dwell in this world, the elves hold Varda most in reverence and love. Elbereth, they name her and they call upon her name out of the shadows of Middle-earth, and uplift it in song at the rising of the stars. Ulmo is the lord of waters. He is alone. He dwells nowhere long, but moves as he will in all the deep waters about the earth or under the earth. He is next in might to Manwe, and before Valinor was made, he was closest to him in friendship. But thereafter, he went seldom to the councils of the Valar, unless great matters were in debate. For he kept all Arda in thought, and he has no need of any resting place. Moreover, he does not love to walk upon land, and will seldom clothe himself in a body after the manner of his peers. If the children of Eru beheld him, they were filled with a great dread, for the arising of the king of the sea was terrible as a mounting wave that strides to the land, with dark helm foam-crested and raiment of mail shimmering from silver down into shadows of green. The trumpets of Manwe are loud, but Ulmo's voice is deep as the deeps of the ocean, which he only has seen. Nonetheless, Ulmo loves both elves and men, and never abandoned them not even when they lay under the wrath of the Valar. At times he will come unseen to the shores of Middle-earth, 
or pass far inland up firths of the sea, and there make music upon his great horns, the Ulumuri, that are wrought of white shell. And those to whom that music comes hear it ever after in their hearts, and longing for the sea never leaves them again. But mostly Ulmo speaks to those who dwell in Middle-earth with voices that are heard only as the music of water, for all seas, lakes, rivers, fountains and springs are in his government, so that the elves say that the spirit of Ulmo runs in all the veins of the world. Thus news comes to Ulmo even in the deeps of all the needs and griefs of Arda, which otherwise would be hidden from Manwe. Aule has might little less than Ulmo. His lordship is over all the substances of which Arda is made. In the beginning he wrought much in fellowship with Manwe and Ulmo, and the fashioning of all lands was his labor. He is a smith and a master of all crafts, and he delights in works of skill, however small, as much as in the mighty building of old. His are the gems that lie deep in the earth, and the gold that is fair in the hand, no less than the walls of the mountains and the basins of the sea. The Noldor learned most of him, and he was ever their friend. Melkor was jealous of him, for Aule was most like himself in thought and in powers, and there was long strife between them, in which Melkor ever marred or undid the works of Aule, and Aule grew weary in repairing the tumults and disorders of Melkor. Both also desired to make things of their own that should be new and unthought of by others, and delighted in the praise of their skill. But Aule remained faithful to Eru and submitted all that he did to his will, and he did not envy the works of others, but sought and gave counsel. Whereas Melkor spent his spirit in envy and hate, until at last he could make nothing save in mockery of the thought of others, and all their works he destroyed if he could. The spouse of Aule is Yavanna, the giver of fruits. She is the lover of all things that grow in the earth, and all their countless forms she holds in her mind, from the trees like towers in forests long ago, to the moss upon stones or the small and secret things in the mould. In reverence, Yavanna is next to Vada among the queens of the Valar. In the form of a woman, she is tall and robed in green, but at times she takes other shapes. Some there are who have seen her standing like a tree under heaven, crowned with the sun, and from all its branches there spilled a golden dew upon the barren earth. And it grew green with corn, but the roots of the tree were in the waters of Ulmo, and the winds of Manwe spoke in its leaves. Kementari, Queen of the Earth, she is surnamed in the Eldarin tongue. The Feanturi Masters of spirits are brethren, and they are called most often Mandos and Lorian. Yet these are rightly the names of the places of their dwelling, and their true names are Namo and Irmo. Namo, the elder, dwells in Mandos, which is westward in Valinor. He is the keeper of the houses of the dead, and the summoner of the spirits of the slain. He forgets nothing 
and he knows all things that shall be, save only those that lie still in the freedom of Iluvata. He is the doomsman of the Valar, but he pronounces his dooms and his judgments only at the bidding of Manwe. Vaire, the weaver, is his spouse, who weaves all things that have ever been in time into her storied webs, and the halls of Mandos that ever widen as the ages pass are clothed with them. Irmo the Younger is the master of visions and dreams. In Lorien are his gardens in the land of the Valar, and they are the fairest of all places in the world, filled with many spirits. Este, the gentle healer of hurts and of weariness, is his spouse. Grey is her raiment, and rest is her gift. She walks not by day, but sleeps upon an island in the tree-shadowed lake of Lorelin. From the fountains of Irmo and Este, all those who dwell in Valinor draw refreshment, and often the Valar come themselves to Lorien, and there find repose and easing of the burden of Arda. Mightier than Este is Niena, sister of the Feanturi. She dwells alone, she is acquainted with grief, and mourns for every wound that Arda has suffered in the marring of Melkor. So great was her sorrow as the music unfolded, that her song turned to lamentation long before its end, and the sound of mourning was woven into the themes of the world before it began. But she does not weep for herself, and those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance in hope. Her halls are west of west, upon the borders of the world, and she comes seldom to the city of Valimar, where all is glad. She goes rather to the halls of Mandos, which are near to her own, and all those who wait in Mandos cry to her, for she brings strength to the spirit and turns sorrow to wisdom. The windows of her house look outward from the walls of the world. Greatest in strength and deeds of prowess is Tulkas, who is surnamed Astaldo the Valiant. He came last to Arda to aid the Valar in the first battles with Melkor. He delights in wrestling and in contests of strength, and he rides no steed, for he can outrun all things that go on feet, and he is tireless. His hair and beard are golden, and his flesh ruddy. His weapons are his hands. He has little heed for either the past or the future, and is of no avail as a counsellor, but is a hardy friend. His spouse is Nessa, the sister of Orome, and she also is lithe and fleet-footed. Dear she loves, and they follow her train whenever she goes in the wild. But she can outrun them, swift as an arrow with the wind in her hair. In dancing she delights, and she dances in Valimar on lawns of never-fading green. Orome is a mighty lord. If he is less strong than Tulkas, he is more dreadful in anger, whereas Tulkas laughs ever in sport or in war, and even in the face of Melkor he laughed in battles before the elves were born. Orome loved the lands of Middle-earth, and he left them unwillingly, and came last to Valinor. 
and often of old he passed back east over the mountains and returned with his host to the hills and the plains. He is a hunter of monsters and fell beasts, and he delights in horses and in hounds. And all trees he loves, for which reason he is called Alderon, and by the Sindar, Tauron, the lord of forests. Naha is the name of his horse, white in the sun and shining silver at night. The Valaroma is the name of his great horn, the sound of which is like the upgoing of the sun in scarlet, or the sheer lightning cleaving the clouds. Above all the horns of his host it was heard in the woods that Yavanna brought forth in Valinor. For there Oreme would train his folk and his beasts for the pursuit of the evil creatures of Melkor. The spouse of Oreme is Vanna, the ever-young. She is the younger sister of Yavanna. All flowers spring as she passes, and open if she glances upon them, and all birds sing at her coming. These are the names of the Valar and the Valier, and here is told in brief their likenesses, such as the Eldar beheld them in Amman. But fair and noble as were the forms in which they were manifest to the children of Ilovata, they were but a veil upon their beauty and their power. And if little is here said of all that the Eldar once knew, that is as nothing compared with their true being, which goes back into regions and ages far beyond our thought. Among them nine were of chief power and reverence. But one is removed from their number, and eight remain. The Aratar, the High Ones of Arda. Manwe and Vada, Ulmo, Yavanna and Aule, Mandos, Niena, and Orome. Though Manwe is their king and holds their allegiance under Eru, in majesty they are peers, surpassing beyond compare all others, whether of the Valar and the Maya, or of any other order that Ilovata has sent into Ea. Of the Maya With the Valar came other spirits whose being also began before the world, of the same order as the Valar but of less degree. These are the Maya, the people of the Valar, and their servants and helpers. Their number is not known to the elves, and few have names in any of the tongues of the children of Eluvata. For though it is otherwise in Ammon, in Middle-earth, the Maya have seldom appeared in form visible to elves and men. Chief among the Maya of Valinor, whose names are remembered in the histories of the Elder Days, are Ilmare, the handmaid of Varda, and Eonwe, the banner-bearer and herald of Manwe, whose might in arms is surpassed by none in Arda. But of all the Maya, Ossa and Uinen are best known to the children of Iluvata. Ossa is a vassal of Ulmo, and he is master of the seas that wash the shores of Middle-earth. He does not go into the deeps, but loves the coasts and the isles, and rejoices in the winds of Manwe. For in storm he delights and laughs amid the roaring of the waves. His spouse 
is Unan, the Lady of the Seas, whose hair lies spread through all waters under sky, all creatures she loves that live in the salt streams, and all weeds that grow there. To her mariners cry, for she can lay calm upon the waves, restraining the wildness of Asa. The Numenorians lived long in her protection, and held her in reverence equal to the Valar. Melkor hated the sea, for he could not subdue it. It is said that in the making of Arda he endeavoured to draw Asa to his allegiance, promising to him all the realm and power of Ulmo if he would serve him. So it was that long ago there arose great tumults in the sea that wrought ruin to the lands. But Unan, at the prayer of Aula, restrained Asa and brought him before Ulmo. And he was pardoned and returned to his allegiance, to which he has remained faithful, for the most part. For the delight in violence has never wholly departed from him, and at times he will rage in his willfulness without any command from Ulmo his lord. Therefore those who dwell by the sea or go up in ships may love him, but they do not trust him. Melian was the name of a Maya who served both Vana and Este. She dwelt long in Lorien, tending the trees that flower in the gardens of Irmo, ere she came to Middle-earth. Nightingales sang about her wherever she went. Wisest of the Maya was Olorin. He too dwelt in Lorien, but his ways took him often to the house of Niena, and of her he learned pity and patience. Of Melian much is told in the Quenta Silmarillion, but of Olorin that tale does not speak. For though he loved the elves, he walked among them unseen or in form as one of them, and they did not know whence came the fair visions or the promptings of wisdom that he put into their hearts. In later days he was the friend of all the children of Iluvata, and took pity on their sorrows, and those who listened to him awoke from despair and put away the imaginations of darkness. Of the Enemies Last of all is set the name of Melkor, he who arises in might. But that name he has forfeited, and the Noldor, who among the elves suffered most from his malice, will not utter it, and they name him Morgoth, the dark enemy of the world. Great might was given to him by Ilovata, and he was coeval with Manwe. In the powers and knowledge of all the other Valar he had part, but he turned them to evil purposes, and squandered his strength in violence and tyranny. For he coveted Arda and all that was in it, desiring the kingship of Manwe and dominion over the realms of his peers. From splendor he fell through arrogance to contempt for all things save himself, a spirit wasteful and pitiless. Understanding, he turned to subtlety and perverting to his own will all that he would use, until he became a liar without shame. He began with the desire of light, but when he could not possess it for himself alone, he descended through fire and wrath into a great burning, down into darkness, 
and darkness he used most in his evil works upon Arda, and filled it with fear for all living things. Yet so great was the power of his uprising that in ages forgotten he contended with Manwe and all the Valar, and through long years in Arda held dominion over most of the lands of the earth. But he was not alone. For of the Maya, many were drawn to his splendor in the days of his greatness, and remained in that allegiance down into his darkness. And others he corrupted afterwards to his service with lies and treacherous gifts. Dreadful among these spirits were the Valarauka, the scourges of fire that in Middle-earth were called the Balrogs, demons of terror. Among those of his servants that have names, the greatest was that spirit whom the Eldar called Sauron, or Gothar the Cruel. In his beginning, he was of the Maya of Aule, and he remained mighty in the lore of that people. In all the deeds of Melkor, the Morgoth upon Arda, in his vast works and in the deceits of his cunning, Sauron had a part, and was only less evil than his master, in that for long he served another and not himself. But in after years he rose like a shadow of Morgoth, and a ghost of his malice, and walked behind him on the same ruinous path down into the void. Here ends the Valaquenta. Quenta Silmarillion, the history of the Silmarils. Of the beginning of days. It is told among the wise that the first war began before Arda was full-shaped, and ere yet there was anything that grew or walked upon earth. And for long Melkor had the upper hand. But in the midst of the war, a spirit of great strength and hardihood came to the aid of the Valar, hearing in the far heaven that there was battle in the little kingdom, and Arda was filled with the sound of his laughter. So came Tulkas the Strong, whose anger passes like a mighty wind, scattering cloud and darkness before it. And Melkor fled before his wrath and his laughter, and forsook Arda, and there was peace for a long age. And Tulkast remained and became one of the Valar of the kingdom of Arda. But Melkor brooded in the outer darkness, and his hate was given to Tulkas for ever after. In that time, the Valar brought order to the seas and the lands and the mountains, and Yavanna planted at last the seeds that she had long devised. And since, when the fires were subdued or buried beneath the primeval hills, there was need of light, Aula, at the prayer of Yavanna, wrought two mighty lamps for the lighting of the Middle Earth, which he had built amid the encircling seas. Then Varda filled the lamps, and Manwe hallowed them, and the Valar set them upon high pillars more lofty far 
than are any mountains of the later days. One lamp they raised near to the north of Middle Earth, and it was named Iluin, and the other was raised in the south, and it was named Ormal, and the light of the lamps of the Valar flowed out over the earth, so that all was lit, as it were, in a changeless day. Then the seeds that Yavanna had sown began swiftly to sprout and to burgeon, and there arose a multitude of growing things great and small, mosses and grasses and great ferns, and trees whose tops were crowned with cloud as they were living mountains, but whose feet were wrapped in a green twilight. And beasts came forth, and dwelt in the grassy plains, or in the rivers and the lakes, or walked in the shadows of the woods. As yet no flower had bloomed, nor any bird had sung, for these things waited still their time in the bosom of Yavanna. But wealth there was of her imaginings, and nowhere more rich than in the midmost parts of the earth, where the light of both the lamps met and blended. And there upon the Isle of Almaren, in the great lake, was the first dwelling of the Valar, when all things were young. And new-made green was yet a marvel in the eyes of the makers, and they were long content. Now it came to pass that while the Valar rested from their labours and watched the growth and unfolding of the things that they had devised and begun, Manwe ordained a great feast, and the Valar and all their host came at his bidding. But Aule and Tulkas were weary, for the craft of Aule and the strength of Tulkas had been at the service of all without ceasing in the days of their labour, and Melkor knew of all that was done, for even then he had secret friends and spies among the Maya, whom he had converted to his cause, and far off in the darkness he was filled with hatred, being jealous of the work of his peers, whom he desired to make subject to himself. Therefore he gathered to himself spirits out of the halls of Ea that he had perverted to his service, and he deemed himself strong. And seeing now his time, he drew near again to Arda, and looked down upon it, and the beauty of the earth in its spring filled him the more with hate. Now therefore the Valar were gathered upon Almaren, fearing no evil, and because of the light of Iluin, they did not perceive the shadow in the north that was cast from afar by Melkor, for he was grown dark as the night of the void. And it is sung that in that feast of the spring of Arda, Tulkas espoused Nessa, the sister of Orome, and she danced before the Valar upon the green grass of Almaren. Then Tulkas slept, being weary and content, and Melkor deemed that his hour had come. And he passed therefore over the walls of the night with his host, and came to Middle-earth far in the north, and the Valar were not aware of him. Now Melkor began the delving and building of a vast fortress deep under earth, beneath dark mountains where the beams of Illuin were cold and dim. That stronghold was named Utumno, and though the Valar knew naught of it as yet, nonetheless the evil of Melkor and the blight of his hatred flowed out thence, and the spring of Arda was marred. Green things fell sick and rotted, and rivers were choked with weeds and slime. 
and fens were made, rank and poisonous, the breeding place of flies, and forests grew dark and perilous, the haunts of fear, and beasts became monsters of horn and ivory, and dyed the earth with blood. Then the Valar knew indeed that Melkor was at work again, and they sought for his hiding place. But Melkor, trusting in the strength of Utomno and the might of his servants, came forth suddenly to war, and struck the first blow ere the Valar were prepared. And he assailed the lights of Illuin and Ormel, and cast down their pillars, and broke their lamps. In the overthrow of the mighty pillars, lands were broken, and seas arose in tumult. And when the lamps were spilled, destroying flame was poured out over the earth. And the shape of Arda, and the symmetry of its waters and its lands, was marred in that time, so that the first designs of the Valar were never after restored. In the confusion and the darkness, Melkor escaped, though fear fell upon him. For above the roaring of the seas he heard the voice of Manwe as a mighty wind, and the earth trembled beneath the feet of Tulkas. But he came to Otumno ere Tulkas could overtake him, and there he lay hid. And the Valar could not at that time overcome him, for the greater part of their strength was needed to restrain the tumults of the earth, and to save from ruin all that could be saved of their labour. And afterwards they feared to rend the earth again, until they knew where the children of Ilovata were dwelling, who were yet to come in a time that was hidden from the Valar. Thus ended the spring of Arda. The dwelling of the Valar upon Almaren was utterly destroyed, and they had no abiding place upon the face of the earth. Therefore they departed from Middle-earth and went to the land of Amman, the westernmost of all lands upon the borders of the world. For its west shores looked upon the outer sea that is called by the elves Echaia, encircling the kingdom of Arda. How wide is that sea none knew but the Valar, and beyond it are the walls of the night. But the east shores of Amman were the uttermost end of Belaguer, the great sea of the west. And since Melkor was returned to Middle-earth, and they could not yet overcome him, the Valar fortified their dwellings, and upon the shores of the sea they raised the Pelori, the mountains of Amman, highest upon earth. And above all the mountains of the Pelori was that height upon whose summit Manwe set his throne. Taniquetil the elves named that holy mountain, and Oyolasa everlasting whiteness, and Elarina crowned with stars, and many names beside. But the Sindar spoke of it in their later tongue as Amon Uilas. From their halls upon Taniquetil, Manwe and Varda could look out across the earth, even into the furthest east. Behind the walls of the Pelori, the Valar established their domain in that region which is called Valinor, and there were their houses, their gardens, and their towers. In that guarded land, the Valar gathered great store of light, and all the fairest things that were saved from the ruin, and many others yet fairer they made anew, and Valinor became more beautiful even than Middle-earth in the spring of Arda, and it was blessed 
for the deathless dwelt there. And there naught faded nor withered, neither was there any stain upon flower or leaf in that land, nor any corruption or sickness in anything that lived. For the very stones and waters were hallowed. And when Valinor was full wrought, and the mansions of the Valar were established, in the midst of the plain beyond the mountains they built their city, Valmar of many bells. Before its western gate there was a green mound, Ezoloha, that is named also Karalaira. And Yavanna hallowed it, and she sat there long upon the green grass and sang a song of power, in which was set all her thought of things that grow in the earth. But Nienna thought in silence, and watered the mound with tears. In that time the Valar were gathered together to hear the song of Yavanna, and they sat silent upon their thrones of council, in the Mahanaxa, the Ring of Doom, near to the golden gates of Valmar. And Yavanna Kemantari, sang before them, and they watched. And as they watched, upon the mound there came forth two slender shoots, and silence was over all the world in that hour, nor was there any other sound save the chanting of Yavanna. Under her song the saplings grew and became fair and tall and came to flower, and thus there awoke in the world the two trees of Valinor. Of all things which Yavanna made, they have most renown, and about their fate and all the tales of the elder days are woven. The one had leaves of dark green, that beneath were a shining silver, and from each of his countless flowers a dew of silver light was ever falling, and the earth beneath was dappled with the shadows of his fluttering leaves. The other bore leaves of a young green, like the new-opened beech. Their edges were of glittering gold. Flowers swung upon her branches in clusters of yellow flame, formed each to a glowing horn that spilled a golden rain upon the ground. And from the blossom of that tree there came forth warmth and a great light. Telperion, the one, was called in Valinor, and Silpion, and Ninquilote, and many other names. But Laurelin the other was, and Malinalda, and Colurian, and many names in song beside. In seven hours the glory of each tree waxed to full and waned again to naught, and each awoke once more to life an hour before the other ceased to shine. Thus in Valinor twice every day there came a gentle hour of softer light when both trees were faint and their gold and silver beams were mingled. Telperion was the elder of the trees and came first to full stature and to bloom. And that first hour in which he shone, the white glimmer of a silver dawn, the Valar reckoned not into the tale of hours, but named it the opening hour and counted from it the ages of their reign in Valinor. Therefore, at the sixth hour of the first day, and of all the joyful days thereafter, until the darkening of Valinor, Telperion ceased his time of flower, and at the twelfth hour, Laurelin her blossoming, 
and each day of the Valar in Amman contained twelve hours and ended with the second mingling of the lights, in which Laurelin was waning, but Telperion was waxing. But the light that was spilled from the trees endured long, ere it was taken up into the airs or sank down into the earth. And the dews of Telperion and the rain that fell from Laurelin Varda hoarded in great vats like shining lakes that were to all the land of the Valar as wells of water and of light. Thus began the days of the bliss of Valinor, and thus began also the count of time. But as the ages drew on to the hour appointed by Ilovata for the coming of the firstborn, Middle-earth lay in a twilight beneath the stars that Varda had wrought in the ages forgotten of her labours in Ea. And in the darkness Melkor dwelt, and still often walked abroad in many shapes of power and fear, and he wielded cold and fire from the tops of the mountains to the deep furnaces that are beneath them. And whatsoever was cruel or violent or deadly in those days is laid to his charge. From the beauty and bliss of Valinor, the Valar came seldom over the mountains to Middle-earth, but gave to the land beyond the Pelori their care and their love. And in the midst of the blessed realm were the mansions of Aule, and there he laboured long. For in the making of all things in that land he had the chief part, and he wrought there many beautiful and shapely works, both openly and in secret. Of him comes the law and knowledge of the earth and of all things that it contains, whether the law of those things that make not, but seek only for the understanding of what is, or the law of all craftsmen, the weaver, the shaper of wood, and the worker in metals, and the tiller and husbandman also, though these last and all that deal with things that grow and bear fruit must look also to the spouse of Aule, Yavanna Kementari. Aule it is, who is named the friend of the Noldor, for of him they learned much in after days, and they are the most skilled of the elves, and in their own fashion according to the gifts which Iluvata gave to them, they added much to his teaching, delighting in tongues and in scripts, and in the figures of broidery, of drawing, and of carving. The Noldor also it was who first achieved the making of gems, and the fairest of all gems were the Silmarils, and they are lost. But Manwe Sulimo, highest and holiest of the Valar, sat upon the borders of Amman, forsaking not in his thought the outer lands. For his throne was set in majesty upon the pinnacle of Taniquetil, the highest of the mountains of the world, standing upon the margin of the sea, Spirits in the shape of hawks and eagles flew ever to and from his halls. And their eyes could see to the depths of the seas and pierce the hidden caverns beneath the world. Thus they brought word to him of well-nigh all that passed in Arda. Yet some things were hidden even from the eyes of Manwe and the servants of Manwe. For where Melkor sat in his dark thought, impenetrable shadows lay. Manwe has no thought for his own honour, and is not jealous of his power, but rules all to peace. The Vanya he loved best of all the elves, 
and of him they received song and poetry, for poetry is the delight of Manwe, and the song of words is his music. His raiment is blue, and blue is the fire of his eyes, and his scepter is of sapphire, which the Noldor wrought for him. And he was appointed to be the vice-regent of Iluvata, king of the world of Valar and elves and men, and the chief defence against the evil of Melkor. With Manwe dwelt Varda the most beautiful, she who in the Sindarin tongue is named Elbereth, queen of the Valar, maker of the stars, and with them were a great host of spirits in blessedness. But Ulmo was alone, and he abode not in Valinor, nor ever came thither, unless there were need for a great council. He dwelt from the beginning of Arda in the outer ocean, and still he dwells there. Thence he governs the flowing of all waters, and the ebbing, the courses of all rivers, and the replenishment of springs, the distilling of all dews and rain in every land beneath the sky. In the deep places he gives thought to music great and terrible, and the echo of that music runs through all the veins of the world in sorrow and in joy. For if joyful is the fountain that rises in the sun, its springs are in the wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundation of the earth. The Teleri learned much of Ulmo, and for this reason their music has both sadness and enchantment. Salma came with him to Arda, he who made the horns of Ulmo that none may ever forget who once has heard them, and Asse and Unen also, to whom he gave the government of the waves and the movement of the inner seas and many other spirits beside. And thus it was by the power of Ulmo that even under the darkness of Melkor life coursed still through many secret loads, and the earth did not die. And to all who were lost in that darkness or wandered far from the light of the Valar, the ear of Ulmo was ever open. Nor has he ever forsaken Middle-earth, and whatsoever may since have befallen of ruin or of change, he has not ceased to take thought for it and will not until the end of days. And in that time of dark, Yavanna also was unwilling utterly to forsake the outer lands. For all things that grow are dear to her, and she mourned for the works that she had begun in Middle-earth, that Melkor had marred. Therefore, leaving the house of Aule and the flowering meads of Valinor, she would come at times and heal the hurts of Melkor. And returning, she would ever urge the Valar to that war with his evil dominion, that they must surely wage ere the coming of the firstborn. And Orome, tamer of beasts, would ride too at whiles in the darkness of the unlit forests. As a mighty hunter, he came with spear and bow, pursuing to the death the monsters and fell creatures of the kingdom of Melkor. And his white horse Naha shone like silver in the shadows. Then the sleeping earth trembled at the beat of his golden hooves, and in the twilight of the world Orme would sound Valaroma, his great horn, upon the plains of Arda, whereat the mountains echoed and the shadow of evil fled away, and Melkor himself quailed in Utumno, foreboding the wrath to come. But even as Orome passed, 
the servants of Melkor would gather again, and the lands were filled with shadows and deceit. Now all is said concerning the manner of the earth and its rulers in the beginning of days, and ere the world became such as the children of Ilovata have known it. For elves and men are the children of Ilovata, and since they understood not fully that theme by which the children entered into the music, none of the Ainur dared to add anything to their fashion. For which reason... The Valar are to these kindreds rather their elders and their chieftains than their masters. And if ever in their dealings with elves and men the Ainur have endeavoured to force them when they would not be guided, seldom has this turned to good, howsoever good the intent. The dealings of the Ainur have indeed been mostly with the elves, for Ilovata made them more like in nature to the Ainur, though less in might and stature. Whereas to men he gave strange gifts. For it is said that after the departure of the Valar there was silence, and for an age Ilovata sat alone in thought. Then he spoke and said, Behold, I love the earth, which shall be a mansion for the Quendi and the Atani. But the Quendi shall be the fairest of all earthly creatures, and they shall have and shall conceive and bring forth more beauty than all my children, and they shall have the greater bliss in this world. But to the Atani I will give a new gift. Therefore he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world, and should find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. And of their operation, everything should be in form and deed completed, and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. But Ulovata knew that men, being set amid the turmoils of the powers of the world, would stray often, and would not use their gifts in harmony. And he said, these two in their time shall find that all that they do redounds at the end only to the glory of my work. Yet the elves believe that men are often a grief to Manwe, who knows most of the mind of Ilovata. For it seems to the elves that men resembled Melkor most of all the Ainur, although he has ever feared and hated them, even those that served him. It is one with this gift of freedom that the children of men dwell only a short space in the world alive, and are not bound to it, and depart soon, whither the elves know not. Whereas the elves remain until the end of days, and their love of the earth and all the world is more single and more poignant therefore, and as the years lengthen ever more sorrowful. For the elves die not till the world dies unless they are slain or waste in grief, and to both these seeming deaths they are subject. Neither does age subdue their strength, unless one grow weary of ten thousand centuries, and dying they are gathered to the halls of Mandos in Valinor, whence they may in time return. But the sons of men die indeed, and leave the world. Wherefore, they are called the guests, 
or the strangers. Death is their fate, the gift of Iluvata, which as time wears even the powers shall envy. But Melkor has cast his shadow upon it, and confounded it with darkness, and brought forth evil out of good, and fear out of hope. Yet of old the Valar declared to the elves in Valinor that men shall join in the second music of the Ainur. Whereas Ilovata has not revealed what he purposes for the elves after the world's end, and Melkor has not discovered it. Of Aula and Yavanna It is told that in their beginning the dwarves were made by Aula in the darkness of Middle-earth. For so greatly did Aula desire the coming of the children, to have learners to whom he could teach his lore and his crafts, that he was unwilling to await the fulfilment of the designs of Iluvata. And Aula made the dwarves even as they still are, because the forms of the children who were to come were unclear to his mind, and because the power of Melkor was yet over the earth. And he wished, therefore, that they should be strong and unyielding. But fearing that the other Valar might blame his work, he wrought in secret, and he made first the seven fathers of the dwarves in a hall under the mountains in Middle-earth. Now Iluvata knew what was done, and in the very hour that Aula's work was complete, and he was pleased, and began to instruct the dwarves in the speech that he had devised for them, Iluvata spoke to him, and Aula heard his voice and was silent. And the voice of Iluvata said to him, Why hast thou done this? Why dost thou attempt a thing which thou knowest is beyond thy power and thy authority? For thou hast from me as a gift thy own being only, and no more. And therefore the creatures of thy hand and mind can live only by that being, moving when thou thinkest to move them. And if thy thought be elsewhere standing idle, is that thy desire? Then Aula answered, I did not desire such lordship. I desired things other than I am, to love and to teach them, so that they too might perceive the beauty of Ea, which thou hast caused to be. For it seemed to me that there is great room in Arda for many things that might rejoice in it, yet it is for the most part empty still and dumb. And in my impatience I have fallen into folly. Yet the making of things is in my heart from my own making by thee. And the child of little understanding that makes a play of the deeds of his father may do so without thought of mockery, but because he is the son of his father. But what shall I do now, so that thou be not angry with me for ever? As a child to his father, I offer to thee these things the work of the hands which thou hast made. Do with them what thou wilt. But should I not rather destroy the work of my presumption? Then Aula took up a great hammer to smite the dwarves, and he wept. But Iluvata had compassion upon Aula and his desire because of his humility. And the dwarves shrank from the hammer and were afraid, and they bowed down their heads and begged for mercy. And the voice of Ilovata said to Aula, 
Thy offer I accepted even as it was made. Dost thou not see that these things have now a life of their own and speak with their own voices? Else they would not have flinched from thy blow, nor from any command of thy will. Then Aula cast down his hammer, and was glad, and he gave thanks to Ilovata, saying, May Eru bless my work, and amend it. But Ilovata spoke again, and said, Even as I gave being to the thoughts of the Ainur at the beginning of the world, so now I have taken up thy desire and given to it a place therein. But in no other way will I amend thy handiwork, and as thou hast made it, so shall it be. But I will not suffer this, that these should come before the firstborn of my design, nor that thy impatience should be rewarded. They shall sleep now in the darkness under stone, and shall not come forth until the firstborn have awakened upon earth. And until that time thou and they shall wait, though long it seem. But when the time comes, I will awaken them, and they shall be to thee as children, and often strife shall arise between thine and mine, the children of my adoption, and the children of my choice. Then Aula took the seven fathers of the dwarves, and laid them to rest in far-stundered places, and he returned to Valinor, and waited while the long years lengthened. Since they were to come in the days of the power of Melkor, Aula made the dwarves strong to endure. Therefore they are stone-hard, stubborn, fast in friendship and in enmity, and they suffer toil and hunger and hurt of body more hardily than all other speaking peoples. And they live long, far beyond the span of men, yet not forever. Aforetime it was held among the elves in Middle-earth that dying the dwarves returned to the earth and the stone of which they were made. Yet that is not their own belief, for they say that Aula, the maker, whom they call Mahal, cares for them and gathers them to Mandos in halls set apart, and that he declared to their fathers of old that Iluvata will hallow them and give them a place among the children in the end. Then their part shall be to serve Aula and to aid him in the remaking of Arda after the last battle. They say also that the seven fathers of the dwarves return to live again in their own kin and to bear once more their ancient names, of whom Durin was the most renowned in after ages, father of that kindred most friendly to the elves, whose mansions were at Khazad Doom. Now when Aula laboured in the making of the dwarves, he kept his work hidden from the other Valar. But at last he opened his mind to Yavanna, and told her of all that had come to pass. Then Yavanna said to him, Eru is merciful. Now I see that thy heart rejoiceth, as indeed it may, for thou hast received not only forgiveness, but bounty. Yet because thou hiddest this thought from me until its achievement, thy children will have little love for the things of my love. They will love first the things made by their own hands, as doth their father. They will delve in the earth, and the things that grow and live upon the earth they will not heed. 
Many a tree shall feel the bite of their iron without pity. But Aula answered, That shall also be true of the children of Iluvata, for they will eat and they will build. And though the things of thy realm have worth in themselves and would have worth if no children were to come, yet Eru will give them dominion. And they shall use all that they find in Arda, though not by the purpose of Eru, without respect or without gratitude. Not unless Melkor darken their hearts, said Yavanna. And she was not appeased, but grieved in heart, fearing what might be done upon Middle-earth in days to come. Therefore she went before Manwe, and she did not betray the counsel of Aule, but she said, King of Arda, is it true, as Aula hath said to me, that the children, when they come, shall have dominion over all the things of my labor, to do as they will therewith? It is true, said Manwe. But why dost thou ask, for thou hadst no need of the teaching of Aule? Then Yavanna was silent and looked into her own thought, and she answered, Because my heart is anxious, thinking of the days to come. All my works are dear to me. Is it not enough that Melkor should have marred so many? Shall nothing that I have devised be free from the dominion of others? If thou hadst thy will, what wouldst thou reserve? said Manwe. Of all thy realm, what dost thou hold dearest? All have their worth, said Yavanna, and each contributes to the worth of the others. But the Kelvar can flee or defend themselves, whereas the Olvar that grow cannot, and among these I hold trees dear. Long in the growing, swift shall they be in the felling, and unless they pay toll with fruit upon bough little mourned in their passing. So I see in my thought, would that the trees might speak on behalf of all things that have roots, and punish those that wrong them. This is a strange thought, said Manwe. Yet it was in the song, said Yavanna. For while thou wert in the heavens, and with Ulmo built the clouds and poured out the rains, I lifted up the branches of great trees to receive them, and some sang to Iluvata amid the wind and the rain. Then Manwe sat silent, and the thought of Yavanna that she had put into his heart grew and unfolded and it was beheld by Iluvata. Then it seemed to Manwe that the song rose once more about him, and he heeded now many things therein that though he had heard them he had not heeded before. And at last the vision was renewed, but it was not now remote, for he was himself within it, and yet he saw that all was upheld by the hand of Iluvata, and the hand entered in and from it came forth many wonders that had until then been hidden from him in the hearts of the Ainur. Then Manwe awoke, and he went down to Yavanna upon Ezelohar, and he sat beside her beneath the two trees. And Manwe said, O Kementari, Eru hath spoken, saying, Do then any of the Valar suppose that I did not hear all the song? even the least sound of the least voice? Behold, when the children awake, 
then the thought of Yavanna will awake also, and it will summon spirits from afar, and they will go among the Kelva and the Olva. And some will dwell therein, and be held in reverence, and their just anger shall be feared. For a time, while the firstborn are in their power, and while the secondborn are young. But dost thou not remember, Kementari, that thy thought sang not always alone? Did not thy thought and mine meet also, so that we took wing together, like great birds that soar above the clouds? That also shall come to be by the heed of Ilovata, and before the children awake, there shall go forth with wings like the wind the eagles of the lords of the west. Then Yavanna was glad, and she stood up, reaching her arms towards the heavens, and she said, High shall climb the trees of Kemantari, that the eagles of the king may house therein. But Manwe rose also, and it seemed that he stood to such a height that his voice came down to Yavanna as from the paths of the winds. Nay, he said, only the trees of Aula will be tall enough. In the mountains the eagles shall house, and hear the voices of those who call upon us. But in the forests shall walk the shepherds of the trees. Then Manwe and Yavanna parted for that time, and Yavanna returned to Aula, and he was in his smithy pouring molten metal into a mould. Eru is bountiful, she said. Now let thy children beware, for there shall walk a power in the forests whose wrath they will arouse at their peril. Nonetheless, they will have need of wood, said Aula, and he went on with his smith work. Of the Coming of the Elves and the Captivity of Melkor through long ages the Valar dwelt in bliss in the light of the trees beyond the mountains of Ammon, but all Middle-earth lay in twilight under the stars. While the lamps had shone, growth began there which now was checked, because all was again dark. But already the oldest living things had arisen, in the seas the great weeds, and on earth the shadow of great trees and in the valleys of the night-clad hills there were dark creatures old and strong. To those lands and forests the Valar seldom came, save only Yavanna and Oroma. And Yavanna would walk there in the shadows, grieving, because the growth and promise of the spring of Arda was stayed. And she set asleep upon many things that had arisen in the spring, so that they should not age, but should wait for a time of awakening that yet should be. But in the north, Melkor built his strength, and he slept not, but watched and labored. And the evil things that he had perverted walked abroad, and the dark and slumbering woods were haunted by monsters and shapes of dread. And in Otomno, he gathered his demons about him, those spirits who first adhered to him in the days of his splendor and became most like him in his corruption. Their hearts were of fire, but they were cloaked in darkness, and terror went before them. They had whips of flame. 
Balrogs, they were named in Middle-earth in later days. And in that dark time, Melkor bred many other monsters of divers shapes and kinds that long troubled the world. And his realm spread now ever southward over Middle-earth. And Melkor made also a fortress and armory not far from the northwestern shores of the sea, to resist any assault that might come from Ammon. That stronghold was commanded by Sauron, lieutenant of Melkor, and it was named Angband. It came to pass that the Valar held council, for they became troubled by the tidings that Yavanna and Oreme brought from the outer lands. And Yavanna spoke before the Valar, saying, Ye mighty of Arda, the vision of Ilovata was brief and soon taken away, so that maybe we cannot guess within a narrow count of days the hour appointed. Yet be sure of this. The hour approaches, and within this age our hope shall be revealed, and the children shall awake. Shall we then leave the lands of their dwelling desolate and full of evil? Shall they walk in darkness while we have light? Shall they call Melkor Lord while Manwe sits upon Tani Quetil? And Tolkas cried, Nay, let us make war swiftly. Have we not rested from strife over long, and is not our strength now renewed? Shall one alone contest with us forever? But at the bidding of Manwe, Mandos spoke, and he said, In this age, the children of Ilovata shall come indeed, but they come not yet. Moreover, it is doomed that the firstborn shall come in the darkness, and shall look first upon the stars. Great light shall be for their waning. To Vada ever shall they call at need. Then Vada went forth from the council, and she looked out from the height of Taniquetil, and beheld the darkness of Middle-earth beneath the innumerable stars, faint and far. Then she began a great labor, greatest of all the works of the Valar since their coming into Arda. She took the silver dews from the vats of Telperion, and therewith she made new stars, and brighter against the coming of the firstborn. Wherefore, she whose name out of the deeps of time and the labors of Ea was Tintala, the kindler, was called after by the elves Elantari, queen of the stars, Carnil, and Luinil, Nena, and Lumbar, Alcarinque, and Elamira she wrought in that time, and many other of the ancient stars she gathered together and set as signs in the heavens of Arda. Wilwarin, Telumendil, Soronume, and Anarima, and Menelmaka, with his shining belt that forebodes the last battle that shall be at the end of days. And high in the north, as a challenge to Melkor, she set the crown of seven mighty stars to swing. Valakirka, the sickle of the Valar, and sign of doom. It is told that even as Varda ended her labors, and they were long, when first Menelmaka strode up the sky, and the blue fire of Heluin flickered in the mists above the borders of the world, in that hour 
the children of the earth awoke, the firstborn of Ilovata. By the starlit mirror of Kuivienin, water of awakening, they rose from the sleep of Ilovata. And while they dwelt yet silent by Kuivienin, their eyes beheld first of all things the stars of heaven. Therefore they have ever loved the starlight, and have revered Varda Elantari above all the Valar. In the changes of the world the shapes of lands and of seas have been broken and remade. Rivers have not kept their courses, neither have mountains remained steadfast. And to Quivienen there is no returning. But it is said among the elves that it lay far off in the east of Middle-earth, and northward, and it was a bay in the inland sea of Helkar. And that sea stood where aforetime the roots of the mountain of Iluin had been before Melkor overthrew it. Many waters flowed down thither from heights in the east, and the first sound that was heard by the elves was the sound of water flowing, and the sound of water falling over stone. Long they dwelt in their first home by the water under stars, and they walked the earth in wonder, and they began to make speech and to give names to all things that they perceived. Themselves they named the Quendi, signifying those that speak with voices, for as yet they had met no other living things that spoke or sang. And on a time it chanced that Arame rode eastward in his hunting, and he turned north by the shores of Helka and passed under the shadows of the Orokani, the mountains of the east. Then on a sudden Naha set up a great neighing and stood still, and Orame wondered and sat silent, and it seemed to him that in the quiet of the land under the stars he heard afar off many voices singing. Thus it was that the Valar found at last, as it were by chance, those whom they had so long awaited. And Orame, looking upon the elves, was filled with wonder, as though they were beings sudden and marvellous and unforeseen, for so it shall ever be with the Valar. From without the world, though all things may be forethought in music or foreshown in vision from afar, to those who enter verily into air, each in its time shall be met at unawares as something new and unforetold. In the beginning, the elder children of Ilovata were stronger and greater than they have since become, but not more fair. For though the beauty of the Quendi in the days of their youth was beyond all other beauty that Ilovata had caused to be, it has not perished but lives in the West, and sorrow and wisdom have enriched it. And Orame loved the Quendi, and named them in their own tongue Eldar, the people of the stars. But that name was after born only by those who followed him upon the westward road. Yet many of the Quendi were filled with dread at his coming, and this was the doing of Melkor. For by after knowledge the wise declare that Melkor, ever watchful, was first aware of the awakening of the Quendi, and sent shadows and evil spirits to spy upon them and waylay them. So it came to pass some years ere the coming of Orome, that if any of the elves strayed far abroad, alone or few together, they would often vanish and never return. And the Quendi said that the hunter had caught them, and they were afraid.
and indeed the most ancient songs of the elves, of which echoes are remembered still in the West, tell of the shadow shapes that walked in the hills above Quivienen, or would pass suddenly over the stars. And of the dark rider upon his wild horse that pursued those that wandered to take them and devour them. Now Melkor greatly hated and feared the riding of Orome, and either he sent indeed his dark servants as riders, or he set lying whispers abroad for the purpose that the Quendi should shun Orome, if ever they should meet. Thus it was that when Naha neighed, and Orome indeed came among them, some of the Quendi hid themselves, and some fled and were lost. But those that had courage and stayed perceived swiftly that the great rider was no shape out of darkness, for the light of Ammon was in his face, and all the noblest of the elves were drawn towards it. But of those unhappy ones who were ensnared by Melkor, little is known of a certainty. For who of the living has descended into the pits of Otomno, or has explored the darkness of the councils of Melkor? Yet this is held true by the wise of Eresia, that all those of the Quendi who came into the hands of Melkor, ere Otomno was broken, were put there in prison, and by slow arts of cruelty were corrupted and enslaved. And thus did Melkor breed the hideous race of the orcs, in envy and mockery of the elves, of whom they were afterwards the bitterest foes. For the orcs had life, and multiplied after the manner of the children of Iluvata. Nought that had life of its own, nor the semblance of life, could ever Melkor make since his rebellion in the Ainulindala before the beginning. So say the wise. And deep in their dark hearts the orcs loathed the master whom they served in fear, the maker only of their misery. This, it may be, was the vilest deed of Melkor, and the most hateful to Iluvata. Aramis stayed a while among the Quendi, and then swiftly he rode back over land and sea to Valinor, and brought the tidings to Valmar, and he spoke of the shadows that troubled Quivienen. Then the Valar rejoiced, and yet they were in doubt amid their joy, and they debated long what counsel it were best to take for the guarding of the Quendi from the shadow of Melkor. But Arime returned at once to Middle-earth and abode with the elves. Manwe sat long in thought upon Taniquetil, and he sought the counsel of Iluvata. And coming then down to Valmar, he summoned the Valar to the Ring of Doom, and thither came even Ulmo from the outer sea. Then Manwe said to the Valar, This is the counsel of Iluvatar in my heart, that we should take up again the mastery of Arda, at whatsoever cost, and deliver the Quendi from the shadow of Melkor. Then Tulkas was glad, but Aule was grieved, foreboding the hurts of the world that must come of that strife. But the Valar made ready, and came forth from Amman in strength of war, resolving to assault the fortresses of Melkor and make an end. Never did Melkor forget that this war was made for the sake of the elves, and that they were the cause of his downfall. Yet they had no part in those deeds, and they know little of the riding of the might of the west against the north, 
in the beginning of their days. Melkor met the onset of the Valar in the northwest of Middle-earth, and all that region was much broken. But the first victory of the hosts of the west was swift, and the servants of Melkor fled before them to Otomno. Then the Valar passed over Middle-earth, and they set a guard over Quivienen, and thereafter the Quendi knew nothing of the great battle of the powers, save that the earth shook and groaned beneath them, and the waters were moved, and in the north there were lights as of mighty fires. Long and grievous was the siege of Utomno, and many battles were fought before its gates, of which naught but the rumour is known to the elves. In that time the shape of Middle-earth was changed, and the great sea that sundered it from Ammon grew wide and deep and it broke in upon the coasts and made a deep gulf to the southward. Many lesser bays were made between the great gulf and Helcaraxa far in the north, where Middle-earth and Ammon came nigh together. Of these, the Bay of Balar was the chief, and into it the mighty river Sirion flowed down from the new-raised highlands northwards. Dorthonion and the mountains about Hithlam, the lands of the far north were all made desolate in those days, for there Otumno was delved exceeding deep, and its pits were filled with fires and with great hosts of the servants of Melkor. But at the last the gates of Otumno were broken, and the halls unroofed, and Melkor took refuge in the uttermost pit. Then Tulkas stood forth as champion of the Valar, and wrestled with him, and cast him upon his face, and he was bound with the chain and gynor that Aula had wrought, and led captive, and the world had peace for a long age. Nonetheless, the Valar did not discover all the mighty vaults and caverns hidden with deceit far under the fortresses of Angband and Utomno. Many evil things still lingered there, and others were dispersed and fled into the dark, and roamed in the waste places of the world awaiting a more evil hour. And Sauron they did not find. But when the battle was ended, and from the ruin of the north great clouds arose and hid the stars, the Valar drew Melkor back to Valinor, bound hand and foot and blindfold, and he was brought to the Ring of Doom. There he lay upon his face before the feet of Manwe and sued for pardon. But his prayer was denied, and he was cast into prison in the fastness of Mandos, whence none can escape, neither Valar, nor Elf, nor mortal man. Vast and strong are those halls, and they were built in the west of the land of Ammon. There was Melkor doomed to abide for three ages long before his cause should be tried anew, or he should plead again for pardon. Then again the Valar were gathered in council, and they were divided in debate. For some, and of those Ulmo was the chief, held that the Quendi should be left free to walk as they would in Middle-earth, and with their gifts of skill to order all the lands and heal their hurts. But the most part feared for the Quendi in the dangerous world amid the deceits of the starlit dusk and they were filled, moreover, with the love of the beauty of the elves, and desired their fellowship. At the last, therefore, the Valar summoned the Quendi to Valinor, 
there to be gathered at the knees of the powers in the light of the trees forever. And Mandos broke his silence, saying, So it is doomed. From this summons came many woes that afterwards befell. But the elves were at first unwilling to hearken to the summons, for they had as yet seen the valour only in their wrath as they went to war, save Arame alone, and they were filled with dread. Therefore Arame was sent again to them, and he chose from among them ambassadors who should go to Valinor and speak for their people, and these were Ingwe, Finwe, and Elwe, who afterwards were kings. And coming they were filled with awe by the glory and majesty of the Valar, and desired greatly the light and splendor of the trees. Then Orome brought them back to Quivienen, and they spoke before their people, and counseled them to heed the summons of the Valar, and remove into the west. Then befell the first sundering of the elves. For the kindred of Ingwe, and the most part of the kindreds of Finwe and Elwe, were swayed by the words of their lords, and were willing to depart and follow Oreme. And these were known ever after as the Eldar, by the name that Oreme gave to the elves in the beginning, in their own tongue. But many refused the summons, preferring the starlight and the wide spaces of Middle-earth to the rumour of the trees. And these are the Avari, the unwilling, and they were sundered in that time from the Eldar, and met never again until many ages were past. The Eldar prepared now a great march from their first homes in the east, and they were arrayed in three hosts. The smallest host and the first to set forth was led by Ingwe, the most high lord of all the elvish race. He entered into Valinor and sits at the feet of the powers, and all elves revere his name. But he came never back, nor looked again upon Middle-earth. The Vanyar were his people. They are the fair elves, the beloved of Manwe and Varda, and few among men have spoken with them. Next came the Noldor, a name of wisdom, the people of Finwe. They are the deep elves, the friends of Aule, and they are renowned in song, for they fought and laboured long and grievously in the northern lands of old. The greatest host came last, and they are named the Teleri, for they tarried on the road, and were not wholly of a mind to pass from the dusk to the light of Valinor. In water they had great delight, and those that came at last to the western shores were enamoured of the sea. The sea-elves, therefore, they became in the land of Amman, the Falmari, for they made music beside the breaking waves. Two lords they had, for their numbers were great, Elwe Singolo, which signifies grey mantle, and Olwe, his brother. These were the three kindreds of the Eldalia, who, passing at length into the uttermost west in the days of the trees, are called the Calaquendi, Elves of the Light. But others of the Eldar there were who set out indeed upon the westward march, but became lost upon the long road, or turned aside, or lingered on the shores of Middle-earth. And these were for the most part of the kindred of the Teleri, as is told hereafter. They dwelt by the sea, or wandered in the woods and mountains of the world, yet their hearts were turned towards the west.' 
those elves the Kalakwendi called the Umanya, since they came never to the land of Aman and the Blessed Realm. But the Umanya and the Avari alike they call the Morikwendi, elves of the darkness, for they never beheld the light that was before the sun and moon. It is told that when the hosts of the Eldalia departed from Quivienen, Arame rode at their head upon Naha, his white horse shod with gold. And passing northward about the sea of Helkar, they turned towards the west. Before them great clouds hung still black in the north above the ruins of war, and the stars in that region were hidden. Then not a few grew afraid and repented and turned back and are forgotten. Long and slow was the march of the Eldar into the west, for the leagues of Middle-earth were uncounted and weary and pathless. Nor did the Eldar desire to hasten, for they were filled with wonder at all that they saw, and by many lands and rivers they wished to abide. And though all were yet willing to wander, many feared rather their journey's end than hoped for it. Therefore, whenever Oromo departed, having at times other matters to heed, they halted and went forward no more until he returned to guide them. And it came to pass after many years of journeying in this manner that the Eldar took their course through a forest, and they came to a great river, wider than any they had yet seen, and beyond it were mountains whose sharp horns seemed to pierce the realm of the stars. This river, it is said, was even the river which was after called Anduin the Great, and was ever the frontier of the west lands of Middle-earth. But the mountains were the Hithaglia, the towers of mist upon the borders of Eriador. Yet they were taller and more terrible in those days, and were reared by Melkor to hinder the riding of Orome. Now the Teleri abode long on the east bank of that river, and wished to remain there. But the Vanyar and the Noldor passed over it, and Orome led them into the passes of the mountains. And when Orome was gone forward, the Teleri looked upon the shadowy heights, and were afraid. Then one arose in the host of Olwe, which was ever the hindmost on the road. Lenwe, he was called. He forsook the westward march, and led away a numerous people southwards down the great river, and they passed out of the knowledge of their kin until long years were past. Those were the Nandor, and they became a people apart, unlike their kin, save that they loved water, and dwelt most beside falls and running streams. Greater knowledge they had of living things, tree and herb, bird and beast, than all other elves. In after years, Denethor, son of Lenwe, turned again west at last, and led a part of that people over the mountains into Beleriand, ere the rising of the moon. At length, the Vanyar and the Noldor came over Eredluin, the Blue Mountains, between Eriador and the westernmost land of Middle-earth, which the elves after named Beleriand, and the foremost companies passed over the Vale of Syrian, and came down to the shores of the Great Sea between Drengist and the Bay of Balar. But when they beheld it, great fear came upon them, and many withdrew into the woods and highlands of Beleriand. 
Then Oremed departed and returned to Valinor to seek the counsel of Manwe, and left them. And the host of the Teleri passed over the misty mountains, and crossed the wide lands of Eriador, being urged on by Elwe Singolo. For he was eager to return to Valinor and the light that he had beheld, and he wished not to be sundered from the Noldor, for he had great friendship with Finwe, their lord. Thus, after many years, the Teleri also came at last over Ered Luin into the eastern regions of Beleriand. There they halted and dwelt a while beyond the river Gelion. Of Thingol and Melian Melian was a Maya of the race of the Valar. She dwelt in the gardens of Lorien, and among all his people there were none more beautiful than Melian, nor more wise, nor more skilled in songs of enchantment. It is told that the Valar would leave their works, and the birds of Valinor their mirth, that the bells of Valmar were silent, and the fountains ceased to flow, when, at the mingling of the lights, Melian sang in Lorien. Nightingales went always with her, and she taught them their song, and she loved the deep shadows of the great trees. She was akin before the world was made to Yavanna herself, and in that time when the Quendi awoke beside the waters of Quivienen, she departed from Valinor and came to the Hitherlands, and there she filled the silence of Middle-earth before the dawn with her voice and the voices of her birds. Now when their journey was near its end, as has been told, the people of the Teleri rested long in East Beleriand, beyond the river Gelion. And at that time, many of the Noldor still lay to the westward, in those forests that were afterwards named Neldoreth and Region. Elwe, lord of the Teleri, went often through the great woods to seek out Finwe, his friend in the dwellings of the Noldor. And it chanced on a time that he came alone to the starlit wood of Nan Elmath, and there suddenly he heard the song of nightingales. Then an enchantment fell on him, and he stood still. And afar off, beyond the voices of the Lomalindi, he heard the voice of Melian, and it filled all his heart with wonder and desire. He forgot then utterly all his people and all the purposes of his mind, and following the birds under the shadow of the trees, he passed deep into Nan Elmath and was lost. But he came at last to a glade open to the stars, and there Melian stood. And out of the darkness he looked at her, and the light of Ammon was in her face. She spoke no word, but being filled with love, Elwe came to her and took her hand, and straightway a spell was laid on him, so that they stood thus while long years were measured by the wheeling stars above them, and the trees of Nun Elmath grew tall and dark before they spoke any word. Thus Elwes folk who sought him found him not, and Olwe took the kingship of the Teleri and departed as is told hereafter. Elwe Singolo came never again across the sea to Valinor so long as he lived and Melian returned not thither while their realm together lasted. But of her there came among both elves and men a strain of the Ainur, 
who were with Iluvatar before Ea. In after days he became a king renowned, and his people were all the Eldar of Beleriand. The Cinder they were named, the Grey Elves, the Elves of the Twilight. And King Greymantle was he, Elu Thingol in the tongue of that land. And Melion was his queen, wiser than any child of Middle-earth, and their hidden halls were in Menegroth, the Thousand Caves in Doriath. Great power Melian lent to Thingol, who was himself great among the Eldar, for he alone of all the Sindar had seen with his own eyes the trees in the day of their flowering, and king though he was of Umanyar, he was not accounted among the Moriquendi, but with the elves of the light mighty upon Middle-earth. And of the love of Thingol and Melian, there came into the world the fairest of all the children of Iluvata, that was, or shall ever be. Of Eldamar and the Princes of the Eldalia In time, the hosts of the Vanya and the Noldor came to the last western shores of the Hitherlands. In the north, these shores in the ancient days after the Battle of the Powers bent ever westward, until in the northernmost parts of Arda only a narrow sea divided Amman, upon which Valinor was built, from the Hitherlands. But this narrow sea was filled with grinding ice, because of the violence of the frosts of Melkor. Therefore Orome did not lead the hosts of the Elder Lear into the far north, but brought them to the fair lands about the river Sirion, that afterwards were named Beleriand. And from those shores whence first the Eldar looked in fear and wonder on the sea, there stretched an ocean wide and dark and deep, between them and the mountains of Ammon. Now Ulmo, by the counsel of the Valar, came to the shores of Middle-earth, and spoke with the Eldar who waited there, gazing on the dark waves. And because of his words on the music which he made for them on his horns of shell, their fear of the sea was turned rather to desire. Therefore Ulmo uprooted an island, which long had stood alone amid the sea, far from either shore since the tumults of the fall of Iluin. And with the aid of his servants he moved it, as it were, a mighty ship, and anchored it in the bay of Balar, into which Sirion poured his water. Then the Vanyar and the Noldor embarked upon that isle, and were drawn over the sea, and came at last to the long shores beneath the mountains of Ammon, and they entered Valinor, and were welcomed to its bliss. But the eastern horn of the island, which was deep-grounded in the shoals off the mouths of Syrian, was broken asunder, and remained behind, and that, it is said, was the Isle of Balar, to which afterwards Asa often came. But the Teleri remained still in Middle-earth, for they dwelt in East Beleriand, far from the sea, and they heard not the summons of Ulmo until too late. And many searched still for Elwe, their lord, and without him they were unwilling to depart. But when they learned that Ingwe and Finwe and their peoples were gone, then many of the Teleri pressed on to the shores of Beleriand, and dwelt thereafter near the mouths of Sirion, in longing for their friends that had departed. And they took Olwe, 
Elwe's brother, to be their king. Long they remained by the coasts of the Western Sea, and Osse and Uinen came to them and befriended them. And Osse instructed them, sitting upon a rock near to the margin of the land, and of him they learned all manner of sea lore and sea music. Thus it came to be that the Teleri, who were from the beginning lovers of water and the fairest singers of all the elves, were after enamoured of the seas, and their songs were filled with the sound of waves upon the shore. When many years had passed, Ulmo hearkened to the prayers of the Noldor and of Finwë, their king, who grieved at their long thundering from the Teleri, and besought him to bring them to Ammon, if they would come. And most of them proved now willing indeed. But great was the grief of Osse, when Ulmo returned to the coasts of Beleriand to bear them away to Valinor, for his care was for the seas of Middle-earth and the shores of the hitherlands, and he was ill-pleased that the voices of the Teleri should be heard no more in his domain. Some he persuaded to remain, and those were the Falathrim, the elves of the Phalas, who in after days had dwellings at the havens of Brithombar and Eglarest, the first mariners in Middle-earth and the first makers of ships. Círdan, the shipwright was their lord. The kinsfolk and friends of Elwe Singolo also remained in the hitherlands, seeking him yet, though they would fain have departed to Valinor and the light of the trees, if Ulmo and Alwe had been willing to tarry longer. But Alwe would be gone, and at last the main host of the Teleri embarked upon the isle, and Ulmo drew them far away. Then the friends of Elway were left behind, and they called themselves Eglath, the Forsaken People. They dwelt in the woods and hills of Beleriand, rather than by the sea, which filled them with sorrow, but the desire of Ammon was ever in their hearts. But when Elway awoke from his long trance, he came forth from Nan Elmoth with Melian, and they dwelt thereafter in the woods in the midst of the land. Greatly though he had desired to see again the light of the trees, in the face of Melian he beheld the light of Ammon, as in an unclouded mirror, and in that light he was content. His people gathered about him in joy, and they were amazed, for fair and noble as he had been, now he appeared as it were a lord of the Maya, his hair as grey silver, tallest of all the children of Iluvata and a high doom was before him. Now Osse followed after the host of Olwe, and when they were come to the bay of Eldemar, which is Elvenholm, he called to them, and they knew his voice, and begged Ulmo to stay their voyage. And Ulmo granted their request, and at his bidding Osse made fast the island and rooted it to the foundations of the sea. Ulmo did this the more readily, for he understood the hearts of the Teleri, and in the council of the Valar he had spoken against the summons, thinking that it were better for the Quendi to remain in Middle-earth. The Valar were little pleased to learn what he had done, and Finwë grieved when the Teleri came not, and yet more when he learned that Elwë was forsaken, and knew that he should not see him again unless it were in the halls of Mandos. 
but the island was not moved again, and stood there alone in the bay of Eldamar. And it was called Tol Eresea, the Lonely Isle. There the Teleri abode as they wished under the stars of heaven, and yet within sight of Ammon and the deathless shore. And by that long sojourn apart in the lonely isle was caused the thundering of their speech from that of the Vanya and the Noldor. To these the Valar had given a land and a dwelling-place. Even among the radiant flowers of the tree-lit gardens of Valinor they longed still at times to see the stars, and therefore a gap was made in the great walls of the Pelori. And there, in a deep valley that ran down to the sea, the Eldar raised a high green hill. Tuna, it was called. From the west the light of the trees fell upon it, and its shadow lay ever eastward, and to the east it looked towards the bay of Elvenholm, and the lonely isle, and the shadowy seas. Then through the Calakiria, the pass of light, the radiance of the blessed realm streamed forth, kindling the dark waves to silver and gold, and it touched the lonely isle, and its western shore grew green and fair. There bloomed the first flowers that ever were east of the mountains of Ammon. Upon the crown of Tuna the city of the elves was built, the white walls and terraces of Tyrion. And the highest of the towers of that city was the tower of Ingwe, Mindon Eldalieva, whose silver lamp shone far out into the mists of the sea. Few are the ships of mortal men that have seen its slender beam. In Tyrion, upon Tuna, the Vanyar and the Noldor dwelt long in fellowship. And since of all things in Valinor they loved most the white tree, Yavanna made for them a tree like to a lesser image of Telperion, save that it did not give light of its own being. Galathilion, it was named in the Sindarin tongue. This tree was planted in the courts beneath the Minden, and there flourished, and its seedlings were many in Eldamar. Of these one was afterwards planted in Tal Eresir, and it prospered there, and was named Celeborn. Thence came in the fullness of time, as is elsewhere told, Nimloth, the white tree of Numenor. Manwe and Vada loved most the Vanya, the fair elves. But the Noldor were beloved of Aula, and he and his people came often among them. Great became their knowledge and their skill, yet even greater was their thirst for more knowledge, and in many things they soon surpassed their teachers. They were changeful in speech, for they had great love of words, and sought ever to find names more fit for all things that they knew or imagined. And it came to pass that the masons of the house of Finwë, quarrying in the hills after stone, for they delighted in the building of high towers, first discovered the earth gems, and brought them forth in countless myriads, and they devised tools for the cutting and shaping of gems, and carved them in many forms. They hoarded them not, but gave them freely, and by their labour enriched all Valinor. The Noldor afterwards came back to Middle-earth, and this tale tells mostly of their deeds. Therefore the names and kinship of their princes may here be told, in that form which these names later bore in the tongue of the elves of Beleriand, 
Finwë was king of the Noldor. The sons of Finwë were Feanor and Fingolfin and Finarfin, but the mother of Feanor was Miriel Serinda, whereas the mother of Fingolfin and Finarfin was Indis of the Vanyar. Feanor was the mightiest in skill of word and of hand, more learned than his brothers. His spirit burned as a flame. Fingolfin was the strongest, the most steadfast, and the most valiant. Finarfin was the fairest and the most wise of heart, and afterwards he was a friend of the sons of Olwë, lord of the Teleri, and had to wife Eärwin, the swan maiden of Alqualande, Olwë's daughter. The seven sons of Feanor were Maethros the Tall, Maglor the mighty singer, whose voice was heard far over land and sea, Kelegorm the fair, and Caranthia the dark, Corufin the crafty, who inherited most of his father's skill of hand, and the youngest, Amrod and Amras, who were twin brothers alike in mood and face. In later days they were great hunters in the woods of Middle-earth, and a hunter also was Kelegorm, who in Valinor was a friend of Orimer and often followed the Vala's horn. The sons of Fingolfin were Fingon, who was afterwards king of the Noldor in the north of the world, and Turgon, lord of Gondolin. Their sister was Arathel the White. She was younger in the years of the Eldar than her brothers, and when she was grown to full stature and beauty, she was tall and strong, and loved much to ride and hunt in the forests. There she was often in the company of the sons of Feanor, her kin, but to none was her heart's love given. Arfaniel, she was called, the white lady of the Noldor, for she was pale, though her hair was dark, and she was never arrayed but in silver and white. The sons of Fenarfin were Finrod the Faithful, who was afterwards named Felagund, Lord of Caves, Orodreth, Angrod, and Egnor. These four were as close in friendship with the sons of Fingolfin as though they were all brothers. A sister they had, Galadriel, most beautiful of all the house of Finwë. Her hair was lit with gold as though it had caught in a mesh the radiance of Laurelin. Here must be told how the Teleri came at last to the land of Ammon. Through a long age they dwelt in Tal Aresea. But slowly their hearts were changed, and were drawn towards the light that flowed out over the sea to the lonely isle. They were torn between the love of the music of the waves upon their shores, and the desire to see again their kindred, and to look upon the splendour of Valinor. But in the end, desire of the light was the stronger. Therefore Ulmo, submitting to the will of the Valar, sent to them Osse, their friend. And he, though grieving, taught them the craft of shipbuilding, and when their ships were built, he brought them as his parting gift many strong-winged swans. Then the swans drew the white ships of the Teleri over the windless sea, and thus at last and latest they came to Amman and the shores of Eldamar. There they dwelt, and if they wished, they could see the light of the trees, and could tread the golden streets of Valmar, and the crystal stairs of Tyrion upon Tunar, the green hill. But most of all, 
they sailed in their swift ships on the waters of the Bay of Elvenholm, or walked in the waves upon the shore with their hair gleaming in the light beyond the hill. Many jewels the Noldor gave them, opals and diamonds and pale crystals, which they strewed upon the shores and scattered in the pools. Marvellous were the beaches of Elende in those days. And many pearls they won for themselves from the sea, and their halls were of pearl, and of pearl were the mansions of Olwe, at Alquilonde, the haven of the swans, lit with many lamps. For that was their city, and the haven of their ships, and those were made in the likeness of swans, with beaks of gold, and eyes of gold and jet. The gate of that harbour was an arch of living rock, sea-carved, and it lay upon the confines of Eldamar, north of the Calakiria, where the light of the stars was bright and clear. As the ages passed, the Vanyar grew to love the land of the Valar, and the full light of the trees, and they forsook the city of Tyrion upon Tuna, and dwelt thereafter upon the mountain of Manwe, or about the plains and woods of Valinor, and became sundered from the Noldor. But the memory of Middle-earth under the stars remained in the hearts of the Noldor, and they abode in the Calakiria, and in the hills and valleys within sound of the western sea. And though many of them went often about the land of the Valar, making far journeys in search of the secrets of land and water and all living things, yet the peoples of Tuna and Alqualonde drew together in those days. Finwë was king in Tyrion, and Olwë in Alqualonde, but Ingwë was ever held the high king of all the elves. He abode thereafter at the feet of Manwë upon Taniquetil. Feanor and his sons abode seldom in one place for long, but travelled far and wide upon the confines of Valinor, going even to the borders of the dark and the cold shores of the outer sea, seeking the unknown. Often they were guests in the halls of Aule, but Kelegorm went rather to the house of Orome, and there he got great knowledge of birds and beasts and all their tongues he knew. For all living things that are or have been in the kingdom of Arda, save only the fell and evil creatures of Melkor, lived then in the land of Aman. And there also were many other creatures that have not been seen upon Middle-earth, and perhaps never now shall be, since the fashion of the world was changed. Of Feanor and the Unchaining of Melkor now the three kindreds of the Eldar were gathered at last in Valinor, and Melkor was chained. This was the noontide of the blessed realm, the fullness of its glory and its bliss, long in tale of years, but in memory too brief. In those days the Eldar became full-grown in stature of body and of mind, and the Noldor advanced ever in skill and knowledge, and the long years were filled with their joyful labours, in which many new things, fair and wonderful, were devised. Then it was that the Noldor first bethought them of letters, and Rumil of Tyrion was the name of the lawmaster, who first achieved fitting signs for the recording of speech and song, some for graving upon metal or in stone, others for drawing with brush or with pen. 
In that time was born in Eldamar, in the house of the king, in Tyrion, upon the crown of Tunar, the eldest of the sons of Finwë, and the most beloved. Kuru Finwë was his name. But by his mother he was called Feanor, spirit of fire, and thus he is remembered in all the tales of the Noldor. Miriel was the name of his mother, who was called Serinda, because of her surpassing skill in weaving and needlework. For her hands were more skilled to fineness than any hands even among the Noldor. The love of Finwë and Miriel was great and glad, for it began in the blessed realm in the days of bliss. But in the bearing of her son, Miriel was consumed in spirit and body, and after his birth she yearned for release from the labour of living. And when she had named him, she said to Finwë, Never again shall I bear child, for strength that would have nourished the life of many has gone forth into Feanor. Then Finwë was grieved, for the Noldor were in the youth of their days, and he desired to bring forth many children into the bliss of Aman. And he said, Surely there is healing in Aman. Here all weariness can find rest. But when Miriel languished still, Finwë sought the counsel of Manwë, and Manwë delivered her to the care of Irmo in Lorien. At their parting, for a little while, as he thought, Finwë was sad, for it seemed an unhappy chance that the mother should depart and miss the beginning at least of the childhood days of her son. It is indeed unhappy, said Miriel, and I would weep if I were not so weary. But hold me blameless in this and in all that may come after. She went then to the gardens of Lorien and lay down to sleep. But though she seemed to sleep, her spirit indeed departed from her body, and passed in silence to the halls of Mandos. The maidens of Este tended the body of Miriel, and it remained unwithered, but she did not return. Then Finwë lived in sorrow, and he went often to the gardens of Lorien, and sitting beneath the silver willows beside the body of his wife, he called her by her names. But it was unavailing, and alone in all the blessed realm he was deprived of joy. After a while he went to Lorien no more. All his love he gave thereafter to his son, and Feanor grew swiftly as if a secret fire were kindled within him. He was tall and fair of face and masterful, his eyes piercingly bright and his hair raven-dark. In the pursuit of all, his purposes eager and steadfast. Few ever changed his course by counsel, none by force. He became of all the Noldor, then or after, the most subtle in mind and the most skilled in hand. In his youth, bettering the work of Rumil, he devised those letters which bear his name and which the Eldar used ever after. And he it was who, first of the Noldor, discovered how gems greater and brighter than those of the earth might be made with skill. The first gems that Feanor made were white and colourless, but being set under starlight they would blaze with blue and silver fires brighter than Helluin. And other crystals he made also, wherein things far away could be seen small but clear, as were the eyes of the eagles of Manwë. 
seldom were the hands and mind of Feanor at rest. While still in his early youth, he wedded Nerdanel, the daughter of a great smith named Martan, among those of the Noldor most dear to Aula. And of Martan, he learned much of the making of things in metal and in stone. Nerdanel also was firm of will, but more patient than Feanor, desiring to understand minds rather than to master them, and at first she restrained him when the fire of his heart grew too hot. But his later deeds grieved her, and they became estranged. Seven sons she bore to Feanor. Her mood she bequeathed in part to some of them, but not to all. Now it came to pass that Finwë took as his second wife Indis the Fair. She was a Vanya, close kin of Ingwë the High King, golden-haired and tall, and in all ways unlike Miriel. Finwë loved her greatly and was glad again. But the shadow of Miriel did not depart from the house of Finwë, nor from his heart. And of all whom he loved, Feanor had ever the chief share of his thought. The wedding of his father was not pleasing to Feanor, and he had no great love for Indis, nor for Fingolfin and Finarfin, her sons. He lived apart from them, exploring the land of Ammon, or busying himself with the knowledge and the crafts in which he delighted. In those unhappy things which later came to pass, and in which Feanor was the leader, many saw the effect of this breach within the house of Finwë. Judging that if Finwë had endured his loss and been content with the fathering of his mighty son, the courses of Feanor would have been otherwise, and great evil might have been prevented. For the sorrow and the strife in the house of Finwë is graven in the memory of the Noldorin elves. But the children of Indus were great and glorious, and their children also, and if they had not lived, the history of the Eldar would have been diminished. Now even while Feanor and the craftsmen of the Noldor worked with delight, foreseeing no end to their labours, and while the sons of Indus grew to their full stature, the noontide of Valinor was drawing to its close. For it came to pass that Melkor, as the Valar had decreed, completed the term of his bondage, dwelling for three ages in the duress of Mandos alone. At length, as Manwë had promised, he was brought again before the thrones of the Valar. Then he looked upon the glory and their bliss, and envy was in his heart. He looked upon the children of Ilovata that sat at the feet of the mighty, and hatred filled him. He looked upon the wealth of bright gems, and he lusted for them. But he hid his thoughts, and postponed his vengeance. Before the gates of Valmar, Melkor abased himself at the feet of Manwë, and sued for pardon, vowing that if he might be made only the least of the free people of Valinor, he would aid the Valar in all their works, and most of all, in the healing of the many hurts that he had done to the world. And Nienna aided his prayer, but Mandos was silent. Then Manwë granted him pardon. But the Valar would not yet suffer him to depart beyond their sight and vigilance, and he was constrained to dwell within the gates of Valmar. But fair-seeming were all the words and deeds of Melkor in that time, 
and both the Valar and the Eldar had profit from his aid and counsel, if they sought it. And therefore, in a while, he was given leave to go freely about the land. And it seemed to Manwe that the evil of Melkor was cured. For Manwe was free from evil, and could not comprehend it. And he knew that in the beginning, in the thought of Ilovata, Melkor had been even as he, and he saw not to the depths of Melkor's heart, and did not perceive that all love had departed from him for ever. But Ulmo was not deceived, and Tulkas clenched his hands whenever he saw Melkor his foe go by. For if Tulkas is slow to wrath, he is slow also to forget. But they obeyed the judgment of Manwe, for those who will defend authority against rebellion must not themselves rebel. Now in his heart Melkor most hated the Eldar, both because they were fair and joyful, and because in them he saw the reason for the arising of the Valar and his own downfall. Therefore all the more did he feign love for them and seek their friendship, and he offered them the service of his lord and labor in any great deed that they would do. The Vanyar indeed held him in suspicion, for they dwelt in the light of the trees and were content, and to the Tuleri he gave small heed, thinking them of little worth, tools too weak for his designs. But the Noldor took delight in the hidden knowledge that he could reveal to them, and some hearkened to words that it would have been better for them never to have heard. Melkor indeed declared afterwards that Theonor had learned much art from him in secret, and had been instructed by him in the greatest of all his works. But he lied in his lust and his envy, for none of the Eldalir ever hated Melkor more than Feanor, son of Finwë, who first named him Morgoth, and snared though he was in the webs of Melkor's malice against the Valar, he held no converse with him and took no counsel from him. For Feanor was driven by the fire of his own heart only, working ever swiftly and alone, and he asked the aid and sought the counsel of none that dwelt in Ammon, great or small, save only and for a little while of Nerdanel the wise, his wife. Of the Silmarils and the Unrest of the Noldor In that time were made those things that afterwards were most renowned of all the works of the elves. For Feanor, being come to his full might, was filled with a new thought, or it may be that some shadow of foreknowledge came to him of the doom that drew near, and he pondered how the light of the trees, the glory of the blessed realm, might be preserved imperishable. Then he began a long and secret labor, and he summoned all his lore and his powers and his subtle skill, and at the end of all he made the Silmarils. As three great jewels they were in form, but not until the end when Feanor shall return, who perished ere the sun was made, and sits now in the halls of awaiting, and comes no more among his kin. Not until the sun passes and the moon falls shall it be known of what substance they were made. Like the crystal of diamonds it appeared, and yet was more strong than adamant, so that no violence could mar it or break it within the kingdom of Arda. Yet that crystal was to the Silmarils but as is the body to the children of Ilovata, the house of its inner fire that is within it, and yet in all parts of it, and is its life. 
and the inner fire of the Silmarils, Feanor made of the blended light of the trees of Valinor, which lives in them yet, though the trees have long withered and shine no more. Therefore, even in the darkness of the deepest treasury, the Silmarils of their own radiance shone like the stars of Varda. And yet, as were they indeed living things, they rejoiced in light and received it, and gave it back in hues more marvellous than before. All who dwelt in Aman were filled with wonder and delight at the work of Feanor. And Varda hallowed the Silmarils, so that thereafter no mortal flesh, nor hands unclean, nor anything of evil will might touch them, but it was scorched and withered. And Mandos foretold that the fates of Arda, earth, sea, and air lay locked within them. The heart of Feanor was fast bound to these things that he himself had made. Then Melkor lusted for the Silmarils, and the very memory of their radiance was a gnawing fire in his heart. From that time forth, inflamed by this desire, he sought ever more eagerly how he should destroy Feanor and end the friendship of the Valar and the Elves. But he dissembled his purposes with cunning, and nothing of his malice could yet be seen in the semblance that he wore. Long was he at work, and slow at first, and barren was his labour. But he that sows lies in the end shall not lack of a harvest, and soon he may rest from toil indeed while others reap and sow in his stead. Ever Melkor found some ears that would hear him, and some tongues that would enlarge what they had heard. And his lies passed from friend to friend, the secrets of which the knowledge proves the teller wise. Bitterly did the Noldor atone for the folly of their open ears in the days that followed after. When he saw that many leaned towards him, Melkor would often walk among them, and amid his fair words others were woven, so subtly, that many who heard them believed in recollection that they arose from their own thought. Visions he would conjure in their hearts of the mighty realms that they could have ruled at their own will, in power and freedom in the east, and then whispers went abroad that the Valar had brought the Eldar to Ammon because of their jealousy, fearing that the beauty of the Quendi and the Maker's power that Ilovata had bequeathed to them would grow too great for the Valar to govern as the elves waxed and spread over the wide lands of the world. In those days, moreover, Though the Valar knew indeed of the coming of men that were to be, the elves as yet knew naught of it, for Manwe had not revealed it to them. But Melkor spoke to them in secret of mortal men, seeing how the silence of the Valar might be twisted to evil. Little he knew yet concerning men, for engrossed with his own thought in the music, he had paid small heed to the third theme of Iluvatar. But now the whisper went among the elves that Manwe held them captive, so that men might come and supplant them in the kingdoms of Middle-earth, for the Valar saw that they might more easily sway this short-lived and weaker race, defrauding the elves of the inheritance of Iluvata. Small truth was there in this, and little have the Valar ever prevailed to sway the wills of men, but many of the Noldor believed, or half-believed, the evil words. Thus, ere the Valar were aware, the peace of Valinor was poisoned. The Noldor began to murmur against them, and many became filled with pride, 
forgetting how much of what they had and knew came to them in gift from the Valar. Fiercest burned the new flame of desire for freedom and wider realms in the eager heart of Feanor. And Melkor laughed in his secrecy, for to that mark his lies had been addressed, hating Feanor above all and lusting ever for the Silmarils. But these he was not suffered to approach, for though at great feasts Feanor would wear them blazing on his brow, at other times they were guarded close, locked in the deep chambers of his hoard in Tyrion. For Feanor began to love the Silmarils with a greedy love, and grudged the sight of them to all save to his father and his seven sons. He seldom remembered now that the light within them was not his own. High princes were Feanor and Filgolfin, the elder sons of Finwë, honoured by all in Aman. But now they grew proud and jealous each of his rights and his possessions. Then Melkor set new lies abroad in Eldamar, and whispers came to Feanor that Fingolfin and his sons were plotting to usurp the leadership of Fenwë and of the elder line of Feanor, and to supplant them by the leave of the Valar. For the Valar were ill-pleased that the Silmarils lay in Tyrion and were not committed to their keeping. But to Fingolfin and Finarfin it was said, Beware! Small love has the proud son of Miriel ever had for the children of Indis. Now he has become great, and he has his father in his hand. It will not be long before he drives you forth from Tunar. And when Melkor saw that these lies were smouldering, and that pride and anger were awake among the Noldor, he spoke to them concerning weapons. And in that time the Noldor began the smithying of swords and axes and spears, Shields also they made, displaying the tokens of many houses and kindreds that vied one with another, and these only they wore abroad, and of other weapons they did not speak, for each believed that he alone had received the warning. And Feanor made a secret forge, of which not even Melkor was aware, and there he tempered fell swords for himself and for his sons, and made tall helms with plumes of red, Bitterly did Matan rue the day when he taught to the husband of Nerdenel all the lore of metalwork that he had learned of Aule. Thus with lies and evil whisperings and false counsel, Melkor kindled the hearts of the Noldor to strife. And of their quarrels came at length the end of the high days of Valinor and the evening of its ancient glory. For Feanor now began openly to speak words of rebellion against the Valar, crying aloud that he would depart from Valinor back to the world without, and would deliver the Noldor from thraldom if they would follow him. Then there was great unrest in Tyrion, and Finwë was troubled, and he summoned all his lords to council. But Fingolfin hastened to his halls and stood before him, saying, King and father, wilt thou not restrain the pride of our brother, Kurufinwe, who is called the Spirit of Fire all too truly? By what right does he speak for all our people as if he were king? Thou it was who long ago spoke before the Quendi, bidding them accept the summons of the Valar to Amun. Thou it was that led the Noldor upon the road through the perils of Middle-earth to the light of Eldamar. If thou dost not now repent of it, Two sons at least thou hast to honour thy words. 
But even as Fingolfin spoke, Feanor strode into the chamber, and he was fully armed, his high helm upon his head, and at his side a mighty sword. So it is, even as I guessed, he said. My half-brother would be before me with my father in this as in all other matters. Then turning upon Fingolfin, he drew his sword, crying, Get thee gone, and take thy due place. Fingolfin bowed before Finwë, and without word or glance to Feanor, he went from the chamber. But Feanor followed him, and at the door of the king's house he stayed him, and the point of his bright sword he set against Fingolfin's breast. See, half-brother, he said, this is sharper than thy tongue. Try but once more to usurp my place and the love of my father, and maybe it will rid the Noldor of one who seeks to be the master of thralls. These words were heard by many, for the house of Finwë was in the great square beneath the Mindon. But again Fingolfin made no answer, and passing through the throng in silence, he went to seek Finarfin, his brother. Now the unrest of the Noldor was not indeed hidden from the Valar, but its seed had been sown in the dark, and therefore, since Feanor first openly spoke against them, they judged that he was the mover of discontent, being eminent in self-will and arrogance, though all the Noldor had become proud. And Manwë was grieved, but he watched and said no word. The Valar had brought the Eldar to their land freely, to dwell or to depart, and though they might judge departure to be folly, they might not restrain them from it. But now the deeds of Feanor could not be passed over, and the Valar were angered and dismayed, and he was summoned to appear before them at the gates of Valmar to answer for all his words and deeds. There also were summoned all others who had any part in this matter, or any knowledge of it. And Feanor, standing before Mandos in the Ring of Doom, was commanded to answer all that was asked of him. And then at last the root was laid bare, and the malice of Melkor revealed. And straightway Tulkas left the council to lay hands upon him and bring him again to judgment. But Feanor was not held guiltless for he it was that had broken the peace of Valinor and drawn his sword upon his kinsman. And Mandos said to him, Thou speakest of thraldom. If thraldom it be, thou canst not escape it, for Manwë is king of Arda, and not of Aman only, and this deed was unlawful, whether in Aman or not in Aman. Therefore this doom is now made. For twelve years thou shalt leave Tyrion, where this threat was uttered. In that time, take counsel with thyself, and remember who and what thou art. But after that time, this matter shall be set in peace, and held redressed if others will release thee. Then Fingolfin said, I will release my brother. But Feanor spoke no word in answer, standing silent before the Valar. Then he turned and left the council, and departed from Valmar. With him into banishment went his seven sons, and northward in Valinor they made a strong place and treasury in the hills, and there at Forminos a multitude of gems were laid in hoard, and weapons also, and the Silmarils were shut in a chamber of iron. Thither also came Finwë, the king, because of the love that he bore to Feanor. 
and Fingolfin ruled the Noldor in Tyrion. Thus the lies of Melkor were made true in seeming. Though Feanor by his own deeds had brought this thing to pass, and the bitterness that Melkor had sown endured, and lived still long afterwards between the sons of Fingolfin and Feanor. Now Melkor, knowing that his devices had been revealed, hid himself, and passed from place to place as a cloud in the hills, and Tulkas sought for him in vain. Then it seemed to the people of Valinor that the light of the trees was dimmed, and the shadows of all standing things grew longer and darker in that time. It is told that for a time Melkor was not seen again in Valinor, nor was any rumour heard of him, until suddenly he came to Forminos and spoke with Feanor before his doors. Friendship, he feigned, with cunning argument, urging him to his former thought of flight from the trammels of the Valar, and he said, Behold the truth of all that I have spoken, and how thou art banished unjustly. But if the heart of Feanor is yet free and bold as were his words in Tyrion, then I will aid him, and bring him far from this narrow land. For am I not Valar also? Yea, and more than those who sit in pride in Valimar, and I have ever been a friend to the Noldor, most skilled and most valiant of the people of Arda. Now Feanor's heart was still bitter at his humiliation before Mandos, and he looked at Melkor in silence, pondering if indeed he might yet trust him so far as to aid him in his flight. And Melkor, seeing that Feanor wavered, and knowing that the Silmarils held his heart in thrall, said at the last, Here is a strong place and well guarded. But think not that the Silmarils will lie safe in any treasury within the realm of the Valar. But his cunning overreached his aim, his words touched too deep, and awoke a fire more fierce than he designed, and Feanor looked upon Melkor with eyes that burned through his fair semblance and pierced the cloaks of his mind, perceiving there his fierce lust for the Silmarils. Then hate overcame Feanor's fear, and he cursed Melkor and bade him be gone, saying, Get thee gone from my gate, thou jail-crow of Mandos. And he shut the doors of his house in the face of the mightiest of all the dwellers in Ea. Then Melkor departed in shame, for he was himself in peril and he saw not his time yet for revenge. But his heart was black with anger. And Finwë was filled with great fear, and in haste he sent messengers to Manwë in Valmar. Now the Valar was sitting in council before their gates, fearing the lengthening of the shadows, when the messengers came from Formenos. At once Orome and Tulkas sprang up, but even as they set out in pursuit, Messengers came from Eldamar, telling that Melkor had fled through the Kalikiria, and from the hill of Tunar the elves had seen him pass in wrath as a thundercloud. And they said that thence he had turned northward, for the Teleri in Alqualonde had seen his shadow going by their haven towards Araman. Thus Melkor departed from Valinor, and for a while the two trees shone again unshadowed, and the land was filled with light. But the Valar sought in vain for tidings of their enemy. 
and as a cloud far off that looms ever higher, borne upon a slow, cold wind. A doubt now marred the joy of all the dwellers in Ammon, dreading they knew not what evil that yet might come. Of the Darkening of Valinor When Manwe heard of the ways that Melkor had taken, it seemed plain to him that he purposed to escape to his old strongholds in the north of Middle-earth, and Oromer and Tulkas went with all speed northward, seeking to overtake him if they might. But they found no trace or rumour of him beyond the shores of the Teleri, in the unpeopled wastes that drew near to the ice. Thereafter, the watch was redoubled along the northern fences of Amman, but to no purpose. For ere the pursuit set out, Melkor had turned back, and in secrecy passed away far to the south. For he was yet as one of the Valar, and could change his form, or walk unclad, as could his brethren, though that power he was soon to lose for ever. Thus, unseen, he came at last to the dark region of Avathar. That narrow land lay south of the Bay of Eldamar, beneath the eastern feet of the Pelori, and its long and mournful shores stretched away into the south, lightless and unexplored. There, beneath the sheer walls of the mountains and the cold, dark sea, the shadows were deepest and thickest in the world. And there, in Avathar, secret and unknown, Ungoliant made her abode. The Eldar knew not whence she came, but some have said that in ages long before she descended from the darkness that lies about Arda, when Melkor first looked down in envy upon the kingdom of Manwe, and that in the beginning she was one of those that he corrupted to his service. But she had disowned her master, desiring to be mistress of her own lust, taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness. And she fled to the south, escaping the assaults of the Valar and the hunters of Oromer, for their vigilance had ever been to the north, and the south was long unheeded. Thence she had crept towards the light of the blessed realm, for she hungered for light and hated it. In the ravine she lived, and took shape as a spider of monstrous form, weaving her black webs in a cleft of the mountains. There she sucked up all light that she could find, and spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling gloom, until no light more could come to her abode, and she was famished. Now Melkor came to Avatar and sought her out, and he put on again the form that he had worn as the tyrant of Utumno, a dark lord, tall and terrible. In that form he remained ever after. There in the black shadows beyond the sight even of Manwe in his highest halls, Melkor with Ungoliant plotted his revenge. But when Ungoliant understood the purpose of Melkor, she was torn between lust and great fear for she was loath to dare the perils of Ammon and the power of the dreadful lords, and she would not stir from her hiding. Therefore Melkor said to her, Do as I bid, and if thou hunger still when all is done, then I will give thee whatsoever thy lust may demand, yea, with both hands. Lightly he made this vow, as he ever did, and he laughed 
in his heart. Thus did the great thief set his lure for the lesser. A cloak of darkness she wove about them when Melkor and Ungoliant set forth, an unlight in which things seemed to be no more and which eyes could not pierce, for it was void. Then slowly she wrought her webs, rope by rope, from cleft to cleft, from jutting rock to pinnacle of stone, ever climbing upwards, crawling and clinging, until at last she reached the very summit of Hyamintir, the highest mountain in that region of the world, far south of great Taniquetil. There the Valar were not vigilant, for west of the Pelori was an empty land in twilight, and eastward the mountains looked out, save for forgotten Avathar, only upon the dim waters of the pathless sea. But now upon the mountaintop, dark Ungoliant lay, and she made a ladder of woven ropes and cast it down, and Melkor climbed upon it and came to that high place and stood beside her, looking down upon the guarded realm. Below them lay the woods of Oreme, and westward shimmered the fields and pastures of Yavanna, gold beneath the tall wheat of the gods. But Melkor looked north, and saw afar the shining plain and the silver domes of Valmar gleaming in the mingling of the lights of Telperion and Laurelin. Then Melkor laughed aloud, and leapt swiftly down the long western slopes, and Ungoliant was at his side, and her darkness covered them. Now it was a time of festival, as Melkor knew well. Though all tides and seasons were at the will of the Valar, and in Valinor there was no winter of death, nonetheless they dwelt then in the kingdom of Arda, and that was but a small realm in the halls of Ea, whose life is time, which flows ever from the first note to the last chord of Eru. And even as it was then the delight of the Valar, as is told in the Ainolindela, to clothe themselves as in a vesture in the forms of the children of Iluvata, so also did they eat and drink, and gather the fruits of Yavanna from the earth, which under Eru they had made. Therefore Yavanna set times for the flowering and the ripening of all things that grew in Valinor, and at each first gathering of fruits, Manwe made a high feast for the praising of Eru, when all the peoples of Valinor poured forth their joy in music and song upon Taniquetu. This now was the hour, and Manwe decreed a feast more glorious than any that had been held since the coming of the Eldar to Amman. For though the escape of Melkor portended toils and sorrows to come, and indeed none could tell what further hurts would be done to Arda, Ere he could be subdued again, at this time Manwe designed to heal the evil that had arisen among the Noldor, and all were bidden to come to his halls upon Taniquetil, there to put aside the griefs that lay between their princes, and forget utterly the lies of their enemy. There came the Vanya, and there came the Noldor of Tyrion, and the Maya were gathered together, and the Valar were arrayed in their beauty and majesty and they sang before Manwe and Varda in their lofty halls, or danced upon the green slopes of the mountain that looked west towards the trees. In that day the streets of Valmar were empty, and the stairs of Tyrion were silent, and all the land lay sleeping in peace.
Only the Teleri beyond the mountains still sang upon the shores of the sea, for they recked little of seasons or times, and gave no thought to the cares of the rulers of Arda, or the shadow that had fallen on Valinor, for it had not touched them as yet. One thing only marred the design of Manwe. Feanor came indeed, for him alone Manwe had commanded to come. But Finwe came not, nor any others of the Noldor of Formenos. For said Finwe, While the ban lasts upon Feanor, my son, that he may not go to Tyrion, I hold myself unkinged, and I will not meet my people. And Feanor came not in raiment of festival, and he wore no ornament, neither silver nor gold nor any gem, and he denied the sight of the Silmarils to the Valar and the Eldar, and left them locked in Formenos in their chamber of iron. Nevertheless he met Fingolfin before the throne of Manwe, and was reconciled in word. And Fingolfin set at naught the unsheathing of the sword, for Fingolfin held forth his hand, saying, As I promised, I do now. I release thee, and remember no grievance. Then Fëanor took his hand in silence, but Fingolfin said, Half-brother in blood, full-brother in heart will I be. Thou shalt lead, and I will follow. May no new grief divide us. I hear thee, said Feanor. So be it. But they did not know the meaning that their words would bear. It is told that even as Feanor and Fingolfin stood before Manwe, there came the mingling of the lights when both trees were shining and the silent city of Valmar was filled with a radiance of silver and gold. And in that very hour Melkor and Ungoliant came hastening over the fields of Valinor, as the shadow of a black cloud upon the wind fleets over the sunlit earth. And they came before the green mound Ezolaha. Then the unlight of Ungoliant rose up even to the roots of the trees, and Melkor sprang upon the mound, and with his black spear he smote each tree to its core, wounding them deep, and their sap poured forth as it were their blood, and was spilled upon the ground. But Ungoliant sucked it up, and going then from tree to tree, she set her black beak to their wounds till they were drained, and the poison of death that was in her went into their tissues, and withered them root, branch, and leaf, and they died. And still she thirsted, and going to the wells of Varda, she drank them dry. But Ungoliant belched forth black vapors as she drank, and swelled to a shape so vast and hideous that Melkor was afraid. So the great darkness fell upon Valinor. Of the deeds of that day, much is told in the Aldudania that Elomira of the Vanyar made, and is known to all the Eldar. Yet no song or tale could contain all the grief and terror that then befell. The light failed, but the darkness that followed was more than loss of light. In that hour was made a darkness that seemed not lack, but a thing with being of its own, for it was indeed made by malice out of light and it had power to pierce the eye, and to enter heart and mind, and strangle the very will. 
Varda looked down from Taniquetil and beheld the shadow soaring up in sudden towers of gloom. Valmar had foundered in a deep sea of night. Soon the holy mountain stood alone, a last island in a world that was drowned. All song ceased. There was silence in Valinor, and no sound could be heard, save only from afar they came on the wind through the pass of the mountains, the wailing of the Teleri like the cold cry of gulls. For it blew chill from the east in that hour, and the vast shadows of the sea were rolled against the walls of the shore. But Manwe, from his high seat, looked out, and his eyes alone pierced through the night, until they saw a darkness beyond dark, which they could not penetrate, huge but far away, moving now northward with great speed, and he knew that Melkor had come and gone. Then the pursuit was begun, and the earth shook beneath the horses of the host of Orime, and the fire that was stricken from the hooves of Naha was the first light that returned to Valinor. But so soon as any came up with the cloud of Ungoliant, the riders of the Valar were blinded and dismayed, and they were scattered, and went they knew not whither. And the sound of the Valaroma faltered and failed, and Tulkas was as one caught in a black net at night, and he stood powerless and beat the air in vain. But when the darkness had passed, it was too late. Melkor had gone whither he would, and his vengeance was achieved. Of the Flight of the Noldor After a time, a great concourse gathered about the Ring of Doom, and the Valar sat in shadow, for it was night. But the stars of Varda now glimmered overhead, and the air was clear, for the winds of Manwe had driven away the vapors of death and rolled back the shadows of the sea. Then Yavanna arose and stood upon Ezeloha, the green mound. But it was bare now and black, and she laid her hands upon the trees, but they were dead and dark, and each branch that she touched broke and fell lifeless at her feet. Then many voices were lifted in lamentation, and it seemed to those that mourned that they had drained to the dregs the cup of woe that Melkor had filled for them. But it was not so. Yavanna spoke before the Valar, saying, The light of the trees has passed away, and lives now only in the Silmarils of Feanor. Foresighted was he. Even for those who are mightiest under Ilovata, there is some work that they may accomplish once and once only. The light of the trees I brought into being, and within Ea I can do so never again. Yet had I but a little of that light, I could recall life to the trees ere their roots decay, and then our hurt should be healed and the malice of Melkor be confounded. Then Manwe spoke and said, Hearest thou, Feanor, son of Finwe, the words of Yavanna? Wilt thou grant what she would ask? There was long silence, but Feanor answered no word. Then Tukas cried, Speak, O Noldo, yea or nay, but who shall deny Yavanna? And did not the light of the Silmarils come from her work in the beginning? But Aula, the maker, said, Be not hasty, 
We ask a greater thing than thou knowest. Let him have peace yet a while. But Theonor spoke then and cried bitterly, For the less, even as for the greater, there is some deed that he may accomplish but once only, and in that deed his heart shall rest. It may be that I can unlock my jewels, but never again shall I make their like. And if I must break them, I shall break my heart, and I shall be slain, first of all the elder in Ammon. Not the first, said Mandos. But they did not understand his word, and again there was silence, while Feanor brooded in the dark. It seemed to him that he was beset in a ring of enemies, and the words of Melkor returned to him, saying that the Silmarils were not safe if the Valar would possess them. And is he not Valar as they? said his thought. And does he not understand their hearts? Yea, a thief shall reveal thieves. Then he cried aloud, This thing I will not do of free will. But if the Valar will constrain me, then shall I know indeed that Melkor is of their kindred. Then Mandos said, Thou hast spoken. And Niena arose, and went up unto Ezeloha, and cast back her grey hood, and with her tears washed away the defilements of Ungoliant, and she sang in mourning for the bitterness of the world and the marring of Arda. But even as Niena mourned, there came messengers from Formenos, and they were Noldor, and bore new tidings of evil. For they told how a blind darkness came northward, and in the midst walked some power for which there was no name, and the darkness issued from it. But Melkor also was there, and he came to the house of Feanor, and there he slew Finwë, king of the Noldor, before his doors, and spilled the first blood in the blessed realm. For Finwë alone had not fled from the horror of the dark, and they told that Melkor had broken the stronghold of Formenos, and taken all the jewels of the Noldor that were hoarded in that place, and the Silmarils were gone. Then Feanor rose, and lifting up his hand before Manwë, he cursed Melkor, naming him Morgoth, the black foe of the world, and by that name only he was known to the Eldar ever after. And he cursed also the summons of Manwë, and the hour in which he came to Taniquetil thinking in the madness of his rage and grief that had he been at Formenos, his strength would have availed more than to be slain also, as Melkor had purposed. Then Feanor ran from the Ring of Doom and fled into the night, for his father was dearer to him than the light of Valinor or the peerless work of his hands, and who among sons of elves or of men have held their fathers of greater worth? Many there grieved for the anguish of Feanor, but his loss was not his alone. And Yavanna wept by the mound, in fear that the darkness should swallow the last rays of the light of Valinor for ever. For though the Valar did not yet understand fully what had befallen, they perceived that Melkor had called upon some aid that came from beyond Arda. The Silmarils had passed away, and all one it may seem whether Feanor had said yea or nay to Yavanna. Yet had he said yea at the first, 
Before the tidings came from Formenus, it may be that his after deeds would have been other than they were. But now the doom of the Noldor drew near. Meanwhile, Morgoth, escaping from the pursuit of the Valar, came to the wastes of Araman. This land lay northward between the mountains of the Pelori and the Great Sea, as Avatar lay to the south. But Araman was a wider land, and between the shores and the mountains were barren plains, ever colder as the ice drew nearer. Through this region Morgoth and Ungoliant passed in haste, and so came through the great mists of Oyamure to the Hel Karaxa, where the strait between Araman and Middle-earth was filled with grinding ice. And he crossed over, and came back at last to the north of the outer lands. Together they went on, for Morgoth could not elude Ungoliant, and her cloud was still about him, and all her eyes were upon him. And they came to those lands that lay north of the Firth of Drengist. Now Morgoth was drawing near to the ruins of Angband, where his great western stronghold had been, and Ungoliant perceived his hope, and knew that here he would seek to escape from her, and she stayed him, demanding that he fulfill his promise. Black heart, she said, I have done thy bidding, but I hunger still. What wouldst thou have more? said Morgoth. Dost thou desire all the world for thy belly? I did not vow to give thee that. I am its lord. Not so much, said Ungoliant. But thou hast a great treasure from Formenos. I will have all that. Yea, with both hands thou shalt give it. Then perforce Morgoth surrendered to her the gems that he bore with him, one by one, and grudgingly. And she devoured them, and their beauty perished from the world. Huger and darker yet grew ungoliant, but her lust was unsated. With one hand thou givest, she said, with the left only, open thy right hand. In his right hand Morgoth held close the Silmarils, and though they were locked in a crystal casket, they had begun to burn him, and his hand was clenched in pain, but he would not open it. Nay, he said, thou hast had thy due, for with my power that I put into thee thy work was accomplished. I need thee no more. These things thou shalt not have, nor see. I name them unto myself for ever. But Ungoliant had grown great, and he less by the power that had gone out of him. And she rose against him, and her cloud closed about him, and she enmeshed him in a web of clinging thongs to strangle him. Then Morgoth sent forth a terrible cry that echoed in the mountains. Therefore that region was called Lamoth, for the echoes of his voice dwelt there ever after, so that any who cried aloud in that land awoke them, and all the waste between the hills and the sea was filled with a clamor as of voices in anguish. The cry of Morgoth in that hour was the greatest and most dreadful that was ever heard in the northern world. The mountains shook, and the earth trembled, and the rocks were riven asunder. Deep in forgotten places that cry was heard. Far beneath the ruined halls of Angband, in vaults to which the Valar, in the haste of their assault, had not descended, Balrogs lurked still, awaiting ever the return of their lord. 
and now swiftly they arose, and passing over Hithlam, they came to Lamoth as a tempest of fire. With their whips of flame they smote asunder the webs of Ungoliant, and she quailed and turned to flight, belching black vapours to cover her, and fleeing from the north she went down into Beleriand, and dwelt beneath Ered Gorgoroth in that dark valley that was after called Nan Dungortheb, the valley of dreadful death, because of the horror that she bred there. For other foul creatures of spider form had dwelt there since the days of the delving of Angband, and she mated with them and devoured them. And even after Ungoliant herself departed and went whither she would into the forgotten south of the world, her offspring abode there and wove their hideous webs. Of the fate of Ungoliant no tale tells. Yet some have said that she ended long ago, when in her uttermost famine she devoured herself at last. And thus the fear of Yavanna that the Silmarils would be swallowed up and fall into nothingness did not come to pass. But they remained in the power of Morgoth, and he being freed, gathered again all his servants that he could find, and came to the ruins of Angband. There he delved anew his vast vaults and dungeons, and above their gates he reared the threefold peaks of Thangorodrim, and a great reek of dark smoke was ever wreathed about them. There countless became the hosts of his beasts and his demons, and the race of the orcs, bred long before, grew and multiplied in the bowels of the earth. Dark now fell the shadow on Beleriand, as is told hereafter. But in Angband, Morgoth forged for himself a great crown of iron, and he called himself King of the World. In token of this, he set the Silmarils in his crown. His hands were burned black by the touch of those hallowed jewels, and black they remained ever after, nor was he ever free from the pain of the burning and the anger of the pain. That crown he never took from his head, though its weight became a deadly weariness. Never but once only did he depart for a while secretly from his domain in the north. Seldom, indeed, did he leave the deep places of his fortress, but governed his armies from his northern throne. And once only, also, did he himself wield weapon while his realm lasted. For now, more than in the days of Otumno, ere his pride was humbled, his hatred devoured him. And in the domination of his servants— and the inspiring of them with lust of evil, he spent his spirit. Nonetheless, his majesty as one of the Valar long remained, though turned to terror, and before his face all save the mightiest sank into a dark pit of fear. Now when it was known that Morgoth had escaped from Valinor, and pursuit was unavailing, the Valar remained long seated in darkness in the Ring of Doom and the Maya and the Vanya stood beside them and wept. But the Noldor, for the most part, returned to Tyrion, and mourned for the darkening of their fair city. Through the dim ravine of the Calakiria, fogs drifted in from the shadowy seas and mantled its towers, and the lamp of the Mindon burned pale in the gloom. Then suddenly Feanor appeared in the city, and called on all to come to the high court of the king upon the summit of Tunar. But the doom of banishment that had been laid upon him was not yet lifted, and he rebelled against the Valar, 
A great multitude gathered swiftly, therefore, to hear what he would say, and the hill and all the stairs and streets that climbed upon it were lit with the light of many torches that each one bore in hand. Feanor was a master of words, and his tongue had great power over hearts when he would use it, and that night he made a speech before the Noldor which they ever remembered. Fierce and fell were his words, and filled with anger and pride, and hearing them the Noldor was stirred to madness. His wrath and his hate were given most to Morgoth, and yet well-nigh all that he said came from the very lies of Morgoth himself. But he was distraught with grief for the slaying of his father, and with anguish for the rape of the Silmarils. He claimed now the kingship of all the Noldor, since Finwë was dead, and he scorned the decrees of the Valar. "'Why, O people of the Noldor,' he cried, "'why should we longer serve the jealous Valar, who cannot keep us nor even their own realm secure from their enemy? And though he be now their foe, are not they and he of one kin? Vengeance calls me hence.' But even were it otherwise, I would not dwell longer in the same land with the kin of my father's slayer, and of the thief of my treasure. Yet I am not the only valiant in this valiant people. And have ye not all lost your king? And what else have ye not lost, cooped here in a narrow land between the mountains and the sea? Here once was light, that the Valar begrudged to Middle-earth, but now dark levels all. Shall we mourn here, deedless for ever, a shadow folk, mist-haunting, dropping vain tears in the thankless sea? Or shall we return to our home? In Quivienen sweet ran the waters under unclouded stars, and wide lands lay about, where a free people might walk. There they lie still, and await us who in our folly forsook them. Come away. Let the cowards keep the city. Long he spoke, and ever he urged the Noldor to follow him, and by their own prowess to win freedom and great realms in the lands of the east before it was too late. For he echoed the lies of Melkor, that the Valar had cousined them and would hold them captive so that men might rule in Middle-earth. Many of the Eldar heard then, for the first time, of the aftercomers. Fair shall the end be, he cried, though long and hard shall be the road. Say farewell to bondage, but say farewell also to ease. Say farewell to the weak, say farewell to your treasures. More still shall we make. Journey light, but bring with you your swords. For we will go further than Orimer, endure longer than Tulkas. We will never turn back from pursuit. After Morgoth, to the ends of the earth. War shall he have, and hatred undying. But when we have conquered and have regained the Silmarils, then we and we alone shall be lords of the unsullied light and masters of the bliss and beauty of Arda. No other race shall oust us. Then Theonor swore a terrible oath. 
his seven sons leapt straightway to his side, and took the selfsame vow together, and red as blood shone their drawn swords in the glare of the torches. They swore an oath which none shall break, and none should take, by the name even of Iluvata, calling the everlasting dark upon them if they kept it not. And Manwe they named in witness, and Varda, and the hallowed mountain of Taniquetil, vowing to pursue with vengeance and hatred to the ends of the world, Vala, demon, elf, or man as yet unborn, or any creature, great or small, good or evil, the time should bring forth unto the end of days, whoso should hold, or take, or keep, a Silmaril from their possession. Thus spoke Mythros, and Maglor, and Kelagorm, Kurufin, and Caranthia, Amrod, and Amras, princes of the Noldor, and many quailed to hear the dread words. For so sworn, good or evil, an oath may not be broken, and it shall pursue oath-keeper and oath-breaker to the world's end. Fingolfin and Turgon, his son, therefore spoke against Feanor, and fierce words awoke, so that once again wrath came near to the edge of swords. But Finarfin spoke softly, as was his wont, and sought to calm the Noldor, persuading them to pause and ponder ere deeds were done that could not be undone. And Orodreth alone of his sons spoke in like manner. Finrod was with Torgon, his friend, but Galadriel, the only woman of the Noldor to stand that day tall and valiant among the contending princes, was eager to be gone. No oath she swore, but the words of Feanor concerning Middle-earth had kindled in her heart, for she yearned to see the wide, unguarded lands, and to rule there a realm at her own will. Of like mind with Galadriel was Fingon, Fingolfin's son, being moved also by Feanor's words, though he loved him little. And with Fingon stood, as they ever did, Angrod and Aegnor, sons of Finarfin. But these held their peace and spoke not against their fathers. At length, after long debate, Feanor prevailed, and the greater part of the Noldor there assembled, he set aflame with the desire of new things and strange countries. Therefore, when Finarfin spoke yet again for heed and delay, a great shout went up, Nay, let us be gone. And straightway, Feanor and his sons began to prepare for the marching forth. Little foresight could there be for those who dared to take so dark a road. Yet all was done in over-haste, for Feanor drove them on, fearing lest in the cooling of their hearts his words should wane and other counsels yet prevail. And for all his proud words he did not forget the power of the Valar. But from Valmar no message came, and Manwe was silent. He would not yet either forbid or hinder Feanor's purpose, for the Valar were aggrieved that they were charged with evil intent to the Eldar, or that any were held captive by them against their will. Now they watched and waited, for they did not yet believe that Feanor could hold the host of the Noldor to his will. And indeed, when Feanor began the marshalling of the Noldor for their setting out, then at once dissension arose. 
For though he had brought the assembly in a mind to depart, by no means all were of a mind to take Feanor as king. Greater love was given to Fingolfin and his sons, and his household and the most part of the dwellers in Tyrion refused to renounce him, if he would go with them. And thus, at the last, as two divided hosts, the Noldor set forth upon their bitter road. Feanor and his following were in the van, but the greater host came behind under Fingolfin, and he marched against his wisdom, because Fingon his son so urged him, and because he would not be sundered from his people that were eager to go, nor leave them to the rash counsels of Feanor. Nor did he forget his words before the throne of Manwe. With Fingolfin went Finarfin also, and for like reasons, but most loath was he to depart. And of all the Noldor in Valinor, who were grown now to a great people, but one tithe refused to take the road. Some for the love that they bore to the Valar, and to Aule, not least. Some for the love of Tyrion and the many things that they had made. None for fear of peril by the way. But even as the trumpet sang and Feanor issued from the gates of Tyrion, a messenger came at last from Manwe, saying, Against the folly of Feanor shall be set my counsel only. Go not forth, for the hour is evil, and your road leads to sorrow that ye do not foresee. No aid will the Valar lend you in this quest, but neither will they hinder you. For this ye shall know, as ye came hither freely, freely shall ye depart. But thou, Feanor, Finway's son, by thine oath art exiled. The lies of Melkor thou shalt unlearn in bitterness. Valor he is, thou sayest. Then hast thou sworn in vain, for none of the Valar canst thou overcome now, or ever within the halls of Ea, not though Eru whom thou namest had made thee thrice greater than thou art. But Feanor laughed, and spoke not to the herald, but to the Noldor, saying, So, then will this valiant people send forth the heir of their king alone into banishment with his sons only, and return to their bondage? But if any will come with me, I say to them, Is sorrow foreboded to you? But in Amman we have seen it. In Amman we have come through bliss to woe. The other now we will try, through sorrow to find joy or freedom at the least. Then turning to the herald, he cried, Say this to Manwe Sulimo, high king of Arda. If Feanor cannot overthrow Morgoth, at least he delays not to assail him and sits not idle in grief. And it may be that Eru has set in me a fire greater than thou knowest. Such hurt at the least will I do to the foe of the Valar, that even the mighty in the Ring of Doom shall wonder to hear it. Yea, in the end they shall follow me. Farewell. In that hour the voice of Feanor grew so great and so potent that even the herald of the Valar bowed before him as one full answered and departed, and the Noldor were overruled. Therefore they continued their march, 
and the house of Theonor hastened before them along the coasts of Elende. Not once did they turn their eyes back to Tyrion on the green hill of Tunar. Slower and less eagerly came the host of Fingolfin after them. Of those, Fingon was the foremost. But at the rear went Finarfin and Finrod, and many of the noblest and wisest of the Noldor. And often they looked behind them to see their fair city, until the lamp of the Mindon Eldelieva was lost in the night. More than any others of the exiles, they carried thence memories of the bliss they had forsaken, and some even of the things that they had made there, they took with them, a solace and a burden on the road. Now Feanor led the Noldor northward, because his first purpose was to follow Morgoth. Moreover, Tunar beneath Taniquetil was set nigh to the girdle of Arda, and there the great sea was immeasurably wide, whereas ever northward the sundering seas grew narrower, as the wasteland of Araman and the coasts of Middle-earth drew together. But as the mind of Feanor cooled and took counsel, he perceived over late that all these great companies would never overcome the long leagues to the north, nor cross the seas at the last, save with the aid of ships. Yet it would need long time and toil to build so great a fleet, even were there any among the Noldor skilled in that craft. He resolved now, therefore, to persuade the Teleri, ever friends to the Noldor, to join with them, and in his rebellion he thought that thus the bliss of Valinor might be further diminished and his power for ward upon Morgoth be increased. He hastened then to Alqualonda and spoke to the Teleri, as he had spoken before in Tyrion. But the Teleri were unmoved by aught that he could say. They were grieved indeed at the going of their kinsfolk and long friends, but would rather dissuade them than aid them and no ship would they lend, nor help in the building against the will of the Valar. As for themselves, they desired now no other home but the strands of Eldamar, and no other lord than Alwe, prince of Alqualonde. And he had never lent ear to Morgoth, nor welcomed him to his land, and he trusted still that Ulmo and the other great among the Valar would redress the hurts of Morgoth and that the night would pass yet to a new dawn. Then Feanor grew wrathful, for he still feared delay, and hotly he spoke to Olwe. You renounce your friendship even in the hour of our need, he said. Yet you were glad indeed to receive our aid when you came at last to these shores, faint-hearted loiterers and well-nigh empty-handed. In huts on the beaches would you be dwelling still, had not the Noldor carved out your haven and toiled upon your walls? But Alwe answered, We renounce no friendship, but it may be the part of a friend to rebuke a friend's folly. And when the Noldor welcomed us and gave us aid, otherwise then you spoke. In the land of Amman we were to dwell forever as brothers whose houses stand side by side. But as for our white ships, those you gave us not. We learned not that craft from the Noldor, but from the lords of the sea, and the white timbers we wrought with our own hands, and the white sails were woven by our wives and our daughters. 
Therefore, we will neither give them nor sell them for any league or friendship. For I say to you, Feanor, son of Finwë, these are to us as are the gems of the Noldor, the work of our hearts, whose like we shall not make again. Thereupon, Feanor left him and sat in dark thought beyond the walls of Alqualonde until his host was assembled. When he judged that his strength was enough, he went to the haven of the swans and began to man the ships that were anchored there and to take them away by force. But the Teleri withstood him and cast many of the Noldor into the sea. Then swords were drawn and a bitter fight was fought upon the ships and about the lamplit keys and piers of the haven and even upon the great arch of its gate. Thrice the people of Feanor were driven back, and many were slain upon either side. But the vanguard of the Noldor was succoured by Fingon, with the foremost of the host of Fingolfin, who coming up found a battle joined, and their own kin falling, and rushed in before they knew rightly the cause of the quarrel. Some thought indeed that the Teleri had sought to waylay the march of the Noldor at the bidding of the Valar. Thus at last the Teleri were overcome, and a great part of their mariners that dwelt in Alqualonde were wickedly slain. For the Noldor were become fierce and desperate, and the Teleri had less strength, and were armed for the most part but with slender bows. Then the Noldor drew away their white ships, and manned their oars as best they might, and rowed them north along the coast. And Olwe called upon Osse, but he came not, for it was not permitted by the Valar that the flight of the Noldor should be hindered by force. But Uyanan wept for the mariners of the Teleri, and the sea rose in wrath against the slayers, so that many of the ships were wrecked and those in them drowned. Of the kinslaying at Alqualonde, more is told in that lament which is named Noldalanta, the fall of the Noldor that Maglor made ere he was lost. Nonetheless, the greater part of the Noldor escaped, and when the storm was past, they held on their course, some by ship and some by land. But the way was long, and ever more evil as they went forward. After they had marched for a great while in the unmeasured night, they came at length to the northern confines of the guarded realm, upon the borders of the empty waste of Araman, which were mountainous and cold. There they beheld suddenly a dark figure standing high upon a rock that looked down upon the shore. Some say that it was Mandos himself, and no lesser herald of Manwe. And they heard a loud voice, solemn and terrible, that bade them stand and give ear. Then all halted and stood still, and from end to end of the host of the Noldor the voice was heard speaking the curse and prophecy which is called The Prophecy of the North and the Doom of the Noldor. Much it foretold in dark words, which the Noldor understood not until the woes indeed after befell them. But all heard the curse that was uttered upon those that would not stay nor seek the doom and pardon of the Valar. Tears unnumbered you shall shed, and the Valar will fence Valinor against you, and shut you out, so that not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains, 
On the house of Feanor, the wrath of the Valar lieth from the west unto the uttermost east, and upon all that will follow them it shall be laid also. Their oath shall drive them, and yet betray them, and ever snatch away the very treasures that they have sworn to pursue. To evil end shall all things turn that they begin well, and by treason of kin unto kin, and the fear of treason shall this come to pass. The dispossessed shall they be for ever. Ye have spilled the blood of your kindred unrighteously, and have stained the land of Ammon. For blood ye shall render blood, and beyond Ammon ye shall dwell in death's shadow, for though Eru appointed to you to die not in Ea, and no sickness may assail you, yet slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be, by weapon and by torment and by grief, and your houseless spirits shall come then to Mandos. There long shall ye abide and yearn for your bodies, and find little pity, though all whom you have slain should entreat for you. And those that endure in Middle-earth and come not to Mandos shall grow weary of the world as with a great burden, and shall wane, and become the shadows of regret before the younger race that cometh after. The Valar have spoken. Then many quailed, but Feanor hardened his heart and said, We have sworn, and not lightly, this oath we will keep. We are threatened with many evils, and treason not least, but one thing is not said, that we shall suffer from cowardice, from cravens, or the fear of cravens. Therefore I say that we will go on. And this doom, I add, the deeds that we shall do shall be the matter of song until the last days of Arda. But in that hour Finarfin forsook the march, and turned back, being filled with grief and with bitterness against the house of Feanor, because of his kinship with Alwe of Alqualonde. And many of his people went with him, retracing their steps in sorrow, until they beheld once more the far beam of the Mindon upon Tunar, still shining in the night, and so came at last to Valinor. There they received the pardon of the Valar, and Finarfin was set to rule the remnant of the Noldor in the blessed realm. But his sons were not with him, for they would not forsake the sons of Fingolfin, and all Fingolfin's folk went forward still, feeling the constraint of their kinship and the will of Feanor, and fearing to face the doom of the Valar, since not all of them had been guiltless of the kinslaying at Alqualonde. Moreover, Fingon and Torgon were bold and fiery of heart, and loath to abandon any task to which they had put their hands, until the bitter end, if bitter it must be. So the main host held on, and swiftly the evil that was foretold began its work. The Noldor came at last far into the north of Arda, and they saw the first teeth of the ice that floated in the sea, and knew that they were drawing nigh to the Helcaraxa. For between the land of Ammon, that in the north curved eastward, and the east shores of Endor, which is Middle-earth, that bore westward, there was a narrow strait, 
through which the chill waters of the encircling sea and the waves of Belagea flowed together. And there were vast fogs and mists of deathly cold, and the sea streams were filled with clashing hills of ice, and the grinding of ice deep sunken. Such was the Helcaraxa, and there none yet had dared to tread, save the Valar only, and Ungoliant. Therefore Feanor halted, and the Noldor debated what course they should now take. But they began to suffer anguish from the cold and the clinging mists through which no gleam of star could pierce. And many repented of the road and began to murmur, especially those that followed Fingolfin, cursing Feanor and naming him as the cause of all the woes of the Eldar. But Feanor, knowing all that was said, took counsel with his sons, and two courses only they saw to escape from Araman and come into Endor by the straits or by ship. But the Helcaraxa they deemed impassable, whereas the ships were too few. Many had been lost upon their long journey, and there remained now not enough to bear across all the great host together. Yet none were willing to abide upon the western coast, while others were ferried first. Already the fear of treachery was awake among the Noldor. Therefore it came into the hearts of Fëanor and his sons to seize all the ships and depart suddenly, for they had retained the mastery of the fleet since the Battle of the Haven, and it was manned only by those who had fought there and were bound to Fëanor. And as though it came at his call, there sprang up a wind from the northwest, and Fëanor slipped away secretly with all whom he deemed true to him, and went aboard and put to sea, and left Fingolfin in Araman. And since the sea was there narrow, steering east and somewhat south, he passed over without loss. And first of all the Noldor set foot once more upon the shores of Middle-earth. And the landing of Feanor was at the mouth of the firth which was called Drengist, and ran into Dor Lomin. But when they were landed, Mithros, the eldest of his sons, and on a time the friend of Fingon, ere Morgoth's lies came between, spoke to Feanor, saying, Now what ships and rowers will you spare to return, and whom shall they bear hither first? Fingon the valiant? Then Feanor laughed as one fay, and he cried, None and none! What I have left behind I count now no loss, needless baggage on the road it has proved. Let those that cursed my name curse me still, and whine their way back to the cages of the Valar. Let the ships burn. Then Maithros alone stood aside. But Feanor caused fire to be set to the white ships of the Teleri. So in that place which was called Lascar, at the outlet of the firth of Drengist, ended the fairest vessels that ever sailed the sea, in a great burning, bright and terrible. And Fingolfin and his people saw the light afar off, red beneath the clouds, and they knew that they were betrayed. This was the first fruits of the kinslaying and the doom of the Noldor. Then Fingolfin, seeing that Feanor had left him to perish in Araman or return in shame to Valinor, was filled with bitterness. 
but he desired now as never before to come by some way to Middle-earth and meet Feanor again. And he and his host wandered long in misery, but their valour and endurance grew with hardship, for they were a mighty people, the elder children undying of Eru Iluvata, but new come from the blessed realm, and not yet weary with the weariness of earth. The fire of their hearts was young, and led by Fingolfin and his sons, and by Finrod and Galadriel, they dared to pass into the bitterest north, and finding no other way, they endured at last the terror of the Helcaraxa and the cruel hills of ice. Few of the deeds of the Noldor thereafter surpassed that desperate crossing in hardihood or woe. There Elenwe, the wife of Torgon, was lost, and many others perished also. And it was with a lessened host that Fingolfin set foot at last upon the outer lands. Small love for Feanor or his sons had those that marched at last behind him, and blew their trumpets in Middle-earth at the first rising of the moon. Of the Sindar now, as has been told, the power of Elwe and Melian increased in Middle-earth, and all the elves of Beleriand, from the mariners of Curden to the wandering hunters of the Blue Mountains beyond the river Gelion, owned Elwe as their lord. Elu Thingol, he was called, King Greymantle in the tongue of his people. They are called the Sindar, the grey elves of starlit Beleriand. And although they were Moriquendi under the lordship of Thingol and the teaching of Melian, they became the fairest and the most wise and skilful of all the elves of Middle-earth. And at the end of the first age of the training of Melkor, when all the earth had peace and the glory of Valinor was at its noon, there came into the world Luthien, the only child of Thingol and Melian. Though Middle-earth lay for the most part in the sleep of Yavanna, in Beleriand, under the power of Melian, there was life and joy, and the bright stars shone as silver fires. And there in the forest of Neldoreth, Luthien was born, and the white flowers of Nipchredil came forth to greet her as stars from the earth. It came to pass during the second age of the captivity of Melkor, that dwarves came over the blue mountains of Ered Luin into Beleriand. Themselves they named Khazad, but the Sindar called them Naugrim, the stunted people, and Gonhirim, masters of stone. Far to the east were the most ancient dwellings of the Naugrim, but they had delved for themselves great halls and mansions after the manner of their kind in the eastern side of Ered Luin. And those cities were named in their own tongue, Gabil-Gathol and Tumunzahar. To the north of the great height of Mount Dolmed was Gabil-Gathol, which the elves interpreted in their tongue Belegost, that is, Miklaberg. And southward was delved Tumunzahar by the elves named Nogrod, the Hollowbold. Greatest of all the mansions of the dwarves was Khazad-dûm, the Dwarodelf, Hathodrond in the elvish tongue, that was afterwards in the days of its darkness called Moria. 
but it was far off in the mountains of mist, beyond the wide leagues of Eriador, and to the Eldar came but as a name and a rumour from the words of the dwarves of the Blue Mountains. From Nogrod and Belagost the Naugrim came forth into Beleriand, and the elves were filled with amazement, for they had believed themselves to be the only living things in Middle-earth that spoke with words or wrought with hands, and that all others were but birds and beasts. But they could understand no word of the tongue of the Naugrim, which to their ears was cumbrous and unlovely, and few ever of the Eldar have achieved the mastery of it. But the dwarves were swift to learn, and indeed were more willing to learn the elven tongue than to teach their own to those of alien race. Few of the Eldar went ever to Nogrod and Belegost, save Eol of Nan Elmoth, and Maeglin his son. But the dwarves trafficked into Beleriand, and they made a great road that passed under the shoulders of Mount Dolmid, and followed the course of the river Askar, crossing Gelion at San Athrad, the ford of stones, where battle after befell. Ever cool was the friendship between the Naugrim and the Eldar, though much profit they had one of the other, but at that time those griefs that lay between them had not yet come to pass, and King Thingol welcomed them. But the Naugrim gave their friendship more readily to the Noldor in after days than to any others of elves and men, because of their love and reverence for Aula, and the gems of the Noldor they praised above all other wealth. In the darkness of Arda already the dwarves wrought great works, for even from the first days of their fathers they had marvellous skill with metals and with stone. But in that ancient time iron and copper they loved to work, rather than silver or gold. Now Melian had much foresight after the manner of the Maya, and when the second age of the captivity of Melkor had passed, she counselled Thingol that the peace of Arda would not last for ever. He took thought, therefore, how he should make for himself a kingly dwelling, and a place that should be strong if evil were to awake again in Middle-earth. And he sought aid and counsel of the dwarves of Belegost. They gave it willingly, for they were unwearied in those days, and eager for new works. And though the dwarves ever demanded a price for all that they did, whether with delight or with toil, at this time they held themselves paid. For Melian taught them much that they were eager to learn, and Thingol rewarded them with many fair pearls. These Cirden gave to him, for they were got in great number in the shallow waters about the Isle of Balar. But the Naugrim had not before seen their like, and they held them dear. One there was, as great as a dove's egg, and its sheen was a starlight in the foam of the sea. Nymphhelos, it was named, and the chieftain of the dwarves of Belegost prized it above a mountain of wealth. Therefore the Naugrim laboured long and gladly for Thingol, and devised for him mansions after the fashion of their people, delved deep in the earth. Where the Esgalduin flowed down and parted Neldoreth from Regian, there rose in the midst of the forest a rocky hill, and the river ran at its feet. There they made the gates of the hall of Thingol, and they built a bridge of stone over the river by which alone the gates could be entered. 
Beyond the gates, wide passages ran down to high halls and chambers far below that were hewn in the living stone, so many and so great that the dwelling was named Menigroth, the Thousand Caves. But the elves also had part in that labor, and elves and dwarves together, each with their own skill, there wrought out the visions of Melian, images of the wonder and beauty of Valinor beyond the sea. The pillars of Menegroth were hewn in the likeness of the beeches of Orima, stock, bough, and leaf, and they were lit with lanterns of gold. The nightingale sang there as in the gardens of Lorien, and there were fountains of silver and basins of marble and floors of many-coloured stones. Carven figures of beasts and birds there ran upon the walls, or climbed upon the pillars, or peered among the branches entwined with many flowers. And as the years passed, Melian and her maidens filled the halls with woven hangings, wherein could be read the deeds of the Valar, and many things that had befallen in Arda since its beginning, and shadows of things that were yet to be. That was the fairest dwelling of any king that has ever been east of the sea. And when the building of Menegroth was achieved, and there was peace in the realm of Thingol and Melian, the Naugrim yet came ever and anon over the mountains, and went in traffic about the lands. But they went seldom to the Phalas, for they hated the sound of the sea, and feared to look upon it. To Beleriand there came no other rumour or tidings of the world without. But as the third age of the captivity of Melkor drew on, the dwarves became troubled, and they spoke to King Thingol, saying that the Valar had not rooted out utterly the evils of the north, and now the remnant, having long multiplied in the dark, were coming forth once more and roaming far and wide. There are fell beasts, they said, in the land east of the mountains, and your ancient kindred that dwell there are flying from the plains to the hills. And ere long, the evil creatures came even to Beleriand, over passes in the mountains or up from the south through the dark forests. Wolves there were, or creatures that walked in wolf shapes, and other fell beings of shadow, and among them were the orcs, who afterwards wrought ruin in Beleriand. But they were yet few and wary, and did but smell out the ways of the land, awaiting the return of their lord. Whence they came, or what they were, the elves knew not then, thinking them perhaps to be Avari, who had become evil and savage in the wild, in which they guessed all too near, it is said. Therefore Thingol took thought for arms, which before his people had not needed, and these at first the Naugrim smithed for him, for they were greatly skilled in such work, though none among them surpassed the craftsmen of Nogrod, of whom Telkar the smith was greatest in renown. A warlike race of old were all the Naugrim, and they would fight fiercely against whomsoever aggrieved them. Servants of Melkar, or Eldar, or Avari, or wild beasts, or not seldom their own kin, dwarves of other mansions and lordships. Their smithcraft, indeed, the Sindar soon learned of them. 
yet in the tempering of steel alone of all crafts, the dwarves were never outmatched, even by the Noldor. And in the making of mail of linked rings, which was first contrived by the smiths of Belegost, their work had no rival. At this time, therefore, the Sindar were well armed, and they drove off all creatures of evil and had peace again. But Thingol's armories were stored with axes and with spears and swords and tall helms and long coats of bright mail. For the hauberks of the dwarves were so fashioned that they rusted not, but shone ever as if they were new burnished. And that proved well for Thingol in the time that was to come. Now, as has been told, one Lenwe of the host of Olwe forsook the march of the Eldar at that time when the Teleri were halted by the shores of the great river upon the borders of the westlands of Middle-earth. Little is known of the wanderings of the Nandor, whom he led away down Anduin. Some, it is said, dwelt age-long in the woods of the Vale of the Great River. Some came at last to its mouths, and there dwelt by the sea, and yet others, passing by Ered Nimrais, the White Mountains, came north again and entered the wilderness of Eriador between Ered Luin and the far mountains of Mist. Now these were a woodland people, and had no weapons of steel, and the coming of the fell beasts of the north filled them with great fear, as the Naugrim declared to King Thingol in Menegroth. Therefore Denethor, the son of Lenwe, hearing rumour of the might of Thingol and his majesty, and of the peace of his realm, gathered such host of his scattered people as he could, and led them over the mountains into Beleriand. There they were welcomed by Thingol, as kin long lost that returned, and they dwelt in Ossiriand, the land of seven rivers. Of the long years of peace that followed after the coming of Denethor, there is little tale. In those days it is said, Daeron, the minstrel, chief lawmaster of the kingdom of Thingol, devised his runes, and the Naugrim that came to Thingol learned them and were well pleased with the device, esteeming Daeron's skill higher than did the Sindar, his own people. By the Naugrim, the Kirth were taken east over the mountains and passed into the knowledge of many peoples. But they were little used by the Sindar for the keeping of records until the days of the war, and much that was held in memory perished in the ruins of Doriath. But of bliss and glad life there is little to be said before it ends. As works fair and wonderful, while still they endure for eyes to see, are their own record, and only when they are in peril or broken for ever do they pass into song. In Beleriand in those days the elves walked, and the rivers flowed, and the stars shone, and the night flowers gave forth their scents. And the beauty of Melian was as the noon, and the beauty of Luthien was as the dawn in spring. In Beleriand, King Thingol upon his throne was as the lords of the Maya, whose power is at rest, whose joy is as an air that they breathe in all their days, whose thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. In Beleriand, still at times rode Oreme the Great, passing like a wind over the mountains, and the sound of his horn came down the leagues of the starlight, 
and the elves feared him for the splendor of his countenance and the great noise of the onrush of Naha. But when the Valaroma echoed in the hills, they knew well that all evil things were fled far away. But it came to pass at last that the end of bliss was at hand, and the noontide of Valinor was drawing to its twilight. For as has been told, and as is known to all, being written in lore and sung in many songs, Melkor slew the trees of the Valar with the aid of Ungoliant, and escaped, and came back to Middle-earth. Far to the north befell the strife of Morgoth and Ungoliant. But the great cry of Morgoth echoed through Beleriand, and all its people shrank with fear. For though they knew not what it foreboded, they heard then the herald of death. Soon afterwards Ungoliant fled from the north and came into the realm of King Thengol, and the terror of darkness was about her. But by the power of Melian she was stayed, and entered not into Neldoreth, but abode long time under the shadow of the precipices in which Dorthonian fell southward. And they became known as Ered Gorgoroth, the mountains of terror, and none dared to go thither, or pass nigh them. There life and light were strangled, and there all waters were poisoned. But Morgoth, as has before been told, returned to Angband and built it anew. And above its doors he reared the reeking towers of Thangorodrim, and the gates of Morgoth were but one hundred and fifty leagues distant from the bridge of Menegroth. Far and yet all too near. Now the orcs that multiplied in the darkness of the earth grew strong and fell, and their dark lord filled them with a lust of ruin and death, and they issued from Angban's gates under the clouds that Morgoth sent forth, and passed silently into the highlands of the north. Thence on a sudden a great army came into Beleriand, and assailed King Thingol, now in his wide realm many elves wandered free in the wild, or dwelt at peace in small kindreds far sundered, and only about Menegroth in the midst of the land, and along the Phalas in the country of the Mariners, were their numerous peoples. But the orcs came down upon either side of Menegroth, and from camps in the east between Kelon and Gelion, and west in the plains between Sirion and Narog, they plundered far and wide and Thingol was cut off from Círdan at Eglarest. Therefore he called upon Denethor, and the elves came in force from Region beyond Aros and from Osiriand, and fought the first battle in the wars of Beleriand. And the eastern host of the orcs was taken between the armies of the Eldar north of the Andram and midway between Aros and Gelion, and there they were utterly defeated." and those that fled north from the great slaughter were waylaid by the axes of the Naugrim that issued from Mount Dolmed. Few indeed returned to Angband. But the victory of the elves was dear-bought. For those of Osiriand were light-armed and no match for the orcs, who were shod with iron and iron-shielded and bore great spears with broad blades, and Denethor was cut off and surrounded upon the hill of Ammon Ereb. There he fell, and all his nearest kin about him, before the host of Thingol could come to his aid. 
Bitterly, though his fall was avenged, when Thingol came upon the rear of the orcs and slew them in heaps, his people lamented him ever after and took no king again. After the battle some returned to Osiriand, and their tidings filled the remnant of their people with great fear, so that thereafter they came never forth in open war, but kept themselves by wariness and secrecy. And they were called the Lyquendi, the Green Elves, because of their raiment of the colour of leaves. But many went north and entered the guarded realm of Thingol, and were merged with his people. And when Thingol came again to Menegroth, he learned that the orc host in the west was victorious and had driven Círdan to the rim of the sea. Therefore he withdrew all his people that his summons could reach within the fastness of Neldoreth and Region. And Melian put forth her power and fenced all that dominion round about with an unseen wall of shadow and bewilderment, the girdle of Melian that none thereafter could pass against her will or the will of King Thingol, unless one should come with a power greater than that of Melian the Maya. And this inner land, which was long named Eglador, was after called Doriath, the guarded kingdom, land of the girdle. Within it there was yet a watchful peace, but without there was peril and great fear, and the servants of Morgoth roamed at will, save in the walled havens of the Phallas. But new tidings were at hand, which none in Middle-earth had foreseen, neither Morgoth in his pits, nor Melian in Menegroth. For no news came out of Ammon, whether by messenger, or by spirit, or by vision in dream, after the death of the trees. In this same time, Theonor came over the sea in the white ships of the Teleri, and landed in the firth of Drengist, and there burned the ships at Losgar. Of the sun and moon, and the hiding of Valinor. It is told that after the flight of Melkor, the Valar sat long unmoved upon their thrones in the Ring of Doom. But they were not idle, as Feanor declared in the folly of his heart. For the Valar may work many things with thought rather than with hands and without voices, in silence, they may hold counsel one with another. Thus they held vigil in the night of Valinor, and their thought passed back beyond Ea, and forth to the end. Yet neither wisdom nor power assuaged their grief, and the knowing of evil in the hour of its being. And they mourned not more for the death of the trees than for the marring of Feanor. Of the works of Melkor, one of the most evil. For Feanor was made the mightiest in all parts of body and mind, in valor, in endurance, in beauty, in understanding, in skill, in strength, and in subtlety alike, of all the children of Iluvata, and a bright flame was in him. The works of wonder for the glory of Arda that he might otherwise have wrought, only Manwe might in some measure conceive. And it was told by the Vanya who held vigil with the Valar, that when the messengers declared to Manwe the answers of Feanor to his heralds, Manwe wept and bowed his head. But at that last word of Feanor, 
that at the least the Noldor should do deeds to live in song for ever, he raised his head as one that hears a voice far off, and he said, So shall it be. Dear bought those songs shall be accounted, and yet shall be well bought, for the price could be no other. Thus even as Eru spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into Ar, and evil yet be good to have been. But Mandos said, And yet remain evil. To me shall Feanor come soon. But when at last the Valar learned that the Noldor had indeed passed out of Ammon and were come back into Middle-earth, they arose and began to set forth in deeds those counsels which they had taken in thought for the redress of the evils of Melkor. Then Manwe bade Yavanna and Nienna to put forth all their powers of growth and healing, and they put forth all their powers upon the trees. But the tears of Nienna availed not to heal their mortal wounds, and for a long while Yavanna sang alone in the shadows. Yet even as hope failed and her song faltered, Telperion bore at last upon a leafless bough one great flower of silver, and Laurelin a single fruit of gold. These Yavanna took, and then the trees died, and their lifeless stems stand yet in Valinor, a memorial of vanished joy. But the flower and the fruit Yavanna gave to Aula, and Manwe hallowed them, and Aula and his people made vessels to hold them and preserve their radiance, as is said in the Narsilian, the song of the sun and moon. These vessels the Valar gave to Varda, that they might become lamps of heaven, outshining the ancient stars, being nearer to Arda. And she gave them power to traverse the lower regions of Ilmen, and set them to voyage upon appointed courses above the girdle of the earth, from the west unto the east, and to return. These things the Valar did, recalling in their twilight the darkness of the lands of Arda, and they resolved now to illumine Middle-earth, and with light to hinder the deeds of Melkor. For they remembered the Avari that remained by the waters of their awakening, and they did not utterly forsake the Noldor in exile, and Manwe knew also that the hour of the coming of men was drawn nigh. And it is said indeed that even as the Valar made war upon Melkor for the sake of the Quendi, so now for that time they forbore for the sake of the Hildor, the aftercomers, the younger children of Iluvata. For so grievous had been the hurts of Middle-earth in the war upon Utumno, that the Valar feared lest even worse should now befall. Whereas the Hildor should be mortal and weaker than the Quendi to withstand fear and tumult. Moreover, it was not revealed to Manwe where the beginning of men should be, north, south, or east. Therefore, the Valar sent forth light, but made strong the land of their dwelling. Isil the Sheen, the Vanya of old, named the moon, flower of Telperion in Valinor. And Anar the fire-golden, fruit of Laurelin, they named the sun. But the Noldor named them also Rana, the wayward, and Vaza, the heart of fire that awakens and consumes.
for the sun was set as a sign for the awakening of men and the waning of the elves, but the moon cherishes their memory. The maiden whom the Valar chose from among the Maya to guide the vessel of the sun was named Arian, and he that steered the island of the moon was Tilion. In the days of the trees, Arian had tended the golden flowers in the gardens of Varna and watered them with the bright dews of Laurelin. But Tilion was a hunter of the company of Orime, and he had a silver bow. He was a lover of silver, and when he would rest, he forsook the woods of Arima, and going into Lorien, he lay in dream by the pools of Este, in Telperion's flickering beams, and he begged to be given the task of tending forever the last flower of silver. Arion the maiden was mightier than he, and she was chosen because she had not feared the heats of Laurelin, and was unhurt by them, being from the beginning a spirit of fire whom Melkor had not deceived nor drawn to his service. Too bright were the eyes of Arian for even the Eldar to look on, and leaving Valinor she forsook the form and raiment which, like the Valar, she had worn there, and she was as a naked flame, terrible in the fullness of her splendour. Isil was first wrought and made ready, and first rose into the realm of the stars, and was the elder of the new lights, as was Telperion of the trees. Then for a while the world had moonlight, and many things stirred and woke that had waited long in the sleep of Yavanna. The servants of Morgoth were filled with amazement, but the elves of the outer lands looked up in delight, and even as the moon rose above the darkness in the west, Fingolfin let blow his silver trumpets and began his march into Middle-earth, and the shadows of his host went long and black before them. Tilion had traversed the heaven seven times, and thus was in the furthest east when the vessel of Arion was made ready. Then Anar arose in glory, and the first dawn of the sun was like a great fire upon the towers of the Pelori. The clouds of Middle-earth were kindled, and there was heard the sound of many waterfalls. Then indeed Morgoth was dismayed, and he descended into the uttermost depths of Angband, and withdrew his servants, sending forth great reek and dark cloud to hide his land from the light of the day-star. Now Varda purposed that the two vessels should journey into Ilmen, and ever be aloft, but not together. Each should pass from Valinor into the east and return, the one issuing from the west as the other turned from the east. Thus the first of the new days were reckoned after the manner of the trees, from the mingling of the lights when Arian and Tilion passed in their courses, above the middle of the earth. But Tilion was wayward and uncertain in speed, and held not to his appointed path. And he sought to come near to Arian, being drawn by her splendour, though the flame of Anna scorched him, and the island of the moon was darkened. Because of the waywardness of Tilion, therefore, and yet more because of the prayers of Lorian and Este, who said that sleep and rest had been banished from the earth, and the stars were hidden, Varda changed her counsel, and allowed a time wherein the world should still have shadow and half-light. Anna rested there for a while in Valinor, lying upon the cool bosom of the outer sea, and evening 
the time of the descent and resting of the sun, was the hour of greatest light and joy in Amman. But soon the sun was drawn down by the servants of Ulmo, and went then in haste under the earth, and so came unseen to the east, and there mounted the heaven again, lest night be overlong an evil walk under the moon. But by Anna the waters of the outer sea were made hot and glowed with coloured fire, and Valinor had light for a while after the passing of Arian. Yet as she journeyed under the earth and drew towards the east, the glow faded, and Valinor was dim, and the Valar mourned then most for the death of Laurelin. At dawn the shadows of the mountains of defence lay heavy on the blessed realm. Varda commanded the moon to journey in like manner, and passing under earth to arise in the east, but only after the sun had descended from heaven. But Tilian went with uncertain pace, as yet he goes, and was still drawn towards Arian, as he shall ever be, so that often both may be seen above the earth together, or at times it will chance that he comes so nigh that his shadow cuts off her brightness, and there is a darkness amid the day. Therefore, by the coming and going of Anna, the Valar reckoned the days thereafter, until the change of the world. For Tilion tarried seldom in Valinor, but more often would pass swiftly over the western land, over Avathar, or Araman, or Valinor, and plunge in the chasm beyond the outer sea, pursuing his way alone amid the grots and caverns at the roots of Arda. There he would often wander long, and late he would return. Still, therefore, after the long night, the light of Valinor was greater and fairer than upon Middle-earth, for the sun rested there, and the lights of heaven drew nearer to earth in that region. But neither the sun nor the moon can recall the light that was of old, that came from the trees before they were touched by the poison of Ungoliant. That light lives now in the Silmarils alone. But Morgoth hated the new lights, and was for a while confounded by this unlooked-for stroke of the Valar. Then he assailed Tilian, sending spirits of shadow against him, and there was strife in Ilmen beneath the paths of the stars. But Tilian was victorious. And Arian, Morgoth feared with a great fear, but dared not come nigh her, having indeed no longer the power. For as he grew in malice and sent forth from himself the evil that he conceived in lies and creatures of wickedness, his might passed into them and was dispersed. And he himself became ever more bound to the earth, unwilling to issue from his dark strongholds. With shadows he hid himself and his servants from Arian, the glance of whose eyes they could not long endure, and the lands near his dwelling were shrouded in fumes and great clouds. But seeing the assault upon Tilian, the valor were in doubt, fearing what the malice and cunning of Morgoth might yet contrive against them. Being unwilling to make war upon him in Middle-earth, they remembered nonetheless the ruin of Almeren, and they resolved that the like should not befall Valinor. Therefore at that time they fortified their land anew, and they raised up the mountain walls of the Pelori to sheer and dreadful heights, east, north, and south.
Their outer sides were dark and smooth, without foothold or ledge, and they fell in great precipices with faces hard as glass, and rose up to towers with crowns of white ice. A sleepless watch was set upon them, and no pass led through them, save only at the Kalakiria. But that pass the Valar did not close, because of the Eldar that were faithful, and in the city of Tyrion upon the green hill, Finarfin yet ruled the remnants of the Noldor in the deep cleft of the mountains. For all those of elven race, even the Vanya and Ingwe, their lord, must breathe at times the outer air and the wind that comes over the sea from the lands of their birth. And the Valar would not sunder the Teleri wholly from their kin. But in the Kalakiria they set strong towers and many sentinels, and at its issue upon the plains of Valmar a host was encamped, so that neither bird nor beast nor elf nor man nor any creature beside that dwelt in Middle-earth could pass that leaguer. And in that time also, which songs call Nurtale Valenoreva, the hiding of Valinor, the enchanted isles, was set, and all the seas about them were filled with shadows and bewilderment. And these isles were strung as a net in the shadowy seas from the north to the south, before Tol Eresia, the lonely isle, is reached by one sailing west. Hardly might any vessel pass between them, for in the dangerous sounds the waves sighed forever upon dark rocks shrouded in mist. And in the twilight a great weariness came upon mariners and a loathing of the sea. But all that ever set foot upon the islands were there entrapped and slept until the change of the world. Thus it was that as Mandos foretold to them in Araman, the blessed realm was shut against the Noldor. And of the many messengers that in after days sailed into the west, none came ever to Valinor, save one only, the mightiest mariner of song. Of Men the Valar sat now behind their mountains at peace, and having given light to Middle-earth, they left it for long untended, and the lordship of Morgoth was uncontested save by the Valar of the Noldor. Most in mind Ulmo kept the exiles, who gathered news of the earth through all the waters. From this time forth were reckoned the years of the sun— Swifter and briefer are they than the long years of the trees in Valinor. In that time the air of Middle-earth became heavy with the breath of growth and mortality, and the changing and aging of all things was hastened exceedingly. Life teemed upon the soil and in the waters in the second spring of Arda, and the Eldar increased, and beneath the new sun Beleriand grew green and fair. At the first rising of the sun, the younger children of Iluvata awoke in the land of Hildorian, in the eastward regions of Middle-earth. But the first sun arose in the west, and the opening eyes of men were turned towards it, and their feet, as they wandered over the earth for the most part, strayed that way. The Atani they were named by the Eldar, the second people. 
but they called them also Hildor the Followers, and many other names, Apanona the Afterborn, Engwar the Sickly, and Firima the Mortals. And they named them the Usurpers, the Strangers, and the Inscrutable, the Self-Cursed, the Heavy-Handed, the Night-Fearers, the Children of the Sun. Of men, little is told in these tales which concern the eldest days before the waxing of mortals and the waning of the elves, save of those fathers of men, the Atanatari, who in the first years of the sun and moon wandered into the north of the world. To Hildorian there came no valour to guide men or to summon them to dwell in Valinor, and men have feared the valour rather than loved them and have not understood the purposes of the powers, being at variance with them, and at strife with the world. Ulmo nonetheless took thought for them, aiding the counsel and will of Manwe, and his messages came often to them by stream and flood. But they have not skill in such matters, and still less had they in those days before they had mingled with the elves. Therefore they loved the waters, and their hearts were stirred, but they understood not the messages. Yet it is told that ere long they met dark elves in many places, and were befriended by them, and men became the companions and disciples in their childhood of these ancient folk, wanderers of the elven race, who never set out upon the paths to Valinor, and knew of the Valar only as a rumour and a distant name. Morgoth had then not long come back into Middle-earth, and his power went not far abroad, and was, moreover, checked by the sudden coming of great light. There was little peril in the lands and hills, and there were new things devised long ages before in the thought of Yavanna, and sown a seed in the dark, came at last to their budding and their bloom. West, north, and south, the children of men spread and wandered, and their joy was the joy of the morning before the dew is dry, when every leaf is green. But the dawn is brief, and the day full often belies its promise. And now the time drew on to the great wars of the powers of the north, when Noldor and Sindar and men strove against the hosts of Morgoth Bauglir, and went down in ruin. To this end, the cunning lies of Morgoth that he sowed of old, and sowed ever anew among his foes, and the curse that came of the slaying at Alqualande, and the oath of Feanor, were ever at work. Only a part is here told of the deeds of those days, and most is said of the Noldor, and the Silmarils, and the mortals that became entangled in their fate. In those days elves and men were of like stature and strength of body, but the elves had greater wisdom and skill and beauty, and those who had dwelt in Valinor and looked upon the powers as much surpassed the dark elves in these things as they in turn surpassed the people of mortal race. Only in the realm of Doriath, whose queen Melian was of the kindred of Valar, did the Sindar come near to match the Calaquendi of the blessed realm. Immortal were the elves, and their wisdom waxed from age to age, and no sickness nor pestilence brought death to them. 
Their bodies, indeed, were of the stuff of earth, and could be destroyed. And in those days they were more like to the bodies of men, since they had not so long been inhabited by the fire of their spirit, which consumes them from within in the courses of time. But men were more frail, more easily slain by weapon or mischance, and less easily healed, subject to sickness and many ills, and they grew old and died. What may befall their spirits after death, the elves know not. Some say that they too go to the halls of Mandos. But their place of waiting there is not that of the elves, and Mandos, under Ilovata alone, save Manwe, knows whither they go after the time of recollection in those silent halls beside the outer sea. None have ever come back from the mansions of the dead, save only Beren, son of Barahir, whose hand had touched a Silmaril. But he never spoke afterwards to mortal men. The fate of men after death, maybe, is not in the hands of the Valar, nor was all foretold in the music of the Ainur. In after days, when because of the triumph of Morgoth, elves and men became estranged, as he most wished, those of the elven race that lived still in Middle-earth waned and faded, and men usurped the sunlight. Then the Quendi wandered in the lonely places of the great lands and the isles, and took to the moonlight and the starlight and to the woods and caves, becoming as shadows and memories, save those who ever and anon set sail into the west and vanished from Middle-earth. But in the dawn of years, elves and men were allies, and held themselves akin, and there were some among men that learned the wisdom of the Eldar, and became great and valiant among the captains of the Noldor. And in the glory and beauty of the elves, and in their fate, full share had the offspring of elf and mortal, Yerendil, and Elwing, and Elrond their child. Turn of the Noldor. It has been told that Feanor and his sons came first of the exiles to Middle-earth and landed in the waste of Lamoth, the Great Echo, upon the outer shores of the Firth of Drengist. And even as the Noldor set foot upon the strand, their cries were taken up into the hills and multiplied, 
so that a clamor as of countless mighty voices filled all the coasts of the north. And the noise of the burning of the ships at Lothgar went down the winds of the sea as a tumult of great wrath. And far away, all who heard that sound were filled with wonder. Now the flames of that burning were seen not only by Fingolfin, whom Feanor had deserted in Araman, but also by the orcs and the watchers of Morgoth. No tale has told what Morgoth thought in his heart at the tidings that Feanor, his bitterest foe, had brought a host out of the west. It may be that he feared him little, for he had as yet no proof of the swords of the Noldor, and soon it was seen that he purposed to drive them back into the sea. Under the cold stars before the rising of the moon, the host of Feanor went up the long firth of Drengist, that pierced the echoing hills of Ered Lomin, and passed thus from the shores into the great land of Hithlam. And they came at length to the long lake of Mithrim, and upon its northern shore made their encampment in that region that bore the same name. But the host of Morgoth, aroused by the tumult of Lamoth and the light of the burning at Lothgar, came through the passes of Ered Wethrin, the Mountains of Shadow, and assailed Feanor on a sudden before his camp was full-wrought or put in defence. And there on the grey fields of Mithrim was fought the second battle in the wars of Beleriand. Dagor Nuin Giliath, it is named, the battle under stars, for the moon had not yet risen, and it is renowned in song. The Noldor, outnumbered and taken at unawares, were yet swiftly victorious, for the light of Amman was not yet dimmed in their eyes, and they were strong and swift, and deadly in anger, and their swords were long and terrible. The orcs fled before them, and they were driven forth from Mithrim with great slaughter, and hunted over the mountains of shadow into the great plain of Ard-Garlan, that lay northward of Dorthonion. There the armies of Morgoth that had passed south into the Vale of Syrian and beleaguered Círdan in the havens of the Phallus, came up to their aid and were caught in their ruin. For Celegorm, Feanor's son, having news of them, waylaid them with a part of the elven host, and coming down upon them out of the hills near Ithel Syrian, drove them into the fen of Serek. Evil indeed were the tidings that came at last to Angband, and Morgoth was dismayed. Ten days that battle lasted, and from it returned of all the hosts that he had prepared for the conquest of Beleriand, no more than a handful of leaves. Yet cause he had for great joy, though it was hidden from him for a while, for Feanor, in his wrath against the enemy, would not halt, but pressed on behind the remnant of the orcs, thinking so as to come at Morgoth himself, and he laughed aloud as he wielded his sword, rejoicing that he had dared the wrath of the Valar and the evils of the road, that he might see the hour of his vengeance. Nothing did he know of Angband or the great strength of defence that Morgoth had so swiftly prepared. But even had he known, it would not have deterred him, for he was fey, consumed by the flame of his own wrath. Thus it was that he drew far ahead of the van of his host, and seeing this the servants of Morgoth turned to bay, and there issued from Angband Balrogs to aid them. 
There, upon the confines of Dor Daedaloth, the land of Morgoth, Feanor was surrounded with few friends about him. Long he fought on, and undismayed, though he was wrapped in fire and wounded with many wounds. But at the last he was spitten to the ground by Gothmog, lord of Balrogs, whom Echthelion after slew in Gondolin. There he would have perished, had not his sons in that moment come up with force to his aid, and the Balrogs left him and departed to Angband. Then his sons raised up their father and bore him back towards Mithrim. But as they drew near to Aethor Syrian, and were upon the upward path to the pass over the mountains, Feanor bade them halt, for his wounds were mortal, and he knew that his hour was come. And looking out from the slopes of Ered Wethrin, with his last sight, he beheld far off the peaks of Thangorodrim, mightiest of the towers of Middle-earth, and knew with the foreknowledge of death that no power of the Noldor would ever overthrow them. But he cursed the name of Morgoth thrice, and laid it upon his sons to hold to their oath and to avenge their father. Then he died. But he had neither burial nor tomb, for so fiery was his spirit, that as it sped his body fell to ash and was borne away like smoke. And his likeness has never again appeared in Arda. Neither has his spirit left the halls of Mandos. Thus ended the mightiest of the Noldor, of whose deeds came both their greatest renown and their most grievous woe. Now in Mithrim there dwelt grey elves, folk of Beleriand, that had wandered north over the mountains, and the Noldor met them with gladness as kinsfolk long sundered. But speech at first was not easy between them, for in their long severance the tongues of the Calaquendi in Valinor and of the Moraquendi in Beleriand had drawn far apart. From the elves of Mithrim, the Noldor learned of the power of Eluthingol, king in Doriath, and the girdle of enchantment that fenced his realm. And tidings of these great deeds in the north came south to Menegroth, and to the havens of Brithomba and Eglarest. Then all the elves of Beleriand were filled with wonder and with hope at the coming of their mighty kindred, who thus returned unlooked for from the west in the very hour of their need, believing indeed at first that they came as emissaries of the Valar to deliver them. But even in the hour of the death of Feanor, an embassy came to his sons from Morgoth, acknowledging defeat and offering terms even to the surrender of a Silmaril. Then Maithros the Tall, the eldest son, persuaded his brothers to feign to treat with Morgoth, and to meet his emissaries at the place appointed. But the Noldor had as little thought of faith as had he. Wherefore, each embassy came with greater force than was agreed. But Morgoth sent them more, and they were Balrogs. Maithros was ambushed, and all his company were slain, but he himself was taken alive by the command of Morgoth, and brought to Angband. Then the brothers of Maithros drew back and fortified a great camp in Hithlum. But Morgoth held Maithros as hostage, and sent word that he would not release him unless the Noldor would forsake their war, returning into the west, or else departing far from Beleriand into the south of the world. 
but the sons of Feanor knew that Morgoth would betray them and would not release Maedhros, whatsoever they might do. And they were constrained also by their oath, and might not for any cause forsake the war against their enemy. Therefore Morgoth took Maedhros and hung him from the face of a precipice upon Thangorodrim, and he was caught to the rock by the wrist of his right hand in a band of steel. Now rumour came to the camp in Hithlum of the march of Fingolfin and those that followed him, who had crossed the grinding ice, and all the world lay then in wonder at the coming of the moon. But as the host of Fingolfin marched into Mithrim, the sun rose flaming in the west, and Fingolfin unfurled his blue and silver banners and blew his horns, and flowers sprang beneath his marching feet, and the ages of the stars were ended. At the uprising of the great light, the servants of Morgoth fled into Angband, and Fingolfin passed unopposed through the fastness of Dor Daedaloth, while his foes hid beneath the earth. Then the elves smote upon the gates of Angband, and the challenge of their trumpets shook the towers of Thangorodrim. And Maedhros heard them amid his torment, and cried aloud, but his voice was lost in the echoes of the stone. But Fingolfin, being of other temper than Feanor, and wary of the wiles of Morgoth, withdrew from Dor Daedaloth, and turned back towards Mithrim, for he had heard tidings that there he should find the sons of Feanor, and he desired also to have the shield of the mountains of shadow while his people rested and grew strong. For he had seen the strength of Angband, and thought not that it would fall to the sound of trumpets only. Therefore, coming at length to Hithlam, he made his first camp and dwellings by the northern shores of Lake Mithrim. No love was there in the hearts of those that followed Fingolfin for the house of Feanor, for the agony of those that endured the crossing of the ice had been great, and Fingolfin held the sons the accomplices of their father. Then there was peril of strife between the hosts. But grievous as were their losses upon the road, the people of Fingolfin and of Finrod, son of Finarfin, were still more numerous than the followers of Feanor, and these now withdrew before them and removed their dwelling to the southern shore, and the lake lay between them. Many of Feanor's people indeed repented of the burning at Loscar, and were filled with amazement at the valour that had brought the friends whom they had abandoned over the ice of the north, and they would have welcomed them, but they dared not for shame. Thus, because of the curse that lay upon them, the Noldor achieved nothing, while Morgoth hesitated, and the dread of light was new and strong upon the orcs. But Morgoth arose from thought, and seeing the division of his foes, he laughed. In the pits of Angband he caused vast smokes and vapours to be made, and they came forth from the reeking tops of the Iron Mountains, and afar off they could be seen in Mithrim, staining the bright airs in the first mornings of the world. A wind came out of the east and bore them over Hithlam, darkening the new sun, and they fell and coiled about the fields and hollows and lay upon the waters of Mithrim, drear and poisonous. Then Fingon the Valiant, son of Fingolfin, resolved to heal the feud that divided the Noldor, before the enemy should be ready for war. 
for the earth trembled in the Northlands with the thunder of the forges of Morgoth underground. Long before, in the bliss of Valinor, before Melkor was unchained, or lies came between them, Fingon had been close in friendship with Maedhros. And though he knew not yet that Maedhros had not forgotten him at the burning of the ships, the thought of their ancient friendship stung his heart. Therefore he dared a deed which is justly renowned among the feats of the princes of the Noldor. Alone, and without the counsel of any, he set forth in search of Maedhros. And aided by the very darkness that Morgoth had made, he came unseen to the fastness of his foes. High upon the shoulders of Thangorodrim he climbed, and looked in despair upon the desolation of the land. But no passage or crevice could he find through which he might come within Morgoth's stronghold. Then, in defiance of the orcs, who cowered still in the dark vaults beneath the earth, he took his harp and sang a song of Valinor that the Noldor made of old before strife was born among the sons of Finwë and his voice rang in the mournful hollows that had never heard before aught save cries of fear and woe. Thus Fingon found what he sought, for suddenly above him far and faint his song was taken up, and a voice answering called to him. Maithras it was that sang amid his torment. But Fingon climbed to the foot of the precipice where his kinsman hung, and then could go no further and he wept when he saw the cruel device of Morgoth. Maithras, therefore, being in anguish without hope, begged Fingon to shoot him with his bow. And Fingon strung an arrow and bent his bow, and seeing no better hope, he cried to Manwe, saying, O king to whom all birds are dear, speed now this feathered shaft and recall some pity for the Noldor in their need. His prayer was answered swiftly. For Manwe, to whom all birds are dear, and to whom they bring news upon Taniquetil from Middle-earth, had sent forth the race of eagles, commanding them to dwell in the crags of the north and to keep watch upon Morgoth. For Manwe still had pity for the exiled elves, and the eagles brought news of much that passed in those days to the sad ears of Manwe. Now, even as Fingon bent his bow, there flew down from the high airs Thorondor, king of eagles, mightiest of all birds that have ever been, whose outstretched wings spanned thirty fathoms. And staying Fingon's hand, he took him up and bore him to the face of the rock where Maedhros hung. But Fingon could not release the hell-wrought bond upon his wrist, nor sever it, nor draw it from the stone. Again, therefore, in his pain, Maedhros begged that he would slay him. But Fingon cut off his hand above the wrist, and Thorondor bore them back to Mithrim. There Maedhros in time was healed, for the fire of life was hot within him, and his strength was of the ancient world, such as those possessed who were nurtured in Valinor. His body recovered from his torment and became hale, but the shadow of his pain was in his heart, and he lived to wield his sword with left hand more deadly than his right had been. By this deed Fingon won great renown, and all the Noldor praised him, and the hatred between the houses of Fingolfin and Feanor was assuaged. For Maedhros begged forgiveness for the desertion in Araman, 
and he waved his claim to kingship over all the Noldor, saying to Fingolfin, If there lay no grievance between us, Lord, still the kingship would rightly come to you, the eldest here of the house of Finway, and not the least wise. But to this his brothers did not all in their hearts agree. Therefore, even as Mandos foretold, the house of Feanor were called the Dispossessed, because the overlordship passed from it, the Elder, to the house of Fingolfin, both in Elenda and in Beleriand, and because also of the loss of the Silmarils. But the Noldor, being again united, set a watch upon the borders of Dor Daedaloth, and Angband was beleaguered from west and south and east and they sent forth messengers far and wide to explore the countries of Beleriand, and to treat with the people that dwelt there. Now King Thingol welcomed not with a full heart the coming of so many princes in might out of the west, eager for new realms. And he would not open his kingdom, nor remove its girdle of enchantment, for wise with the wisdom of Melian he trusted not that the restraint of Morgoth would endure. Alone of the princes of the Noldor, those of Fenarfin's house were suffered to pass within the confines of Doriath, for they could claim close kinship with King Thingol himself, since their mother was Eärwin of Alqualonde, Alwe's daughter. Angrod, son of Fenarfin, was the first of the exiles to come to Menegroth as messenger of his brother Finrod, and he spoke long with the king telling him of the deeds of the Noldor in the north, and of their numbers, and of the ordering of their force. But being true and wise-hearted, and thinking all griefs now forgiven, he spoke no word concerning the kinslaying, nor of the manner of the exile of the Noldor, and the oath of Feanor. King Thingol hearkened to the words of Angrod, and ere he went he said to him, Thus shall you speak for me to those that sent you. In Hithlam, the Noldor have leave to dwell, and in the highlands of Dothonion, and in the lands east of Doriath that are empty and wild. But elsewhere there are many of my people, and I would not have them restrained of their freedom, still less ousted from their homes. Beware, therefore, how you princes of the West bear yourselves, for I am the Lord of Beleriand, and all who seek to dwell there shall hear my word, into Doriath none shall come to abide, but only such as I call as guests, or who seek me in great need. Now the lords of the Noldor held council in Mithrim, and thither came Angrod out of Doriath, bearing the message of King Thingol. Cold seemed its welcome to the Noldor, and the sons of Feanor were angered at the words. But Maedhras laughed, saying, A king is he that can hold his own or else his title is vain. Thingol does but grant us lands where his power does not run. Indeed, Doriath alone would be his realm this day, but for the coming of the Noldor. Therefore in Doriath let him reign, and be glad that he has the sons of Finway for his neighbors, not the orcs of Morgoth that we found. Elsewhere it shall go as seems good to us. But Caranthia, who loved not the sons of Finarfin, and was the harshest of the brothers, and the most quick to anger, cried aloud, Yea, more! Let not the sons of Finarfin run hither and thither with their tails to this dark elf in his caves. Who made them our spokesman to deal with him? 
and though they may become indeed to Beleriand, and let them not so swiftly forget their father is a lord of the Noldor, though their mother be of other kin. Then Angrod was wrathful, and went forth from the council. Maedhros, indeed, rebuked Caranthea, but the greater part of the Noldor of both followings, hearing his words, were troubled in heart, fearing the fell spirit of the sons of Feanor that it seemed would ever be like to burst forth in rash word or violence. But Maedhros restrained his brothers, and they departed from the council, and soon afterwards they left Mithrim and went eastward beyond Aros to the wide lands about the hill of Himring. That region was named thereafter the March of Maedhros, for northwards there was little defence of hill or river against assault from Angband. There Maedhros and his brothers kept watch, gathering all such people as would come to them, and they had few dealings with their kinsfolk westward save at need. It is said, indeed, that Maedhros himself devised this plan to lessen the chances of strife, and because he was very willing that the chief peril of assault should fall upon himself. And he remained for his part in friendship with the houses of Fingolfin and Finarfin, and would come among them at times for common counsel. Yet he also was bound by the oath, though it slept now for a time. Now the people of Caranthia dwelt furthest east beyond the upper waters of Gelion, about Lake Helevorn under Mount Rerir, and to the southward. And they climbed the heights of Eridluin, and looked eastward in wonder, for wild and wide it seemed to them were the lands of Middle-earth. And thus it was that Caranthia's people came upon the dwarves, who, after the onslaught of Morgoth and the coming of the Noldor, had ceased their traffic into Beleriand. But though either people loved skill and were eager to learn, no great love was there between them, for the dwarves were secret and quick to resentment, and Caranthea was haughty and scarce concealed his scorn for the unloveliness of the Naugrim, and his people followed their lord. Nevertheless, since both peoples feared and hated Morgoth, they made alliance, and had of it great profit. For the Naugrim learned many secrets of craft in those days, so that the smiths and masons of Nogrod and Belegost became renowned among their kin, and when the dwarves began again to journey into Beleriand, all the traffic of the dwarf mines passed first through the hands of Caranthea, and thus great riches came to him. When twenty years of the sun had passed, Fingolfin, king of the Noldor, made a great feast, and it was held in the spring near to the pools of Ivrin, whence the swift river Narog rose. For there the lands were green and fair at the feet of the mountains of shadow that shielded them from the north. The joy of that feast was long remembered in later days of sorrow, and it was called Merath Adathad, the Feast of Reuniting. Thither came many of the chieftains and people of Fingolfin and Finrod, and of the sons of Feanor, Maedhros and Maglor, with warriors of the Eastern March, and they came also great numbers of the Grey Elves, wanderers of the woods of Beleriand, and folk of the Havens, with Círdan, their lord. There came even green elves from Osiriand, the land of seven rivers far off under the walls of the Blue Mountains. But out of Doriath there came but two messengers, Mablung and Daeron, 
bearing greetings from the king. At Merath Aderthad, many counsels were taken in goodwill, and oaths were sworn of league and friendship, and it is told that at this feast the tongue of the grey elves was most spoken even by the Noldor, for they learned swiftly the speech of Beleriand, whereas the Sindar was slow to master the tongue of Valinor. The hearts of the Noldor were high and full of hope, and to many among them it seemed that the words of Feanor had been justified, bidding them to seek freedom and fair kingdoms in Middle-earth. And indeed there followed after long years of peace, while their swords fenced Beleriand from the ruin of Morgoth, and his power was shut behind his gates. In those days there was joy beneath the new sun and moon, and all the land was glad. But still the shadow brooded in the north. And when again thirty years had passed, Turgon, son of Fingolfin, left Nevrast, where he dwelt, and sought out Finrod, his friend, upon the island of Tolsirian, and they journeyed southward along the river, being weary for a while of the northern mountains. And as they journeyed, night came upon them, beyond the meres of twilight beside the waters of Syrian, and they slept upon his banks beneath the summer stars. But Ulmo, coming up the river, laid a deep sleep upon them and heavy dreams, and the trouble of the dreams remained after they awoke, but neither said aught to the other, for their memory was not clear, and each believed that Ulmo had sent a message to him alone. But unquiet was upon them ever after, and doubt of what should befall, and they wandered often alone in untrodden lands, seeking far and wide for places of hidden strength. For it seemed to each that he was bidden to prepare for a day of evil, and to establish a retreat, lest Morgoth should burst from Angband and overthrow the armies of the north. Now on a time Finrod and Galadriel his sister were the guests of Thingol their kinsman in Doriath. Then Finrod was filled with wonder at the strength and majesty of Menegroth, its treasuries and armories and its many pillared halls of stone. And it came into his heart that he would build wide halls behind ever-guarded gates in some deep and secret place beneath the hills. Therefore he opened his heart to Thingol, telling him of his dreams. And Thingol spoke to him of the deep gorge of the river Narog, and the caves under the high Faroth in its steep western shore. And when he departed, he gave him guides to lead him to that place of which few yet knew. Thus Finrod came to the caverns of Narog, and began to establish there deep halls and armories, after the fashion of the mansions of Menigroth, and that stronghold was called Nargothrond. In that labor Finrod was aided by the dwarves of the Blue Mountains, and they were rewarded well, for Finrod had brought more treasures out of Tyrion than any other of the princes of the Noldor, and in that time was made for him the Nauglamir, the necklace of the dwarves, most renowned of their works in the elder days. It was a carcanet of gold, and set therein were gems uncounted from Valinor, but it had a power within it, so that it rested lightly on its wearer as a strand of flax, and whatsoever neck it clasped, it sat always with grace and loveliness. There in Nargothrond, Finrod made his home with many of his people, 
and he was named in the tongue of the dwarves Felagund, Hewer of Caves. And that name he bore thereafter until his end. But Finrod Felagund was not the first to dwell in the caves beside the river Narog. Galadriel, his sister, went not with him to Nargothrond, for in Doriath dwelt Celeborn, kinsman of Thingol, and there was great love between them. Therefore she remained in the hidden kingdom and abode with Melian, and of her learned great lore and wisdom concerning Middle-earth. But Torgon remembered the city set upon a hill, Tyrion the Fair with its tower and tree, and he found not what he sought, but returned to Nevrast and sat in peace in Vinyamar by the shores of the sea. And in the next year Ulmo himself appeared to him and bade him go forth again alone into the Vale of Syrian. And Turgon went forth, and by the guidance of Ulmo he discovered the hidden Vale of Tumladen in the encircling mountains, in the midst of which there was a hill of stone. Of this he spoke to none as yet, but returned once more to Nevrast, and there began in his secret councils to devise the plan of a city after the manner of Tyrion upon Tunar, for which his heart yearned in exile. Now Morgoth, believing the report of his spies that the lords of the Noldor were wandering abroad with little thought of war, made trial of the strength and watchfulness of his enemies. Once more, with little warning, his might was stirred, and suddenly there were earthquakes in the north, and fire came from fissures in the earth, and the iron mountains vomited flame, and orcs poured forth across the plain of Ard Garlan. Thence they thrust down the pass of Syrian in the west, and in the east they burst through the land of Maglor in the gap between the hills of Maedhros and the outliers of the Blue Mountains. But Fingolfin and Maedhros were not sleeping, and while others sought out the scattered bands of orcs that strayed in Beleriand and did great evil, they came upon the main host from either side as it was assaulting Dothonian, and they defeated the servants of Morgoth, and pursuing them across Ard Galen, destroyed them utterly to the least and last within sight of Angban's gates. That was the third great battle of the wars of Beleriand, and it was named Dagor Aglareb, the glorious battle. A victory it was, and yet a warning and the princes took heed of it, and thereafter drew closer their leaguer, and strengthened and ordered their watch, setting the siege of Angband, which lasted well nigh four hundred years of the sun. For a long time after Dagor Aglareb, no servant of Morgoth would venture from his gates, for they feared the lords of the Noldor, and Fingolfin boasted that save by treason among themselves, Morgoth could never again burst from the leaguer of the Eldar, nor come upon them at unawares. Yet the Noldor could not capture Angband, nor could they regain the Silmarils, and war never wholly ceased in all that time of the siege, for Morgoth devised new evils, and ever and anon he would make trial of his enemies. Nor could the stronghold of Morgoth be ever wholly encircled, for the iron mountains from whose great curving wall the towers of Thangorodrim were thrust forward defended it upon either side and were impassable to the Noldor because of their snow and ice. Thus in his rear and to the north Morgoth had no foes, 
and by that way his spies at times went out and came by devious routes into Beleriand. And desiring above all to sow fear and disunion among the Eldar, he commanded the orcs to take alive any of them that they could and bring them bound to Angband. And some he so daunted by the terror of his eyes that they needed no chains more, but walked ever in fear of him, doing his will wherever they might be. Thus Morgoth learned much of all that had befallen since the rebellion of Feanor, and he rejoiced, seeing therein the seed of many dissensions among his foes. When nearly one hundred years had run since the Dagor Aglareb, Morgoth endeavoured to take Fingolfin at unawares, for he knew of the vigilance of Maethros. And he sent forth an army into the white north, and they turned west and again south, and came down the coast to the firth of Drengist, by the route that Fingolfin followed from the grinding ice. Thus they would enter into the realm of Hithlam from the west, but they were espied in time, and Fingon fell upon them among the hills at the head of the firth, and most of the orcs were driven into the sea. This was not reckoned among the great battles, for the orcs were not in great number, and only a part of the people of Hithlam fought there. But thereafter there was peace for many years, and no open assault from Angband, for Morgoth perceived now that the orcs unaided were no match for the Noldor, and he sought in his heart for new counsel. Again, after a hundred years, Glaurung, the first of the Uruloki, the fire-drakes of the north, issued from Angban's gates by night. He was yet young and scarce half-grown, for long and slow is the life of the dragons, but the elves fled before him to Eredwethrin and Dothonion in dismay and he defiled the fields of Ard Garlan. Then Fingon, prince of Hithlam, rode against him with archers on horseback, and hemmed him round with a ring of swift riders, and Glaurung could not endure their darts, being not yet come to his full armoury, and he fled back to Angbang, and came not forth again for many years. Fingon won great praise, and the Noldor rejoiced, for few foresaw the full meaning and threat of this new thing. But Morgoth was ill-pleased that Glaurung had disclosed himself over soon, and after his defeat there was the long peace of well-nigh two hundred years. In all that time there were but affrays on the marches, and all Beleriand prospered and grew rich. Behind the guard of their armies in the north, the Noldor built their dwellings and their towers, and many fair things they made in those days, and poems and histories and books of lore. In many parts of the land, the Noldor and the Sindar became welded into one people and spoke the same tongue. Though this difference remained between them, the Noldor had the greater power of mind and body, and were the mightier warriors and sages, and they built with stone and loved the hill slopes and open lands. But the Sindar had the fairer voices, and were more skilled in music, save only Maglor, son of Feanor, and they loved the woods and the riversides, and some of the grey elves still wandered far and wide without settled abode, and they sang as they went. Of Beleriand and its Realms this is the fashion of the lands into which the Noldor came in the north of the western regions of Middle-earth, 
in the ancient days. And here also is told of the manner in which the chieftains of the Eldar held their lands and the leaguer upon Morgoth after the Dagor Aglareb, the third battle in the wars of Beleriand. In the north of the world, Melkor had in the ages past reared Ered Engrin, the Iron Mountains, as a fence to his citadel of Otumno. And they stood upon the borders of the region of everlasting cold, in a great curve from east to west. Behind the walls of Ered Engrin in the west, where they bent back northwards, Melkor built another fortress as a defence against assault that might come from Valinor. And when he came back to Middle-earth, as has been told, he took up his abode in the endless dungeons of Angband, the Hells of Iron. For in the War of the Powers, the Valar, in their haste to overthrow him in his great stronghold of Utumno, did not wholly destroy Angbang, nor search out all its deep places. Beneath Ered Engrin, he made a great tunnel, which issued south of the mountains, and there he made a mighty gate. But above this gate, and behind it even to the mountains, he piled the thunderous towers of Thangorodrim, that were made of the ash and slag of his subterranean furnaces, and the vast refuse of his tunnelings. They were black and desolate, and exceedingly lofty, and smoke issued from their tops dark and foul upon the northern sky. Before the gates of Angband, filth and desolation spread southward for many miles over the wide plain of Ard Garlan. But after the coming of the sun, rich grass arose there, and while Angband was besieged and its gates shut, there were green things even among the pits and broken rocks before the doors of hell. To the west of Thangorodrim lay Hisilome, the land of mist, for so it was named by the Noldor in their own tongue because of the clouds that Morgoth sent thither during their first encampment. Hislam it became in the tongue of the Sindar that dwelt in those regions. It was a fair land while the siege of Angband lasted, although its air was cool and winter there was cold. In the west it was bounded by Ered Lomin, the echoing mountains that marched near the sea, and in the east and south by the great curve of Ered Wethrin, the shadowy mountains that looked across Ard Garlan and the Vale of Syrian. Fingolfin and Fingon his son held Hithlam, and the most part of Fingolfin's folk dwelt in Mithrim about the shores of the great lake. To Fingon was assigned Dorlomin that lay to the west of the mountains of Mithrim. But their chief fortress was at Ithel Sirion, in the east of Ered Wethrim, whence they kept watch upon Ard Garlan. And their cavalry rode upon that plain even to the shadow of Thangorodrim, for from few their horses had increased swiftly, and the grass of Ard Garlan was rich and green. Of those horses, many of the sires came from Valinor, and they were given to Fingolfin by Maethros, in atonement of his losses for they had been carried by ship to Loscar. West of Dorlomin, beyond the echoing mountains which south of the Firth of Drengist marched inland, lay Nevrast, that signifies the hither shore in the Sindarin tongue. That name was given at first to all the coastlands south of the Firth, but afterwards only to the land whose shores lay between Drengist and Mount Taras. 
There for many years was the realm of Turgon the Wise, son of Fingolfin, bounded by the sea and by Ered Lomin, and by the hills which continued the walls of Ered Wethrin westward, from Ivrin to Mount Taras, which stood upon a promontory. By some Nevras was held to belong rather to Balerian than to Hithlam, for it was a milder land, watered by the wet winds from the sea, and sheltered from the cold north winds that blew over Hithlam. It was a hollow land, surrounded by mountains and great coast cliffs, higher than the plains behind, and no river flowed thence. And there was a great mere in the midst of Nevrast, with no certain shores, being encircled by wide marshes. Linnewen was the name of that mere, because of the multitude of birds that dwelt there, of such as love tall reeds and shallow pools. At the coming of the Noldor, many of the grey elves lived in Nevrast near to the coasts, and especially about Mount Taras in the southwest. For to that place Ulmo and Ossa had been wont to come in days of old. All that people took Torgon for their lord, and the mingling of the Noldor and the Sindar came to pass soonest there, and Torgon dwelt long in those halls that he named Vinyamar, under Mount Taras beside the sea. South of Ardgalan, the great highland named Dorthonian stretched for sixty leagues from west to east. Great pine forests it bore, especially on its northern and western sides. By gentle slopes from the plain, it rose to a bleak and lofty land, where lay many tarns at the feet of bare tors, whose heads were higher than the peaks of Eredwethrin. But southward, where it looked towards Doriath, it fell suddenly in dreadful precipices. From the northern slopes of Dorthonian, Angrod and Agnor, sons of Finarfin, looked out over the fields of Ard Garland, and were the vassals of their brother Finrod, lord of Nargothrond. Their people were few, for the land was barren, and the great highlands behind were deemed to be a bulwark that Morgoth would not likely seek to cross. Between Dorthonian and the shadowy mountains there was a narrow vale, whose sheer walls were clad with pines, but the vale itself was green, for the river Syrian flowed through it, hastening towards Beleriand. Finrod held the pass of Syrian, and upon the isle of Tolsyrian, in the midst of the river, he built a mighty watchtower, Minas Tirith. But after Nargothrond was made, he committed that fortress mostly to the keeping of Orodreth, his brother. Now the great and fair country of Beleriand lay on either side of the mighty river Syrian, renowned in song, which rose at Aethal Syrian, and skirted the edge of Ard Garlan ere he plunged through the pass, becoming ever fuller with the streams of the mountains. Thence he flowed south for one hundred and thirty leagues, gathering the waters of many tributaries, until with a mighty flood he reached his many mouths and sandy delta in the Bay of Balar. And following Sirion from north to south, there lay upon the right hand in West Beleriand the forest of Brethil between Sirion and Teglin, and then the realm of Nargothrond between Teglin and Narog, and the river Narog rose in the falls of Ivrin in the southern face of Dorlomin, 
and flowed some eighty leagues ere he joined Sirion in Nan-Tathrin, the land of willows. South of Nan-Tathrin was a region of meads filled with many flowers where few folk dwelt, and beyond lay the marshes and isles of reed about the mouths of Sirion, and the sands of his delta empty of all living things save birds of the sea. But the realm of Nargothrond extended also west of Narog to the river Nenning, that reached the sea at Eglarest, and Finrod became the overlord of all the elves of Beleriand between Sirion and the sea, save only in the Phalas. There dwelt those of the Sindar who still loved ships, and Círdan the shipbuilder was their lord. But between Círdan and Finrod there was friendship and alliance, and with the aid of the Noldor the havens of Brithombar and Eglarest were built anew. Behind their great walls they became fair towns and harbours with quays and piers of stone. Upon the cape west of Eglarest, Finrod raised the tower of Barad Nimras to watch the western sea, though needlessly as it proved, for at no time ever did Morgoth essay to build ships or to make war by sea. Water all his servants shunned, and to the sea none would willingly go nigh save in dire need. With the aid of the elves of the havens, some of the folk of Nargothrond built new ships, and they went forth and explored the great isle of Balar, thinking there to prepare a last refuge if evil came. But it was not their fate that they should ever dwell there. Thus the realm of Finrod was the greatest by far, though he was the youngest of the great lords of the Noldor, Fingolfin, Fingon, and Maithros, and Finrod Felagund. But Fingolfin was held overlord of all the Noldor, and Fingon after him, though their own realm was but the northern land of Hithlam. Yet their people were the most hardy and valiant, most feared by the orcs, and most hated by Morgoth. Upon the left hand of Sirion lay East Beleriand, at its widest a hundred leagues from Sirion to Gelion, and the borders of Osirion. And first, between Sirion and Mindeb, lay the empty land of Dimbar, under the peaks of the Chrysagrim, abode of eagles. Between Mindeb and the upper waters of Esgalduin lay the No land of Nan Dungortheb. And that region was filled with fear, for upon its one side the power of Melian fenced the north march of Doriath, but on the other side the sheer precipices of Ered Gogoroth, mountains of terror, fell down from high Dothonian. Thither, as was earlier told, Ungoliant had fled from the whips of the Balrogs, and there she dwelt a while, filling the ravines with her deadly gloom, and there still, when she had passed away, her foul offspring lurked and wove their evil nets, and the thin waters that spilled from Ered Gorgoroth were defiled and perilous to drink, for the hearts of those that tasted them were filled with shadows of madness and despair. All living things else shunned that land, and the Noldor would pass through Nan-Dungortheb only at great need, by paths near to the borders of Doriath and furthest from the haunted hills. That way was made long before in the time ere Morgoth returned to Middle-earth, and if one fared upon it, 
he came eastwards to Esgalduin, where still there stood in the days of the siege the stone bridge of Iant Iawr. Thence he passed through Dor Dinan, the silent land, and crossing the Arosiach, which signifies the fords of Aros, came to the north marches of Beleriand, where dwelt the sons of Feanor. Southward lay the guarded woods of Doriath, abode of Thingol, the hidden king, into whose realm none passed save by his will. Its northern and lesser part, the forest of Neldoreth, was bounded east and south by the dark river Esgalduin, which bent westward in the midst of the land, and between Aros and Esgalduin lay the denser and greater woods of Region. Upon the southern bank of Esgalduin, where it turned westward towards Syrian, were the caves of Menegroth, and all Doriath lay east of Syrian, save for a narrow region of woodland between the meeting of Teglin and Syrian, and the mirrors of twilight. By the people of Doriath this wood was called Nivrim, the West March. Great oak trees grew there, and it also was encompassed within the girdle of Melian, that so some portion of Syrian, which she loved in reverence of Ulmo, should be wholly under the power of Thingol. In the southwest of Doriath, where Aros flowed into Syrian, lay great pools and marshes on either side of the river, which halted there in his course, and strayed in many channels. That region was named Aelin Uyal, the Twilight Mears, for they were wrapped in mists, and the enchantment of Doriath lay over them. Now all the northern part of Beleriand sloped southward to this point, and then for a while was plain, and the flood of Syrian was stayed. But south of Aelin Uiel the land fell suddenly and steeply, and all the lower fields of Syrian were divided from the upper fields by this fall, which to one looking from the south northward appeared as an endless chain of hills running from Eglarest beyond Narog in the west to Ammon Ereb in the east within far sight of Gelion. Narog came through these hills in a deep gorge and flowed over rapids, but had no fall, and on its western bank the land rose into the great wooded highlands of Tauran Faroth. On the west side of this gorge, where the short and foaming stream Ringwill tumbled headlong into Narog from the high Faroth, Finrod established Nargothrond. But some twenty-five leagues east of the gorge of Nargothrond, Sirion fell from the north in a mighty fall below the Mears, and then he plunged suddenly underground into great tunnels that the weight of his falling waters delved. And he issued again three leagues southward with great noise and smoke through rocky arches at the foot of the hills, which were called the Gates of Sirion. This dividing fall was named Andram, the Long Wall, from Nargothron to Ramdal, the Wall's End, in East Beleriand. But in the east it became ever less sheer, for the Vale of Gelion sloped steadily southward, and Gelion had neither fall nor rapids throughout his course, but was ever swifter than was Sirion. Between Ramdal and Gelion there stood a single hill of great extent and gentle slopes, but seeming mightier than it was, for it stood alone. And that hill was named Ammon Ereb. 
Upon Amon Ereb died Denethor, lord of the Nandor, that dwelt in Osirian, who marched to the aid of Thingol against Morgoth in those days when the orcs first came down in force and broke the starlit peace of Beleriand. And upon that hill Maedhros dwelt after the great defeat. But south of the Andram, between Sirion and Gelion, was a wild land of tangled forest in which no folk went, save here and there a few dark elves wandering. Tower Im Dwinath, it was named, the forest between the rivers. Gelion was a great river, and he rose in two sources, and had at first two branches. Little Gelion that came from the hill of Himring, and greater Gelion that came from Mount Rerir. From the meeting of his arms he flowed south for forty leagues before he found his tributaries, and before he found the sea he was twice as long as Sirion, though less wide and full. For more rain fell in Hithlam and Dorthonion when Sirion drew his waters than in the east. From Eredluin flowed the six tributaries of Gelion, Askar, that was after named Rathloriel, Thalos, Legolin, Brilthor, Dwilwen, and Adurant, swift and turbulent streams falling steeply from the mountains. And between Askar in the north and Adurant in the south, and between Gelion and Eredluin, lay the far green country of Osiriand, the land of seven rivers. Now at a point nearly midway in its course, the stream of Adurant divided and then joined again, and the island that its waters enclosed was named Tull Garlan, the Green Isle. There Beren and Luthien dwelt after their return. In Osirian dwelt the green elves in the protection of their rivers, for after Sirion Ulmo loved Gelion above all the waters of the western world. The woodcraft of the elves of Osiriand was such that a stranger might pass through their land from end to end and see none of them. They were clad in green in spring and summer, and the sound of their singing could be heard even across the waters of Gelion. Wherefore the Noldor named that country Lindon, the land of music, and the mountains beyond they named Ered Lindon, for they first saw them from Osiriand. East of Dorthonion, the marches of Beleriand were most open to attack, and only hills of no great height guarded the Vale of Gelion from the north. In that region, upon the march of Maedhros, and in the lands behind, dwelt the sons of Feanor with many people, and their riders passed often over the vast northern plain, Lothlan the wide and empty, east of Ard Garlan lest Morgoth should attempt any sortie towards East Beleriand. The chief citadel of Maedhros was upon the hill of Himring, the ever-cold, and that was wide-shouldered, bare of trees, and flat upon its summit, surrounded by many lesser hills. Between Himring and Dorthonion there was a pass, exceeding steep upon the west, and that was the pass of Aglon, and was a gate unto Doriath and a bitter wind blew ever through it from the north. But Kelagorm and Kurufin fortified Aglon, and held it with great strength, and all the land of Himlad southward, between the river Aros that rose in Dorthonion, and his tributary Kelon that came from Hinring. 
Between the arms of Gelion was the ward of Maglor, and here in one place the hills failed altogether. There it was that the orcs came into East Beleriand before the third battle. Therefore the Noldor held strength of cavalry in the plains at that place. And the people of Caranthia fortified the mountains to the east of Maglor's Gap. There Mount Redia and about it many lesser heights stood out from the main range of Ered Lindon westward. And in the angle between Redia and Ered Lindon there was a lake shadowed by mountains on all sides save the south. That was Lake Hellevorn, deep and dark. And beside it Caranthia had his abode. But all the great land between Gelion and the mountains, and between Redia and the river Askar, was called by the Noldor Thargelion, which signifies the land beyond Gelion, or Dor Caranthia, the land of Caranthia. And it was here that the Noldor first met the dwarves. But Thargelion was before called by the grey elves Talath Runan, the East Vale. Thus the sons of Feanor under Maethros were the lords of East Beleriand, but their people were in that time mostly in the north of the land, and southward they rode only to hunt in the greenwoods. But there Amrod and Amras had their abode, and they came seldom northward while the siege lasted, and there also other of the elf lords would ride at times, even from afar, for the land was wild but very fair. Of these Finrod Felagund came most often, for he had great love of wandering, and he came even into Ossiriand, and won the friendship of the green elves. But none of the Noldor went ever over Ered Linden, while their realm lasted, and little news and late came into Beleriand of what passed in the regions of the east. Of the Noldor in Beleriand it has been told how, by the guidance of Ulmo, Torgan of Nevrast discovered the hidden vale of Tumladen, and that, as was after known, lay east of the upper waters of Syrian, in a ring of mountains tall and sheer, and no living thing came there save the eagles of Thorondor. But there was a deep way under the mountains, delved in the darkness of the world, by waters that flowed out to join the streams of Syrian. And this way Turgon found, and so came to the green plain amid the mountains, and saw the island hill that stood there of hard, smooth stone. For the vale had been a great lake in ancient days. Then Turgon knew that he had found the place of his desire, and he resolved to build there a fair city, a memorial of Tyrion upon Tunar. But he returned to Nevrast, and remained there in peace, though he pondered ever in his thought how he should accomplish his design. Now, after the Dagor Aglareb, the unquiet that Ulmo set in his heart returned to him, and he summoned many of the hardiest and most skilled of his people, and led them secretly to the hidden vale, and there they began the building of the city that Turgon had devised and they set a watch all about it, that none might come upon their work from without, and the power of Ulmo that ran in Sirion protected them. But Turgon dwelt still for the most part in Nevrast, until it came to pass that at last the city was full wrought, 
after two and fifty years of secret toil. It is said that Torgon appointed its name to be Ondolinde in the speech of the elves of Valinor, the rock of the music of water, for there were fountains upon the hill. But in the Sindarin tongue the name was changed, and it became Gondolin, the hidden rock. Then Torgon prepared to depart from Nevrast and leave his halls in Vinyamar beside the sea. And there Ulmo came to him once again and spoke with him, and he said, Now thou shalt go at last to Gondolin, Turgon, and I will maintain my power in the Vale of Sirion and in all the waters therein, so that none shall mark thy going, nor shall any find there the hidden entrance against thy will. Longest of all the realms of the Eldalia shall Gondolin stand against Melkor. But love not too well the work of thy hands, and the devices of thy heart, and remember that the true hope of the Noldor lieth in the west, and cometh from the sea. And Ulmo warned Torgon that he also lay under the doom of Mandos, which Ulmo had no power to remove. Thus it may come to pass, he said, that the curse of the Noldor shall find thee too ere the end, and treason awake within thy walls. Then they shall be in peril of fire. But if this peril draweth nigh indeed, then even from Nevrast one shall come to warn thee, and from him beyond ruin and fire hope shall be born for elves and men. Leave therefore in this house arms and a sword, that in years to come he may find them, and thus shalt thou know him, and not be deceived. And Ulmo declared to Turgon of what kind and stature should be the helm and mail and sword that he left behind. Then Ulmo returned to the sea, and Turgon sent forth all his people, even to a third part of the Noldor, of Fingolfin's following, and a yet greater host of the Sindar. And they passed away, company by company, secretly, under the shadows of Ered Wethrin, and they came unseen to Gondolin, and none knew whither they had gone. And last of all, Torgon arose, and went with his household silently through the hills, and passed the gates in the mountains, and they were shut behind him. Through many long years none passed inward thereafter, save Hurin and Huor only and the host of Torgon came never forth again until the year of lamentation, after three hundred and fifty years and more. But behind the circle of the mountains the people of Torgon grew and throve, and they put forth their skill in labor unceasing, so that Gondolin upon Amon Guareth became fair indeed, and fit to compare even with Elvan Tyrion beyond the sea. High and white were its walls, and smooth its stairs, and tall and strong was the tower of the king. There shining fountains played, and in the courts of Turgon stood images of the trees of old, which Turgon himself wrought with elven craft. And the tree, which he made of gold, was named Glingal, and the tree, whose flowers he made of silver, was named Belthil. But fairer than all the wonders of Gondolin was Idril, Turgon's daughter, she that was called Celebrindal, the Silverfoot, whose hair was as the gold of Laurelin before the coming of Melkor. Thus Turgon lived long in bliss, but Nevrast was desolate, 
and remained empty of living folk until the ruin of Beleriand. Now, while the city of Gondolin was building in secret, Finrod Felogund wrought in the deep places of Nargothrond. But Galadriel, his sister, dwelt, as has been told, in Thingol's realm in Doriath. And at times Melian and Galadriel would speak together of Valinor and the bliss of old. But beyond the dark hour of the death of the trees, Galadriel would not go, but oh, Evaldor in Beleriand. And on a time Melian said, There is some woe that lies upon you and your kin. That I can see in you. But all else is hidden from me, for by no vision or thought can I perceive anything that passed or passes in the west. A shadow lies over all the land of Ammon and reaches far out over the sea. Why will you not tell me more? For that woe is past, said Galadriel, and I would take what joy is here left untroubled by memory, and maybe there is woe enough yet to come, though still hope may seem bright. Then Melian looked in her eyes and said, I believe not that the Noldor came forth as messengers of the Valar, as was said at first, not though they came in the very hour of our need, for they speak never of the Valar, nor have their high lords brought any message to Thingol, whether from Manwe, or Ulmo, or even from Alwe, the king's brother, and his own folk that went over the sea. For what cause, Galadriel, of the Noldor, were the high people Valeria. of the Noldor driven forth as exiles from Ammon? Or what evil lies on the sons of Feanor, that they are so haughty and so fell? Do I not strike near the truth? Near? said Galadriel. Save that we were not driven forth, but came of our own will, and against that of the Valar. And through great peril and in despite of the Valar, for this purpose we came, to take vengeance upon Morgoth and regain what he stole. Then Galadriel spoke to Melian of the Silmarils and of, of the slaying of King Finwë at Formanos. But still she said no word of the oath, nor of the kinslaying, nor of the burning of the ships at Lascar. But Melian said, Now much you tell me, and yet more I perceive. A darkness you would cast over the long road from Tyrion, but I see evil there which Thingol should learn for his guidance. Maybe, said Galadriel, but not of me. And Melian spoke then no more of these matters with Galadriel, but she told to King Thingol all that she had heard of the Silmarils. This is a great matter, she said, greater indeed than the Noldor themselves understand, for the light of Ammon and the fate of Arda lie locked now in these things, the work of Feanor, who is gone. They shall not be recovered, I foretell, by any power of the Eldar, and the world shall be broken in battles that are to come ere they are wrested from Morgoth. See now! Feanor they have slain, and many another as I guess. But first of all the deaths they have brought, and yet shall bring, was Finwë, your friend. Morgoth slew him ere he fled from Ammon. Then Thingol was silent, being filled with grief and foreboding, but at length he said, 
Now at last I understand the coming of the Noldor out of the West, at which I wondered much before. Not to our aid did they come, save by chance. For those that remain in Middle-earth, the Valar will leave to their own devices, until the uttermost need. For vengeance and redress of their loss, the Noldor came. Yet all the more sure shall they be as allies against Morgoth, with whom it is not now to be thought that they shall ever make treaty. But Melian said, Truly for these causes they came, but for others also. Beware of the sons of Feanor. The shadow of the wrath of the Valar lies upon them, and they have done evil, I perceive, both in Ammon and to their own kin. A grief but lulled to sleep lies between the princes of the Noldor. And Thingal answered, what is that to me? Of Theonor I have heard but report, which makes him great indeed. Of his sons I hear little to my pleasure, yet they are likely to prove the deadliest foes of our foe. Their swords and their counsels shall have two edges, said Melian. And afterwards they spoke no more of this matter. It was not long before whispered tales began to pass among the Sindar concerning the deeds of the Noldor, ere they came to Beleriand. Certain it is whence they came, and the evil truth was enhanced and poisoned by lies. But the Sindar were yet unwary and trustful of words, and, as may well be thought, Morgoth chose them for this first assault of his malice, for they knew him not. And Círdan... Hearing these dark tales was troubled, for he was wise, and perceived swiftly that true or false they were put about at this time through malice, though the malice he deemed was that of the princes of the Noldor, the cause of the jealousy of their houses. Therefore he sent messengers to Thingol to tell all that he had heard. It chanced that at the time the sons of Finarfin were again the guests of Thingol, for they wished to see their sister Galadriel. Then Thingol, being greatly moved, spoke in anger to Finrod, saying, Ill have you done to me, kinsman, to conceal so great matters from me, for now I have learned of all the evil deeds of the Noldor. But Finrod answered, What ill have I done you, lord? Or what evil deed have the Noldor done in all your realm to grieve you? Neither against your kingship nor against any of your people— have they thought evil or done evil? I marvel at you, son of Eowyn, said Thingol, that you would come to the board of your kinsmen, thus red-handed from the slaying of your mother's kin, and yet say naught in defense, nor yet seek any pardon. Then Finrod was greatly troubled, but he was silent, for he could not defend himself save by bringing charges against the other princes of the Noldor and that he was loath to do before Thingol. But in Angrod's heart the memory of the words of Caranthia welled up again in bitterness, and he cried, Lord, I know not what lies you have heard, nor whence, but we came not red-handed. Guiltless we came forth, save maybe of folly, to listen to the words of Felfeanor, and become as if besotted with wine, and as briefly, no evil did we do on our road but suffered ourselves great wrong, and forgave it. For this we are named tale-bearers to you, and treasonable to the Noldor, untruly, as you know. For we have of our loyalty been silent before you, 
and thus earned your anger. But now these charges are no longer to be borne, and the truth you shall know. Then Angrod spoke bitterly against the sons of Feanor, telling of the blood at Alquilonde, and the doom of Mandos, and the burning of the ships at Loscar, and he cried, Wherefore should we that endured the grinding ice bear the name of kinslayers and traitors? Yet the shadow of Mandos lies on you also, said Melian. But Thingol was long silent ere he spoke. Go now, he said, for my heart is hot within me. Later you may return, if you will, for I will not shut my doors for ever against you, my kindred, that were ensnared in an evil that you did not aid. With Fingolfin and his people also I will keep friendship, for they have bitterly atoned for such ill as they did, and in our hatred of the power that wrought all this woe, our griefs shall be lost. But hear my words. Never again in my ears shall be heard the tongue of those who slew my kin in Alquilonde, nor in all my realm shall it be openly spoken while my power endures, and all the Sindor shall hear my command that they shall neither speak with the tongue of the Noldor nor answer to it. And all such as use it shall be held slayers of kin and betrayers of kin unrepentant. Then the sons of Finarfin departed from Menegroth with heavy hearts, perceiving how the words of Mandos would ever be made true, and that none of the Noldor that followed after Feanor could escape from the shadow that lay upon his house, and it came to pass even as Thingol had spoken. For the Sindar heard his word, and thereafter throughout Beleriand they refused the tongue of the Noldor, and shunned those that spoke it aloud. But the exiles took the Sindarin tongue in all their daily uses, and the high speech of the West was spoken only by the lords of the Noldor among themselves. Yet that speech lived ever as a language of law, wherever any of that people dwelt. It came to pass that Nargothrond was full-wrought, and yet Turgon still dwelt in the halls of Vinyamar, and the sons of Finarfin were gathered there to a feast, and Galadriel came from Doriath and dwelt a while in Nargothrond. Now King Finrod Felagund had no wife, and Galadriel asked him why this should be. But foresight came upon Felagund as she spoke, and he said, An oath I too shall swear, and must be free to fulfill it, and go into darkness. Nor shall anything of my realm endure that a son should inherit. But it is said that not until that hour had such cold thoughts ruled him. For indeed, she whom he had loved was Amaria of the Vanya, and she went not with him into exile. Of Maeglin Arathel Arfeniel, the white lady of the Noldor, daughter of Fingolfin, dwelt in Nevrast with Torgon, her brother, and she went with him to the hidden kingdom. But she wearied of the guarded city of Gondolin, desiring ever the longer, the more to ride again in the wide lands, and to walk in the forests, as had been her wont in Valinor. And when two hundred years had passed since Gondolin was full-wrought, she spoke to Torgon, and asked leave to depart. Torgon was loath to grant this, and long denied her, 
but at the last he yielded, saying, Go then, if you will, though it is against my wisdom, and I forebode that ill will come of it both to you and to me. But you shall go only to seek Fingon, our brother, and those that I send with you shall return hither to Gondolin as swiftly as they may. But Arathel said, I am your sister, and not your servant, and beyond your bounds. I will go as seems good to me, and if you begrudge me an escort, then I will go alone. Then Turgon answered, I grudge you nothing that I have. Yet I desire that none shall dwell beyond my walls who know the way hither. And if I trust you, my sister, others I trust less to keep guard on their tongues. And Turgon appointed three lords of his household to ride with Arathel, and he bid them lead her to Fingon in Hithlam, if they might prevail upon her. And be wary, he said. For though Morgoth be yet hemmed in the north, there are many perils in Middle-earth of which the lady knows nothing. Then Arathel departed from Gondolin, and Turgon's heart was heavy at her going. But when she came to the ford of Brithiach in the river Syrian, she said to her companions, Turn now south and not north, for I will not ride to Hithlam. My heart desires rather to find the sons of Feanor, my friends of old. And since she could not be dissuaded, they turned south as she commanded, and sought admittance into Doriath. But the march-wardens denied them, for Thingol would suffer none of the Noldor to pass the girdle, save his kinsfolk of the house of Finarfin, and least of all those that were friends of the sons of Feanor. Therefore the march-wardens said to Arathel, To the land of Kelegorm for which you seek, lady, you may by no means pass through the realm of King Thingol. You must ride beyond the girdle of Melian to the south or to the north. The speediest way is by the paths that lead east from the Brithiach, through Dimbar, and along the north march of this kingdom, until you pass the bridge of Esgaldiwin, and the fords of Aros, and come to the lands that lie behind the hill of Himring. There dwell, as we believe, Kelegorm and Kurufin, and it may be that you will find them, but the road is perilous. Then Arathel turned back and sought the dangerous road between the haunted valleys of Ered Gorgoroth and the north fences of Doriath. And as they drew near to the evil region of Nan Dungortheb, the riders became enmeshed in shadows, and Arathel strayed from her companions and was lost. They sought long for her in vain, fearing that she had been ensnared or had drunk from the poisoned streams of that land. But the fell creatures of Ungoliant that dwelt in the ravines were aroused and pursued them, and they hardly escaped with their lives. When at last they returned and their tale was told, there was great sorrow in Gondolin, and Turgon sat long alone, enduring grief and anger in silence. But Arathel, having sought in vain for her companions, rode on, for she was fearless and hardy of heart, as were all the children of Finwë. And she held on her way, and crossing Esgalduin and Aros, came to the land of Himlad between Aros and Kelon, where Kelagorm and Corufin dwelt in those days, before the breaking of the siege of Angband. At that time they were from home, riding with Caranthia east in Thargelion. But the people of Kelagorm welcomed her, and bade her stay among them with honour until their lord's return. 
There for a while she was content, and had great joy in wandering free in the woodlands. But as the year lengthened and Kelagorm did not return, she became restless again, and took to riding alone ever further abroad, seeking for new paths and untrodden glades. Thus it chanced in the waning of the year that Arathel came to the south of Himlad, and passed over Kelon, and before she was aware, she was enmeshed in Nan Elmoth. In that wood, in ages past, Melian walked in the twilight of Middle-earth, when the trees were young, and enchantment lay upon it still. But now the trees of Nan Elmoth were the tallest and darkest in all Beleriand, and there the sun never came. And there Eol dwelt, who was named the Dark Elf. Of old he was the kin of Thingol, but he was restless and ill at ease in Doriath, and when the girdle of Melian was set about the forest of Region, where he dwelt, he fled thence to Nan Elmoth. There he lived in deep shadow, loving the night and the twilight under the stars. He shunned the Noldor, holding them to blame for the return of Morgoth, who troubled the quiet of Beleriand. But for the dwarves, he had more liking than any other of the elven folk of old. From him the dwarves learned much of what passed in the lands of the Eldar. Now the traffic of the dwarves down from the Blue Mountains followed two roads across East Beleriand, and the northern way, going towards the fords of Aros, passed nigh to Nan Elmoth. And there Eol would meet the Nagrim and hold converse with them. And as their friendship grew, he would at times go and dwell as guest in the deep mansions of Nogrod, or Belagost. There he learned much of metalwork, and came to great skill therein, and he devised a metal as hard as the steel of the dwarves, but so malleable that he could make it thin and supple, and yet it remained resistant to all blades and darts. He named it Galvorn, for it was black and shining like jet and he was clad in it whenever he went abroad. But Eol, though stooped by his smithwork, was no dwarf, but a tall elf of a high kin of the Teleri, noble, though grim of face, and his eyes could see deep into shadows and dark places. And it came to pass that he saw Arathel Arfaniel, as she strayed among the tall trees near the borders of Nan Elmoth, a gleam of white in the dim land. Very fair she seemed to him, and he desired her. And he set his enchantments about her, so that she could not find the ways out, but drew ever nearer to his dwelling in the depths of the wood. There were his smithy and his dim halls, and such servants as he had, silent and secret as their master. And when Arathel, weary with wandering, came at last to his doors, he revealed himself, and he welcomed her, and led her into his house, and there she remained. For Aeol took her to wife, and it was long ere any of her kin heard of her again. It is not said that Arathel was wholly unwilling, nor that her life in Nan Elmoth was hateful to her for many years. For though at Aeol's command she must shun the sunlight, they wandered far together under the stars, or by the light of the sickle moon or she might fare alone as she would, save that Aeol forbade her to seek the sons of Feanor or any others of the Noldor. 
and Arathel bore to Aeol a son in the shadows of Nan Elmoth, and in her heart she gave him a name in the forbidden tongue of the Noldor, Lormian, that signifies child of the twilight. But his father gave him no name until he was twelve years old. Then he called him Maeglin, which is sharp glance, for he perceived that the eyes of his son were more piercing than his own, and his thought could read the secrets of hearts beyond the mist of words. As Maeglin grew to full stature, he resembled in face and form rather his kindred of the Noldor, but in mood and mind he was the son of his father. His words were few, save in matters that touched him near, and then his voice had a power to move those that heard him, and to overthrow those that withstood him. He was tall and black-haired, his eyes were dark yet bright and keen as the eyes of the Noldor, and his skin was white. Often he went with Aeol to the cities of the dwarves in the east of Eredlindon, and there he learned eagerly what they would teach, and above all, the craft of finding the ores of metals in the mountains. Yet it is said that Maeglin loved his mother better, and if Aeol were abroad, he would sit long beside her and listen to all that she could tell him of her kin and their deeds in Eldamar, and of the might and valour of the princes of the house of Fingolfin. All these things he laid to heart, but most of all that which he heard of Turgon, and that he had no heir. For Elenwe, his wife, perished in the crossing of the Helcaraxa, and his daughter, Idril Celebrindel, was his only child. In the telling of these tales there was awakened in Arathel a desire to see her own kin again, and she marvelled that she had grown weary of the light of Gondolin and the fountains in the sun and the green sward of Tumladen under the windy skies of spring. Moreover, she was often alone in the shadows when both her son and her husband were away. Of these tales also grew the first quarrels of Maeglin and Aeol, for by no means would his mother reveal to Maeglin where Turgon dwelt, nor by what means one might come thither, and he bided his time, trusting yet to wheedle the secret from her, or perhaps to read her unguarded mind. But ere that could be done, he desired to look on the Noldor, and speak with the sons of Feanor, his kin, that dwelt not far away. But when he declared his purpose to Aeol, his father was wrathful. You are of the house of Aeol, Maeglin, my son, he said, and not of the Golothrim. All this land is the land of the Teleri, and I will not deal nor have my son deal with the slayers of our kin, the invaders and usurpers of our homes. In this you shall obey me, or I will set you in bonds. And Maeglin did not answer, but was cold and silent, and went abroad no more with Aeol, and Aeol mistrusted him. It came to pass that at the midsummer the dwarves, as was their custom, bade Aeol to a feast in Nogrod, and he rode away. Now Maeglin and his mother were free for a while to go where they wished, and they rode often to the eaves of the wood, seeking the sunlight. And desire grew hot in Maeglin's heart to leave Nan Elmoth for ever. Therefore he said to Arathel, Lady, let us depart while there is time. What hope is there in this wood for you or for me? Here we are held in bondage, and no profit shall I find here. 
for I have learned all that my father has to teach, or that the Naugrim will reveal to me. Shall we not seek for Gondolin? You shall be my guide, and I will be your guard. Then Arathel was glad, and looked with pride upon her son, and telling the servants of Aeol that they went to seek the sons of Feanor, they departed and rode away to the north eaves of Nan Elmoth. There they crossed the slender stream of Kelon into the land of Himlad, and rode on to the fords of Aros, and so westward along the fences of Doriath. Now Aeol returned out of the east sooner than Meglin had foreseen, and found his wife and his son but two days gone, and so great was his anger that he followed after them even by the light of day. As he entered the Himlad, he mastered his wrath and went warily, remembering his danger, for Kelagorm and Kurufin were mighty lords who loved Aeol not at all, and Kurufin, moreover, was of perilous mood. But the scouts of Aglon had marked the riding of Maeglin and Arathel to the fords of Aros, and Kurufin, perceiving that strange deeds were afoot, came south from the pass and encamped near the fords. And before Aeol had ridden far across the Himlad, he was waylaid by the riders of Kurufin and taken to their lord. Then Kurufin said to Aeol, What errand have you, dark elf, in my lands? An urgent matter, perhaps, that keeps one so sun-shy abroad by day. And Aeol, knowing his peril, restrained the bitter words that arose in his mind. I have learned, Lord Kurufin, he said, that my son and my wife, the White Lady of Gondolin, have ridden to visit you while I was from home, and it seemed to me fitting that I should join them on this errand. Then Kurufin laughed at Aeol, and he said, They might have found their welcome here less warm than they had hoped had you accompanied them. But it is no matter, for that was not their errand. It is not two days since they passed over the Arosiach, and thence rode swiftly westward. It seems that you would deceive me, unless indeed you yourself have been deceived. And Aeol answered, Then, Lord, perhaps you will give me leave to go and discover the truth of this matter. You have my leave, but not my love, said Kurufin. The sooner you depart from my land, the better will it please me. Then Aeol mounted his horse, saying, It is good, Lord Kurufin, to find a kinsman thus kindly at need. I will remember it when I return. Then Kurufin looked darkly upon Aeol. Do not flaunt the title of your wife before me, he said, for those who steal the daughters of the Noldor and wed them without gift or leave do not gain kinship with their kin. I have given you leave to go, take it, and be gone. By the laws of the Eldar I may not slay you at this time, and this counsel I add. Return now to your dwelling in the darkness of Nan Elmoth, for my heart warns me that if you now pursue those who love you no more, never will you return thither. Then Aeol rode off in haste, and he was filled with hatred of all the Noldor for he perceived now that Maeglin and Arathel were fleeing to Gondolin. And driven by anger and the shame of his humiliation, he crossed the fords of Aros and rode hard upon the way that they had gone before. And though they knew not that he followed them, and he had the swiftest steed, 
He came never in sight of them until they reached the Brithiach and abandoned their horses. Then, by ill fate, they were betrayed, for the horses neighed loudly, and Aeol's steed heard them and sped towards them. And Aeol saw from afar the white raiment of Aravel, and marked which way she went, seeking the secret path into the mountains. Now Arathel and Maeglin came to the outer gate of Gondolin, and the dark guard under the mountains. And there she was received with joy, and passing through the seven gates, she came with Maeglin to Turgon, upon Amon Guareth. Then the king listened with wonder to all that Arathel had to tell, and he looked with liking upon Maeglin, his sister's son, seeing in him one worthy to be accounted among the princes of the Noldor. I rejoice indeed that Arfaniel has returned to Gondolin, he said, and now more fair again shall my city seem than in the days when I deemed her lost, and Maeglin shall have the highest honour in my realm. Then Maeglin bowed low, and took Torgon for lord and king to do all his will. But thereafter he stood silent and watchful, for the bliss and splendour of Gondolin surpassed all that he had imagined from the tales of his mother, and he was amazed by the strength of the city, and the hosts of its people, and the many things strange and beautiful that he beheld. Yet to none were his eyes more often drawn than to Idril, the king's daughter, who sat beside him. For she was golden as the Vanya, her mother's kindred, and she seemed to him as the sun from which all the king's hall drew its light. But Aeol, following after Arathel, found the dry river and the secret path, and so creeping in by stealth, he came to the guard, and was taken and questioned. And when the guard heard that he claimed Arathel as wife, they were amazed, and sent a swift messenger to the city, and he came to the king's hall. Lord, he cried, the guard have taken captive one that came by stealth to the dark gate. Aeol, he names himself, and he is a tall elf, dark and grim, of the kindred of the Sindar. Yet he claims the Lady Arathel as his wife, and demands to be brought before you. His wrath is great, and he is hard to restrain, but we have not slain him as your law commands. Then Arathel said, Alas! Aeol has followed us even as I feared. But with great stealth was it done, for we saw and heard no pursuit as we entered upon the hidden way. And then she said to the messenger, He speaks but the truth. He is Aeol, and I am his wife, and he is the father of my son. Slay him not, but lead him hither to the king's judgment, if the king so wills. And so it was done. And Aeol was brought into Turgon's hall, and stood before his high seat, proud and sullen. Though he was amazed no less than his son at all that he saw, his heart was filled the more with anger and with hate of the Noldor. But Turgon treated him with honour, and rose up and would take his hands. And he said, Welcome, kinsman, for so I hold you. Here you shall dwell at your pleasure, save only that you must here abide and depart not from my kingdom, for it is my law that none who finds the way hither shall depart. But Aeol withdrew his hand. I acknowledge not your law, he said, 
No right have you or any of your kin in this land to seize realms or to set bounds either here or there. This is the land of the Teleri, to which you bring war and all unquiet, dealing ever proudly and unjustly. I care nothing for your secrets, and I came not to spy upon you but to claim my own, my wife and my son. Yet if in Arathel, your sister, you have some claim... Then let her remain, let the bird go back to the cage, where soon she will sicken again as she sickened before. But not so, Maeglin. My son you shall not withhold from me. Come, Maeglin, son of Aeol. Your father commands you. Leave the house of his enemies and the slayers of his kin, or be accursed. But Maeglin answered nothing. Then Torgon sat in his high seat, holding his staff of doom, and in a stern voice spoke. I will not debate with you, dark elf. By the swords of the Noldor alone are your sunless woods defended. Your freedom to wander there wild you owe to my kin. And, but for them, long since, you would have labored in thraldom in the pits of Angband. And here I am king. And whether you will it or will it not, my doom is law. This choice only is given to you, to abide here or to die here, and so also for your son. Then Aeol looked into the eyes of King Turgon, and he was not daunted, but stood long without word or movement, while a still silence fell upon the hall. And Aravel was afraid, knowing that he was perilous. Suddenly, swift as a serpent, he seized a javelin that he held beneath his cloak and cast it at Maeglin, crying, The second choice I take, and for my son also, you shall not hold what is mine. But Arathel sprang before the dart, and it smote her in the shoulder, and Aeol was overborne by many, and set in bonds and led away, while others tended Arathel. But Maeglin, looking upon his father, was silent. It was appointed that Aeol should be brought on the next day to the king's judgment, and Arathel and Idril moved Turgon to mercy. But in the evening Arathel sickened, though the wound had seemed little, and she fell into the darkness, and in the night she died. For the point of the javelin was poisoned, though none knew it until too late. Therefore, when Aeol was brought before Turgon, he found no mercy and they led him forth to the Karagdur, a precipice of black rock upon the north side of the hill of Gondolin, there to cast him down from the sheer walls of the city. And Maeglin stood by and said nothing. But at the last Aeol cried out, So you forsake your father and his kin, ill-gotten son. Here shall you fail of all your hopes, and here may you yet die the same death as I. Then they cast Aeol over the Karakdur, and so he ended, and to all in Gondolin it seemed just. But Idril was troubled, and from that day she mistrusted her kinsmen. But Meglin prospered and grew great among the Gondolindrim, praised by all and high in the favor of Turgon. For if he would learn eagerly and swiftly all that he might, he had much also to teach. 
and he gathered about him all such as had the most bent to smithcraft and mining. And he sought in the Echoriath, which are the encircling mountains, and found rich loads of ore of divers metals. Most he prized the hard iron of the mine of Anghabar in the north of the Echoriath. And thence he got a wealth of forged metal and steel, so that the arms of the Gondolindrim were made ever stronger and more keen. And that stood them in good stead in the days to come. Wise in counsel was Maeglin, and wary, and yet hardy and valiant at need. And that was seen in after days. For when, in the dread year of the Nienaeth Arnoidiad, Turgon opened his leaguer and marched forth to the help of Fingon in the north, Maeglin would not remain in Gondolin as regent of the king, but went to the war and fought beside Turgon, and proved fell and fearless in battle. Thus all seemed well with the fortunes of Maeglin, who had risen to be mighty among the princes of the Noldor, and greatest save one in the most renowned of their realms. Yet he did not reveal his heart. And though not all things went as he would, he endured it in silence, hiding his mind so that few could read it, unless it were Idril Celebrindo. For from his first days in Gondolin he had borne a grief ever worsening that robbed him of all joy. He loved the beauty of Idril, and desired her without hope. The Eldar wedded not with kin so near, nor ever before had any desire to do so. And however that might be, Idril loved Maeglin not at all. And knowing his thought of her, she loved him the less, for it seemed to her a thing strange and crooked in him as indeed the Eldar ever since have deemed it, an evil fruit of the kinslaying, whereby the shadow of the curse of Mandos fell upon the last hope of the Noldor. But as the years passed, still Maeglin watched Idril and waited, and his love turned to darkness in his heart, and he sought the more to have his will in other matters, shirking no toil or burden, if he might thereby have power. Thus it was in Gondolin, and amid all the bliss of that realm, while its glory lasted, a dark seed of evil was sown. Of the Coming of Men into the West When three hundred years and more were gone since the Noldor came to Beleriand, in the days of the Long Peace, Finrod Felagund, Lord of Nargothrond journeyed east of Sirion and went hunting with Maglor and Maedhros, sons of Feanor. But he wearied of the chase and passed on alone towards the mountains of Eredlindon that he saw shining afar. And taking the dwarf road, he crossed Gelion at the ford of San Athrad, and turning south over the upper streams of Asgard, he came into the north of Assyriand. In a valley among the foothills of the mountains, below the springs of Thalos, he saw lights in the evening, and far off he heard the sound of song. At this he wondered much, for the green elves of that land lit no fires, nor did they sing by night. At first he feared that a raid of orcs had passed the leaguer of the north, but as he drew near he perceived that it was not so, for the singers used a tongue that he had not heard before, 
neither that of dwarves nor of orcs. Then Felagund, standing silent in the night shadow of the trees, looked down into the camp, and there he beheld a strange people. Now these were a part of the kindred and following of Beor, the old, as he was afterwards called, a chieftain among men. After many lives of wandering out of the east, he had led them at last over the Blue Mountains, the first of the race of men to enter Beleriand. And they sang because they were glad, and believed that they had escaped from all perils, and had come at last to a land without fear. Long Felagund watched them, and love for them stirred in his heart. But he remained hidden in the trees until they had all fallen asleep. Then he went among the sleeping people, and sat beside their dying fire where none kept watch. And he took up a rude harp which Beor had laid aside, and he played music upon it such as the ears of men had not heard. For they had as yet no teachers in the art, save only the dark elves in the wild lands. Now men awoke and listened to Felagund as he harped and sang, and each thought that he was in some fair dream, until he saw that his fellows were awake also beside him. But they did not speak or stir while Felagund still played, because of the beauty of the music and the wonder of the song. Wisdom was in the words of the elven king, and the hearts grew wiser that hearkened to him. For the things of which he sang, of the making of Arda, and the bliss of Ammon beyond the shadows of the sea, came as clear visions before their eyes, and his elvish speech was interpreted in each mind according to its measure. Thus it was that men called King Felagund, whom they first met of all the Eldar, Gnome, that is, wisdom in the language of that people, and after him they named his folk Gnomin, the wise. Indeed, they believed at first that Felagund was one of the Valar, of whom they had heard rumour that they dwelt far in the west, and this was, some say, the cause of their journeying. But Felagund dwelt among them, and taught them true knowledge, and they loved him, and took him for their lord, and were ever after loyal to the house of Finarfin. Now the Eldar were beyond all other peoples skilled in tongues and Felagun discovered also that he could read in the minds of men such thoughts as they wished to reveal in speech, so that their words were easily interpreted. It is said also that these men had long had dealings with the dark elves east of the mountains, and from them had learned much of their speech. And since all the languages of the Quendi were of one origin, the language of Beor and his folk resembled the elven tongue in many words and devices. It was not long, therefore, before Felagund could hold converse with Beor. And while he dwelt with him, they spoke much together. But when he questioned him concerning the arising of men and their journeys, Beor would say little, and indeed he knew little, for the fathers of his people had told few tales of their past, and the silence had fallen upon their memory. A darkness lies behind us, Beor said. And we have turned our backs upon it, and we do not desire to return thither even in thought. Westwards our hearts have been turned, and we believe that there we shall find light. But it was said afterwards among the Eldar, that when men awoke in Hildorian at the rising of the sun, the spies of Morgoth were watchful, and tidings were soon brought to him. 
and this seemed to him so great a matter that secretly under shadow he himself departed from Angband, and went forth into Middle-earth, leaving to Sauron the command of the war. Of his dealings with men, the Eldar indeed knew nothing at that time, and learned but little afterwards. But that a darkness lay upon the hearts of men, as the shadow of the kinslaying and the doom of Mandos lay upon the Noldor, they perceived clearly even in the people of the elf-friends whom they first knew. To corrupt or destroy whatsoever arose new and fair was ever the chief desire of Morgoth. And doubtless he had this purpose also in his errand, by fear and lies to make men the foes of the Eldar, and bring them up out of the east against Beleriand. But this design was slow to ripen, and was never wholly achieved. For men, it is said, were at first very few in number, whereas Morgoth grew afraid of the growing power and union of the Eldar, and came back to Angband, leaving behind at that time but few servants, and those of less might and cunning. Now Felagund learned from Beor that there were many other men of like mind who were also journeying westward. Others of my own kin have crossed the mountains, he said, and they are wandering not far away. And the Haladin, a people from whom we are sundered in speech, are still in the valleys on the eastern slopes, awaiting tidings before they venture further. There are yet other men whose tongue is more like to ours, with whom we have had dealings at times. They were before us on the westward march, but we passed them, for they are a numerous people, and yet keep together and move slowly, being all ruled by one chieftain whom they call Marach. Now the green elves of Assyriand were troubled by the coming of men, and when they heard that a lord of the Eldar from over the sea was among them, they sent messengers to Felagund. Lord, they said, if you have power over these newcomers, bid them return by the ways that they came, or else to go forward. For we desire no strangers in this land to break the peace in which we live, and these folk are hewers of trees and hunters of beasts, Therefore we are their unfriends, and if they will not depart, we shall afflict them in all ways that we can. Then, by the advice of Felagund, Beor gathered all the wandering families and kindreds of his people, and they removed over Gelion, and took up their abode in the lands of Amrod and Amras, upon the east banks of the Kelon, south of Nan Elmoth, near to the borders of Doriath. And the name of that land thereafter was Estolad, the encampment. But when after a year had passed, Felagund wished to return to his own country, Beor begged leave to come with him, and he remained in the service of the king of Nargothrond while his life lasted. In this way he got his name Beor, whereas his name before had been Balan, for Beor signified vassal in the tongue of his people. The rule of his folk he committed to Baran, his eldest son, and he did not return again to Estolad. Soon after the departure of Felagund, the other men of whom Beor had spoken came also into Beleriand. First came the Haladin, but meeting the unfriendship of the green elves, they turned north and dwelt in Thargelion, in the country of Caranthia, son of Feanor. 
There for a time they had peace, and the people of Caranthia paid little heed to them. In the next year, Marach led his people over the mountains. They were a tall and warlike folk, marching in ordered companies, and the elves of Ossirian hid themselves and did not waylay them. But Marach, hearing that the people of Beor were dwelling in a green and fertile land, came down the dwarf road and settled in the country south and east of the dwellings of Baran, son of Beor, and there was great friendship between those peoples. Felagund himself often returned to visit men, and many other elves out of the west lands, both Noldor and Sindar, journeyed to Estolad, being eager to see the Edain, whose coming had long been foretold. Now Atani, the second people, was the name given to men in Valinor in the law that told of their coming. But in the speech of Beleriand, that name became Edain. And it was there used only of the three kindreds of the elf friends. Fingolfin, as king of all the Noldor, sent messengers of welcome to them. And then many young and eager men of the Edain went away and took service with the kings and lords of the Eldar. Among them was Malach, son of Marach, and he dwelt in Hithlam for fourteen years, and he learned the elven tongue and was given the name of Aradan. The Edain did not long dwell content in Estolad, for many still desired to go westward, but they did not know the way. Before them lay the fences of Doriath, and southward lay Sirion and its impassable fens. Therefore the kings of the three houses of the Noldor, seeing hope of strength in the sons of men, sent word that any of the Edain that wished might remove and come to dwell among their people. In this way the migration of the Edain began. At first, little by little, but later in families and kindreds, they arose and left Estolad until after some fifty years many thousands had entered the lands of the kings. Most of these took the long road northwards, until the ways became well known to them. The people of Beor came to Dorthonion, and dwelt in lands ruled by the house of Finarfin. The people of Aradan, for Marach his father remained in Estolad until his death, for the most part went on westward, and some came to Hithlam. But Magor, son of Aradan, and many of the people passed down Syrian into Beleriand, and dwelt a while in the vales of the southern slopes of Ered Wethrin. It is said that in all these matters none save Finrod Felagund took counsel with King Thingol, and he was ill-pleased, both for that reason and because he was troubled by dreams concerning the coming of men, ere ever the first tidings of them were heard. Therefore, he commanded that men should take no lands to dwell in save in the north, and that the princes whom they served should be answerable for all that they did. And he said, Into Doriath shall no man come while my realm lasts, not even those of the house of Beor, who serve Finrod the Beloved. Melian said nothing to him at that time, but afterwards she said to Galadriel, now the world runs on swiftly to great tidings, and one of men, even of Beor's house, shall indeed come, and the girdle of Melian shall not restrain him, for doom greater than my power shall send him, 
and the songs that shall spring from that coming shall endure when all Middle-earth is changed. But many men remained in Estolad, and there was still a mingled people living there long years after, until in the ruin of Beleriand they were overwhelmed or fled back into the east. For beside the old who deemed that their wandering days were over, there were not a few who desired to go their own ways, and they feared the elder and the light of their eyes. And then dissensions awoke among the Edain, in which the shadow of Morgoth may be discerned, for certain it is that he knew of the coming of men into Beleriand, and of their growing friendship with the elves. The leaders of discontent were Bereg, of the house of Beor, and Amlach, one of the grandsons of Marach, and they said openly, We took long roads desiring to escape the perils of Middle-earth and the dark things that dwell there, for we heard that there was light in the west, but now we learn that the light is beyond the sea. Thither we cannot come where the gods dwell in bliss, save one, for the Lord of the Dark is here before us, and the Eldar wise but fell, who make endless war upon him. In the north he dwells, they say, and there is the pain and death from which we fled. We will not go that way. Then a council and assembly of men was called, and great numbers came together. And the elf friends answered Bereg, saying, Truly from the Dark King come all the evils from which we fled. But he seeks dominion over all Middle-earth, and whither now shall we turn, and he will not pursue us? Unless he be vanquished here, or at least held in leaguer. Only by the valour of the Eldar is he restrained, and maybe it was for this purpose, to aid them at need, that we were brought into this land. To this Bereg answered, Let the Eldar look to it. Our lives are short enough. But there arose one who seemed to all to be Amlach, son of Imlach, speaking fell words that shook the hearts of all who heard him. All this is but elvish law, tales to beguile newcomers that are unwary. The sea has no shore. There is no light in the west. You have followed a full fire of the elves to the end of the world. Which of you has seen the least of the gods? Who has beheld the Dark King in the north? Those who seek the dominion of Middle-earth are the Eldar. Greedy for wealth, they have delved in the earth for its secrets, and have stirred to wrath the things that dwell beneath it, as they have ever done and ever shall. Let the orcs have the realm that is theirs, and we will have ours. There is room in the world, if the Eldar will let us be. Then those that listened sat for a while astounded, and a shadow of fear fell on their hearts, and they resolved to depart far from the lands of the Eldar. But afterwards Amlach returned among them, and denied that he had been present at their debate, or had spoken such words as they reported, and there was doubt and bewilderment among men. Then the elf friends said, "'You will now believe this, at least.' There is indeed a dark lord, and his spies and emissaries are among us, for he fears us and the strength that we may give to his foes. But some still answered, He hates us rather, and ever the more the longer we dwell here meddling in his quarrel with the kings of the Eldar to no gain of ours.
Many therefore of those that yet remained in Estolad made ready to depart, and Bereg led a thousand of the people of Beor away southwards, and they passed out of the songs of those days. But Amlach repented, saying, I have now a quarrel of my own with this master of lies, which will last to my life's end. And he went away north and entered the service of Mathros. But those of his people who were of like mind with Bereg chose a new leader, and they went back over the mountains into Eriador, and are forgotten. During this time the Haladin remained in Thargelion, and were content. But Morgoth, seeing that by lies and deceits he could not yet wholly estrange elves and men, was filled with wrath, and endeavoured to do men what hurt he could. Therefore he sent out an orc raid, and passing east it escaped the leaguer, and came in stealth back over Ered Lindon, by the passes of the dwarf road, and fell upon the Haladin in the southern woods of the land of Caranthia. Now the Haladin did not live under the rule of lords, or many together, but each homestead was set apart, and governed its own affairs, and they were slow to unite. But there was among them a man named Haldad, who was masterful and fearless, and he gathered all the brave men that he could find, and retreated to the angle of land between Asgard and Gelion, and in the utmost corner he built a stockade across from water to water and behind it they led all the women and children that they could save. There they were besieged until their food was gone. Haldad had twin children, Haleth, his daughter, and Haldar, his son, and both were valiant in the defense, for Haleth was a woman of great heart and strength. But at last Haldad was slain in a sortie against the orcs, and Haldar, who rushed out to save his father's body from their butchery, was hewn down beside him. Then Haleth held the people together, though they were without hope, and some cast themselves in the rivers and were drowned. But seven days later, as the orcs made their last assault and had already broken through the stockade, there came suddenly a music of trumpets, and Caranthea with his host came down from the north and drove the orcs into the rivers. Then Caranthea looked kindly upon men, and did Haleth great honour, and he offered her recompense for her father and brother. And seeing over late what valour there was in the Idain, he said to her, If you will remove and dwell further north, there you shall have the friendship and protection of the elder, and free lands of your own. But Haleth was proud and unwilling to be guided or ruled, and most of the Haladin were of like mood. Therefore she thanked Caranthea, but answered, My mind is now set, Lord, to leave the shadow of the mountains and go west, whither others of our kin have gone. When therefore the Haladin had gathered all whom they could find alive of their folk, who had fled wild into the woods before the orcs, and had gleaned what remained of their goods in their burned homesteads, they took Haleth for their chief, and she led them at last to Estolad, and there dwelt for a time. But there remained a people apart, and were ever after known to elves and men as the people of Haleth. Haleth remained their chief while her days lasted, but she did not wed, and the headship afterwards passed to Haldan, son of Haldar, her brother. Soon, however, Haleth desired to move westward again, 
and though most of her people were against this counsel, she led them forth once more, and they went without help or guidance of the Eldar, and passing over Kelon and Aros, they journeyed in the perilous land between the mountains of Terra and the girdle of Melian. That land was even then not yet so evil as it after became, but it was no road for mortal men to take without aid, and Haleth only brought her people through it with hardship and loss, constraining them to go forward by the strength of her will. At last they crossed over the Brithiach, and many bitterly repented of their journey, but there was now no returning. Therefore, in new lands they went back to their old life as best they could, and they dwelt in free homesteads in the woods of Talath Dirnan, beyond Teglin, and some wandered far into the realm of Nargothrond. But there were many who loved the Lady Haleth and wished to go whither she would, and dwell under her rule, and these she led into the forest of Brethil, between Teglin and Sirion. Thither in the evil days that followed, Many of her scattered folk returned. Now Brethil was claimed as part of his realm by King Thingol, though it was not within the girdle of Melian, and he would have denied it to Haleth. But Felagund, who had the friendship of Thingol, hearing of all that had befallen the people of Haleth, obtained this grace for her, that she should dwell free in Brethil, upon the condition only that her people should guard the crossings of Taglin, against all enemies of the Eldar, and allow no orcs to enter their woods. To this Haleth answered, Where are Haldad my father, and Haldar my brother? If the king of Doriath fears a friendship between Haleth and those who have devoured her kin, then the thoughts of the Eldar are strange to men. And Haleth dwelt in Brethil until she died and her people raised a green mound over her in the heights of the forest. Tur Haretha, the Lady Barrow, Hauden Arwen, in the Sindarin tongue. In this way it came to pass that the Edain dwelt in the lands of the Eldar, some here, some there, some wandering, some settled in kindreds or small peoples and the most part of them soon learned the grey elven tongue, both as a common speech among themselves, and because many were eager to learn the law of the elves. But after a time, the elf kings, seeing that it was not good for elves and men to dwell mingled together without order, and that men needed lords of their own kind, set regions apart where men could live their own lives, and appointed chieftains to hold these lands freely. They were the allies of the Eldar in war, but marched under their own leaders. Yet many of the Edain had delight in the friendship of the elves, and dwelt among them for so long as they had leave, and the young men often took service, for a time, in the hosts of the kings. Now Hador Lorindal, son of Hathol, son of Magor, son of Malach Aradan, entered the household of Fingolfin in his youth, and was loved by the king. Fingolfin therefore gave to him the lordship of Dor Lomin, and into that land he gathered most of the people of his kin, and became the mightiest of the chieftains of the Edain. In his house only the elven tongue was spoken. But their own speech was not forgotten, and from it came the common tongue of Numenor. 
But in Dothonian the lordship of the people of Beor and the country of Ladros was given to Boromir, son of Boron, who was the grandson of Beor the Old. The sons of Hador were Galdor and Gundor, and the sons of Galdor were Hurin and Huor, and the son of Hurin was Turin, the bane of Glaurung, and the son of Huor was Tuor, father of Earendil, the blessed. The son of Boromir was Bregor, whose sons were Bregolas and Barahir, and the sons of Bregolas were Baragund and Beligund. The daughter of Baragund was Morwen, the mother of Turin, and the daughter of Belagund was Rian, the mother of Tuor. But the son of Barahir was Beren one hand, who won the love of Luthien Thingol's daughter, and returned from the dead. From them came Elwing the wife of Earendil, and all the kings of Numenor after. All these were caught in the net of the doom of the Noldor, and they did great deeds which the Eldar remember still among the histories of the kings of old. And in those days the strength of men was added to the power of the Noldor, and their hope was high. And Morgoth was straitly enclosed, for the people of Hador, being hardy to endure cold and long wandering, feared not at times to go far into the north and there keep watch upon the movements of the enemy. The men of the three houses throve and multiplied, but greatest among them was the house of Hador Goldenhead, peer of elven lords. His people were of great strength and stature, ready in mind, bold and steadfast, quick to anger and to laughter, mighty among the children of Iluvatar in the youth of mankind. Yellow-haired they were, for the most part, and blue-eyed. But not so was Turin, whose mother was Morwen of the house of Beor. The men of that house were dark or brown of hair, with grey eyes, and of all men they were most like to the Noldor, and most loved by them. For they were eager of mind, cunning-handed, swift in understanding, long in memory, and they were moved sooner to pity than to laughter. Like to them were the woodland folk of Haleth, but they were of lesser stature and less eager for lore. They used few words, and did not love great concourse of men, and many among them delighted in solitude, wandering free in the green woods, while the wonder of the lands of the Eldar was new upon them. But in the realms of the West their time was brief, and their days unhappy. The years of the Idain were lengthened according to the reckoning of men after their coming to Beleriand. But at last Beor the Old died when he had lived three and ninety years, for four and forty of which he had served King Felagund. And when he lay dead, of no wound or grief but stricken by age, the Eldar saw for the first time the swift waning of the life of men, and the death of weariness, which they knew not in themselves. And they grieved greatly for the loss of their friends. But Beor at the last had relinquished his life willingly and passed in peace and the Eldar wondered much at the strange fate of men, for in all their lore there was no account of it, and its end was hidden from them. Nonetheless, 
The Edain of old learned swiftly of the Eldar all such art and knowledge as they could receive, and their sons increased in wisdom and skill until they far surpassed all others of mankind, who dwelt still east of the mountains and had not seen the Eldar, nor looked upon the faces that had beheld the light of Valinor. Of the Ruin of Beleriand and the Fall of Fingolfin Now Fingolfin, king of the north and high king of the Noldor, seeing that his people were become numerous and strong, and that the men allied to them were many and valiant, pondered once more an assault upon Angband. For he knew that they lived in danger while the circle of the siege was incomplete, and Morgoth was free to labour in his deep mines, devising what evils none could foretell ere he should reveal them. This counsel was wise according to the measure of his knowledge, for the Noldor did not yet comprehend the fullness of the power of Morgoth, nor understand that their unaided war upon him was without final hope, whether they hasted or delayed. But because the land was fair and their kingdoms wide, most of the Noldor were content with things as they were, trusting them to last, and slow to begin an assault in which many must surely perish, were it in victory or in defeat. Therefore they were little disposed to hearken to Fingolfin and the sons of Feanor at that time least of all. Among the chieftains of the Noldor, Angrod and Egnor alone were of like mind with the king, for they dwelt in regions whence Thangorodrim could be descried, and the threat of Morgoth was present to their thought. Thus the designs of Fingolfin came to naught, and the land had peace yet for a while. But when the sixth generation of men after Beor and Marach were not yet come to full manhood, it being then four hundred years and five and fifty since the coming of Fingolfin, the evil befell that he had long dreaded, and yet more dire and sudden than his darkest fear, for Morgoth had long prepared his force in secret, while ever the malice of his heart grew greater, and his hatred of the Noldor more bitter. And he desired not only to end his foes, but to destroy also and defile the lands that they had taken and made fair. And it is said that his hate overcame his counsel, so that if he had but endured to wait longer until his designs were full, then the Noldor would have perished utterly. But on his part he esteemed too lightly the valour of the elves, and of men he took yet no account. There came a time of winter when night was dark and without moon, and the wide plain of Ard Garland stretched dim beneath the cold stars, from the hill forts of the Noldor to the feet of Thangorodrim. The watchfires burned low, and the guards were few. On the plain few were waking in the camps of the horsemen of Hithlum. Then suddenly Morgoth sent forth great rivers of flame that ran down swifter than Balrogs from Thangorodrim, and poured over all the plain and the mountains of iron belched forth fires of many poisonous hues, and the fume of them stank upon the air and was deadly. Thus Ardgarlan perished, and fire devoured its grasses, and it became a burned and desolate waste full of a choking dust, barren and lifeless. 
Thereafter its name was changed, and it was called Anfauglith, the Gasping Dust. Many charred bones had there their roofless grave, for many of the Noldor perished in that burning, who were caught by the running flame and could not fly to the hills. The heights of Dorthonion and Eredwethrin held back the fiery torrents, but their woods upon the slopes that looked towards Angband were all kindled, and the smoke wrought confusion among the defenders. Thus began the fourth of the great battles, Dagor Bragolach, the Battle of Sudden Flame. In the front of that fire came Glaurung the Golden, father of dragons, in his full might, and in his train were Balrogs, and behind them came the black armies of the orcs in multitudes such as the Noldor had never before seen or imagined. And they assaulted the fortresses of the Noldor, and broke the leaguer about Angband, and slew wherever they found them, the Noldor and their allies, grey elves and men. Many of the stoutest of the foes of Morgoth were destroyed in the first days of that war, bewildered and dispersed, and unable to muster their strength. War ceased not wholly ever again in Beleriand. But the battle of sudden flame is held to have ended with the coming of spring, when the onslaught of Morgoth grew less. Thus ended the siege of Angban, and the foes of Morgoth were scattered and sundered one from another. The most part of the grey elves fled south and forsook the northern war. Many were received into Doriath, and the kingdom and strength of Thingol grew greater in that time, for the power of Melian the queen was woven about his borders, and evil could not yet enter that hidden realm. Others took refuge in the fortresses by the sea, and in Nargothrond, and some fled the land and hid themselves in Ossiriand, or passing the mountains wandered homeless in the wild. And rumours of the war and the breaking of the siege reached the ears of men in the east of Middle-earth. The sons of Finarfin bore most heavily the brunt of the assault, and Angrod and Egnor were slain. Beside them fell Bregolas, lord of the house of Beor, and a great part of the warriors of that people. But Barahir, the brother of Bregolas, was in the fighting further westward, near to the pass of Sirion. There King Finrod Felagund, hastening from the south, was cut off from his people, and surrounded with small company in the fen of Serech. And he would have been slain or taken, but Barahir came up with the bravest of his men, and rescued him, and made a wall of spears about him, and they cut their way out of the battle with great loss. Thus Felagund escaped, and returned to his deep fortress of Nargothrond. But he swore an oath of abiding friendship, and aid in every need to Barahir and all his kin, and in token of his vow he gave to Barahir his ring. Barahir was now by right lord of the house of Beor, and he returned to Dorthonion. But most of his people fled from their homes and took refuge in the fastness of Hithlam. So great was the onslaught of Morgoth that Fingolfin and Fingon could not come to the aid of the sons of Finarfin, and the hosts of Hithlam were driven back with great loss to the fortresses of Eredwethrin, and these they hardly defended against the orcs. Before the walls of Aethel Sirion fell Hador the Golden-Haired, 
defending the rear guard of his lord Fingolfin, being then sixty and six years of age. And with him fell Gundor, his younger son, pierced with many arrows, and they were mourned by the elves. Then Galdor the Tall took the lordship of his father, and because of the strength and height of the shadowy mountains which withstood the torrent of fire, and by the valour of the elves and the men of the north, which neither Orc nor Balrog could yet overcome, Hithlum remained unconquered, a threat upon the flank of Morgoth's attack. But Fingolfin was sundered from his kinsmen by a sea of foes. For the war had gone ill with the sons of Feanor, and well-nigh all the east marches were taken by assault. The pass of Aglon was forced, though with great cost to the hosts of Morgoth, and Kelegorm and Kurufin, being defeated, fled south and west by the marches of Doriath, and coming at last to Nargothrond, sought harbour with Finrod Felagund. Thus it came to pass that their people swelled the strength of Nargothrond. But it would have been better, as was after seen, if they had remained in the east among their own kin. Maedhros did deeds of surpassing valour, and the orcs fled before his face, for since his torment upon Thangorodrim, his spirit burned like a white fire within, and he was as one that returns from the dead. Thus the great fortress upon the hill of Himring could not be taken, and many of the most valiant that remained, both of the people of Dorthonion and of the East Marches, rallied there to Maedhros, and for a while he closed once more the pass of Aglon, so that the orcs could not enter Beleriand by that road. But they overwhelmed the riders of the people of Feanor upon Lothlan, for Glaurong came thither, and passed through Maglor's Gap, and destroyed all the land between the arms of Gelion. And the orcs took the fortress upon the west slopes of Mount Rerir, and ravaged all Thargelion, the land of Caranthia, and they defiled Lake Helivorn. Thence they passed over Gelion with fire and terror, and came far into East Beleriand. Maglor joined Maedhros upon Himring, but Caranthia fled, and joined the remnant of his people to the scattered folk of the hunters Amrod and Amras, and they retreated and passed Ramdal in the south. Upon Amon Ereb they maintained a watch and some strength of war, and they had aid of the green elves. And the orcs came not into Osiriand, nor to Tower im Duinath, and the wilds of the south. Now news came to Hithlum that Dorthonion was lost, and the sons of Finarfin overthrown, and that the sons of Feanor were driven from their lands. Then Fingolfin beheld, as it seemed to him, the utter ruin of the Noldor, and the defeat beyond redress of all their houses, and filled with wrath and despair, he mounted upon Rochalor, his great horse, and rode forth alone, and none might restrain him. He passed over Dor Nufauglith, like a wind amid the dust, and all that beheld his onset fled in amaze, thinking that Orimer himself was come. For a great madness of rage was upon him, so that his eyes shone like the eyes of the Valar. Thus he came alone to Angban's gates, and he sounded his horn, and smote once more upon the brazen doors, and challenged Morgoth to come forth to single combat. 
and Morgoth came. That was the last time in those wars that he passed the doors of his stronghold, and it is said that he took not the challenge winningly. For though his might was greatest of all things in this world, alone of the Valar he knew fear. But he could not now deny the challenge before the face of his captains, for the rocks rang with the shrill music of Fingolfin's horn, and his voice came keen and clear down into the depths of Angband. And Fingolfin named Morgoth Craven and Lord of Slaves. Therefore Morgoth came, climbing slowly from his subterranean throne, and the rumour of his feet was like thunder underground, and he issued forth clad in black armour, and he stood before the king like a tower, iron-crowned, and his vast shield, sable, unblazoned, cast a shadow over him like a storm-cloud. But Fingolfin gleamed beneath it as a star, for his mail was overlaid with silver, and his blue shield was set with crystals, and he drew his sword, Ringil, that glittered like ice. Then Morgoth hurled aloft Grond, the hammer of the underworld, and swung it down like a bolt of thunder. But Fingolfin sprang aside, and Grond rent a mighty pit in the earth, when smoke and fire darted. Many times Morgoth essayed to smite him, and each time Fingolfin leaped away as a lightning shoots from under a dark cloud, and he wounded Morgoth with seven wounds, and seven times Morgoth gave a cry of anguish, whereat the hosts of Angband fell upon their faces in dismay, and the cries echoed in the Northlands. But at last the king grew weary, and Morgoth bore down his shield upon him. Thrice he was crushed to his knees, and thrice arose again, and bore up his broken shield and stricken helm. But the earth was all rent and pitted about him, and he stumbled and fell backward before the feet of Morgoth. And Morgoth set his left foot upon his neck, and the weight of it was like a fallen hill. Yet with his last and desperate stroke, Fingolfin hewed the foot with Ringil, and the blood gushed forth black and smoking, and filled the pits of Grond. Thus died Fingolfin, high king of the Noldor, most proud and valiant of the elven kings of old. The orcs made no boast of that duel at the gate, neither do the elves sing of it, for their sorrow is too deep. Yet the tale of it is remembered still. For Thorondor, king of eagles, brought the tidings to Gondolin, and to Hithlum, afar off. And Morgoth took the body of the elven king and broke it, and would cast it to his wolves. But Thorondor came hasting from his eyrie among the peaks of the Chrysagrim, and he stooped upon Morgoth and marred his face. The rushing of the wings of Thorondor was like the noise of the winds of Manwe, and he seized the body in his mighty talons, and soaring suddenly above the darts of the orcs, he bore the king away. And he laid him upon a mountain top that looked from the north upon the hidden valley of Gondolin. And Torgon, coming, built a high cairn over his father. No orc dared ever after to pass over the mount of Fingolfin, or draw nigh his tomb, until the doom of Gondolin was come, and treachery was born among his kin. Morgoth went ever halt of one foot after that day, and the pain of his wounds could not be healed, and in his face was the scar that Thorondor made. 
Great was the lamentation in Hithlam when the fall of Fingolfin became known, and Fingon in sorrow took the lordship of the house of Fingolfin and the kingdom of the Noldor. But his young son, Erenian, who was after named Gilgalad, he sent to the havens. Now Morgoth's power overshadowed the Northlands, but Barahir would not flee from Dorthonian, and remained contesting the land foot by foot with his enemies. Then Morgoth pursued his people to the death until few remained, and all the forest of the northward slopes of that land was turned little by little into a region of such dread and dark enchantment that even the orcs would not enter it unless need drove them, and it was called Delduath and Tower Nufuin, the forest under nightshade. The trees that grew there after the burning were black and grim, and their roots were tangled, groping in the dark like claws, and those who strayed among them became lost and blind, and were strangled or pursued to madness by phantoms of terror. At last so desperate was the case of Barahir, that Emeldir the man-hearted, his wife, whose mind was rather to fight beside her son and her husband than to flee, gathered together all the women and children that were left, and gave alms to those that would bear them. And she led them into the mountains that lay behind, and so by perilous paths until they came at last, with loss and misery, to Brethil. Some were there received among the Haladin, but some passed on over the mountains to Dorlomin, and the people of Galdor, Hador's son. And among those were Rian, daughter of Belagond and Morwen, who was named Elethwen, that is, Elfsheen, daughter of Baragond. But none ever saw again the men that they had left, for these were slain one by one, until at last only twelve men remained to Barahir. Beren his son, and Baragond, and Belagund his nephews, the sons of Bregolas, and nine faithful servants of his house, whose names were long remembered in the songs of the Noldor. Brathruin and Dairuin they were, Dagnir and Ragnor, Gildor and Gorlim the unhappy, Arthad and Orthel, and Hathaldir the young. Outlaws without hope they became, a desperate band that could not escape and would not yield, for their dwellings were destroyed and their wives and children captured, slain or fled. From Hithlum they came, neither news nor help, and Barahir and his men were hunted like wild beasts and they retreated to the barren highland above the forest, and wandered among the tarns and rocky moors of that region, furthest from the spies and spells of Morgoth. Their bed was the heather, and their roof the cloudy sky. For nigh on two years after the Dagor Bragolach, the Noldor still defended the western pass about the sources of Sirion, for the power of Ulmo was in that water, and Minas Tirith withstood the orcs. But at length... After the fall of Fingolfin, Sauron, greatest and most terrible of the servants of Morgoth, who in the Sindarin tongue was named Gothaur, came against Orodreth, the warden of the tower upon Tol Sirion. Sauron was become now a sorcerer of dreadful power, master of shadows and of phantoms, foul in wisdom, cruel in strength, misshaping what he touched, twisting what he ruled, lord of werewolves, his dominion was torment. He took Minas Tirith by assault, 
for a dark cloud of fear fell upon those that defended it, and Orodreth was driven out and fled to Nargothrond. Then Sauron made it into a watchtower for Morgoth, a stronghold of evil and a menace. And the fair isle of Tol Sirion became accursed, and it was called Tol Ingaroth, the Isle of Werewolves. No living creature could pass through that veil that Sauron did not espy from the tower where he sat. And Morgoth held now the western pass, and his terror filled the fields and woods of Beleriand. Beyond Hithlum, he pursued his foes relentlessly, and he searched out their hiding places and took their strongholds one by one. The orcs, growing ever bolder, wandered at will far and wide, coming down Sirion in the west and Kelon in the east, and they encompassed Doriath, and they harried the lands so that beasts and bird fled before them, and silence and desolation spread steadily from the north. Many of the Noldor and the Sindar they took captive and led to Angband and made them thralls, forcing them to use their skill and their knowledge in the service of Morgoth. And Morgoth sent out his spies, and they were clad in false forms, and deceit was in their speech. They made lying promises of reward, and with cunning words sought to arouse fear and jealousy among the peoples, accusing their kings and chieftains of greed and of treachery one to another. And because of the curse of the kinslaying at Alqualand, these lies were often believed. And indeed, as the time darkened, they had a measure of truth. For the hearts and minds of the elves of Beleriand became clouded with despair and fear. But ever the Noldor feared most the treachery of those of their own kin, who had been thralls in Angband. For Morgoth used some of these for his evil purposes, and feigning to give them liberty, sent them abroad but their wills were chained to his, and they strayed only to come back to him again. Therefore, if any of his captives escaped in truth and returned to their own people, they had little welcome, and wandered alone, outlawed and desperate. To men Morgoth feigned pity, if any would hearken to his messages, saying that their woes came only of their servitude to the rebel Noldor. But at the hands of the rightful lord of Middle-earth, they would get honour and a just reward of valour if they would leave rebellion. But few men of the three houses of the Edain would give ear to him, not even were they brought to the torment of Angband. Therefore Morgoth pursued them with hatred, and he sent his messengers over the mountains. It is told that at this time the swarthy men came first into Beleriand, some were already secretly under the dominion of Morgoth and came at his call, but not all, for the rumour of Beleriand, of its lands and waters, of its wars and riches went now far and wide, and the wandering feet of men were ever set westward in those days. These men were short and broad, long and strong in the arm, their skins were swart or sallow, and their hair was dark as were their eyes. Their houses were many, and some had greater liking for the dwarves of the mountains than for the elves. But Maedhras, knowing the weakness of the Noldor and the Edain, whereas the pits of Angban seemed to hold store inexhaustible and ever renewed, made alliance with these new-come men, and gave his friendship to the greatest of their chieftains, Bor and Ulfang. And Morgoth was well content, for this was as he had designed. The sons of Bor were Borlad, Borlach, and Borthand, 
And they followed Maedhros and Maglor, and cheated the hopes of Morgoth, and were faithful. The sons of Ulfang the Black were Ulfast, and Ulwarth, and Uldor the Accursed, and they followed Caranthir, and swore allegiance to him, and proved faithless. There was small love between the Idain and the Easterlings, and they met seldom, for the newcomers abode long in East Beleriand. But Hador's folk were shut in Hithlam, and Beor's house was well-nigh destroyed. The people of Haleth were at first untouched by the northern war, for they dwelt to the southward in the forest of Brethil. But now there was battle between them and the invading orcs, for they were stout-hearted men and would not likely forsake the woods that they loved. And amid the tale of defeats of that time, the deeds of the Haladin are remembered with honour. For after the taking of Minas Tirith, the orcs came through the western pass, and maybe would have ravaged even to the mouths of Sirion. But Halmir, lord of the Haladin, sent swift word to Thingol, for he had friendship with the elves that guarded the borders of Doriath. Then Beleg Strongbow, chief of the March Wardens of Thingol, brought great strength of the Sindar armed with axes into Brethil, and issuing from the deeps of the forest Halmir and Beleg took an orc legion at unawares and destroyed it. Thereafter the black tide out of the north was stemmed in that region, and the orcs dared not cross the Taglin for many years after. The people of Haleth dwelt yet in watchful peace in the forest of Brethil, and behind their guard the kingdom of Nargothrond had respite and mustered its strength. At this time Hurin and Huor, the sons of Galdor of Dor Lomin, were dwelling with the Haladin, for they were akin. In the days before the Dagor Bragolach, those two houses of the Edain were joined at a great feast, when Galdor and Glorethel, the children of Hador Goldenhead, were wedded to Hareth and Haldir, the children of Halmir, lord of the Haladin. Thus it was that the sons of Galdor were fostered in Brethil by Haldir, their uncle, according to the custom of men in that time. And they went both to that battle with the orcs, even Huor, for he would not be restrained, though he was but thirteen years old. But being with a company that was cut off from the rest, they were pursued to the ford of Brithiach, and there they would have been taken or slain, but for the power of Ulmo that was still strong in Sirion. A mist arose from the river, and hid them from their enemies, and they escaped over the Brithiach into Dimbar, and wandered among the hills beneath the sheer walls of the Chrysagrim, until they were bewildered in the deceits of that land, and knew not the way to go on or to return. There Thorondor espied them, and he sent two of his eagles to their aid, and the eagles bore them up and brought them beyond the encircling mountains to the secret vale of Tumladen and the hidden city of Gondolin, which no man had yet seen. There Torgon the king received them well when he learned of their kin, for messages and dreams had come to him up Sirion from the sea from Ulmo, lord of waters, warning him of woe to come and counselling him to deal kindly with the sons of the house of Hador, from whom help should come to him at need. Hurin and Huor dwelt as guests in the king's house for well nigh a year, and it is said that in this time 
Hurin learned much lore of the elves, and understood also something of the counsels and purposes of the king, for Torgon took great liking for the sons of Galdor, and spoke much with them, and he wished indeed to keep them in Gondolin out of love, and not only for his lore that no stranger, be he elf or man, who found the way to the secret kingdom and looked upon the city, should ever depart again, until the king should open the leaguer and the hidden people should come forth. But Hurin and Huor desired to return to their own people, and share in the wars and griefs that now beset them. And Hurin said to Torgon, Lord, we are but mortal men, and unlike the Eldar. They may endure for long years awaiting battle with their enemies in some far distant day, but for us the time is short, and our hope and strength soon wither. Moreover, we did not find the road to Gondolin, and indeed we do not know surely where this city stands. For we were brought in fear and wonder by the high ways of the air, and in mercy our eyes were veiled. Then Torgon granted his prayer, and he said, By the way that you came, you have leave to depart, if Thorondor is willing. I grieve at this parting. Yet in a little while, as the Eldar account it, we may meet again. But Maeglin, the king's sister's son, who was mighty in Gondolin, grieved not at all at their going, though he begrudged them the favour of the king, for he had no love for any of the kindred of men. And he said to Hurin, The king's grace is greater than you know, and the law is become less stern than aforetime, or else no choice would be given you but to abide here to your life's end. Then Hurin answered him, The king's grace is great indeed. But if our word is not enough, then we will swear oaths to you. And the brothers swore never to reveal the counsels of Turgon, and to keep secret all that they had seen in his realm. Then they took their leave, and the eagles coming bore them away by night and set them down in Dorlomin before the dawn. Their kinsfolk rejoiced to see them, for messengers from Brethil had reported that they were lost but they would not declare even to their father where they had been, save that they were rescued in the wilderness by the eagles that brought them home. But Galdor said, Did you then dwell a year in the wild, or did the eagles house you in their eyries? But you found food and fine raiment and return as young princes, not as waifs of the wood. And Hurin answered, Be content that we have returned, for only under an oath of silence was this permitted. Then Galdor questioned them no more, but he and many others guessed at the truth, and in time the strange fortune of Hurin and Huor reached the ears of the servants of Morgoth. Now when Torgon learned of the breaking of the leaguer of Angban, he would not suffer any of his own people to issue forth to war, for he deemed that Gondolin was strong, and the time was not yet ripe for its revealing. But he believed also that the ending of the siege was the beginning of the downfall of the Noldor, unless aid should come. And he sent companies of the Gondolindrim in secret to the mouths of Sirion and the Isle of Balar. There they built ships and set sail into the uttermost west upon Torgon's errand, seeking for Valinor to ask for pardon and aid of the Valar. And they besought the birds of the sea to guide them. But the seas were wild and wide, and shadow and enchantment lay upon them, and Valinor was hidden. 
Therefore none of the messengers of Turgon came into the west, and many were lost and few returned. But the doom of Gondolin drew nearer. Rumor came to Morgoth of these things, and he was unquiet amid his victories, and he desired greatly to learn tidings of Felagund and Turgon, for they had vanished out of knowledge, and yet were not dead, and he feared what they might yet accomplish against him. Of Nargothrond he knew indeed the name, but neither its place nor its strength, and of Gondolin he knew nothing, and the thought of Torgon troubled him the more. Therefore he sent forth ever more spies into Beleriand, but he recalled the main hosts of the orcs to Angband, for he perceived that he could not yet make a final and victorious battle until he had gathered new strength and that he had not measured rightly the valour of the Noldor, nor the might in arms of the men that fought beside them. Great though his victory had been in the Bragolach, and in the years after, and grievous the harm that he had done to his enemies, his own loss had been no less. And though he held Dorthonion and the pass of Sirion, the Eldar, recovering from their first dismay, began now to regain what they had lost. Thus Beleriand in the south, had a semblance of peace again for a few brief years. But the forges of Angband were full of labor. When seven years had passed since the fourth battle, Morgoth renewed his assault, and he sent a great force against Hithlam. The attack on the passes of the shadowy mountains was bitter, and in the siege of Aethel Sirion, Galdor the Tall, lord of Dorlomin, was slain by an arrow. That fortress he held on behalf of Fingon, the High King, and in that same place his father, Hador Lorindol, died but a little time before. Hurin, his son, was then newly come to manhood, but he was great in strength both of mind and body, and he drove the orcs with heavy slaughter from Eredwethrin, and pursued them far across the sands of Angfauglith. But King Fingon was hard put to it to hold back the army of Angband that came down from the north, and battle was joined upon the very plains of Hithlam. There Fingon was outnumbered, but the ships of Círdan sailed in great strength up the firth of Drengist, and in the hour of need the elves of the Phalas came upon the host of Morgoth from the west. Then the orcs broke and fled, and the Eldar had the victory." and their horsed archers pursued them even into the Iron Mountains. Thereafter, Hurin, son of Galdor, ruled the house of Hador in Dorlomin, and served Fingon. Hurin was of less stature than his father's, or his son after him, but he was tireless and enduring in body, lithe and swift after the manner of his mother's kin, Hareth of the Haladin. His wife was Morwen Elethwen, daughter of Baragund of the house of Beor, she who fled from Dorthonion with Rian, daughter of Belegund, and Emeldir, the mother of Beren. In that time also the outlaws of Dorthonion were destroyed, as is told hereafter, and Beren, son of Barahir, alone escaping, came hardly into Doriath. <laughs>